When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends, Jared Halverson here. Welcome back to Unshaken, and more importantly, welcome to the rest of our New Testament study. I know we've been in this book since January, but it's about to change. To this point, we've been studying history, but it's theology from here on out. So buckle up, get your thinking caps on. This is gonna be the more intellectually stretching side of our study. I know for many of you, you've been chomping at the bit. I was just talking to a good friend today who said, I've loved all year, but man, I've been waiting for the letters of Paul. I think many of us in the church know, feel like we know the Gospels. We were raised on the stories of Jesus. But we kind of start getting lost in the book of Acts, and then we really lose it with the epistles of Paul. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about what the, some of the reasons why, and hopefully some workarounds or some work-throughs to be able to understand him. But I am excited for this shift that we're about to make. Thanks to people like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we got to study the ministry of Jesus. And since Luke gave us a sequel, we got to extend that ministry by a couple of decades under the direction of apostles like Peter and Paul. Now, we've been studying the acts of the apostles, but now we're about to shift to the words of the apostles. We're going from deeds to doctrine. And believe me, these letters, or epistles if you want to get technical, these letters are so doctrinally drenched you're about to get the living water splashed all over you. Okay, so grab your snorkel. Better yet, grab your scuba, scuba gear because we're going to dive deep. And there are so many things that I hope will arrest our attention and give us pause to ponder some of these principles and doctrines that, that Paul is teaching. And it really will be Paul for this point forward for quite a few months. By the end of the year, we'll get additional letters from Peter and James and John and Jude. We'll have a grand finale with the book of Revelation. Can't wait for that. But between now and then, it's going to be Paul day in and day out. And I hope you're excited for that. I actually hope that you've fallen in love with him in the book of Acts enough to give you momentum to push through his letters. Because here's the first challenge. Paul's smarter than we are. <laughs> and I'm not shy about admitting that. He is an absolute genius. And that makes his his material, his letters, incredible, but also difficult to follow sometimes. In some ways, he's like the New Testament equivalent of Isaiah. Oh, should I not have said that? Have I scared you off already? No, no, come back, come back. Remember last year, we were daunted by Isaiah, but we made it through. And more than made it through, we fell in love with him. Once we started understanding principles of Hebrew poetry and the rhyming of ideas and, and started to define some of his metaphors and, and describe the objects of his analogies, once you start getting through that symbolism, Isaiah is the best book on earth to read because he knew the Savior in such profound ways. And he's trying to introduce him to us. Paul is the same. He was so well trained in the Old Testament uh, a, a Pharisee of Gamaliel school. Uh, he, was, he knew his Greek and Roman uh, poetry, as we learned. He could hang with the Epicureans and Stoics on Areopagus, and he can hang with the Sanhedrin back in, at, the, at the Temple Mount. This guy is a man for all ages. He's incredible. But that does make it a little difficult for us to stretch ourselves high enough to, to follow his train of thought. 
in some ways, well, I'll put it this way. What has helped me, probably the best tool I've ever seen to help me understand Paul are other translations of the Bible. And I don't want to say anything against the King James Version. I love the King James Version. To me, it is, it's the sound of Scripture. It's the, it's the lyrics of Handel's Messiah. It's the language of God. It feels that way. There's such a depth to it, a richness, a majesty. Yeah, King James, there you go. But the challenge is, it's 400-year-old English, and things have changed. So it's not just that we have to get past 2,000-year-old Greek to understand Paul. we got to get through 400-year-old English. And the semantics can be difficult, and the way things are phrased, or word choice that we don't speak like that anymore. Uh, I, I love the these and the thous, and the thinkeths and the speakeths, but sometimes I don't understandeth. And for me, looking at other translations can be really, really helpful. I'll give you two resources that are free and available and easy to use. Uh, my favorite is called Bible Hub. Another one is called the Blue Letter Bible. They're both free, available online. Look them up, bookmark them, and keep them handy when you're doing your, your New Testament study, or Old Testament for that matter. Both of them have the same basic resources. It's just a matter of how are they, or, they organized and formatted and where, you want, where, where are the buttons to push. But if I'm studying Paul, for example, and I run into a passage that I don't understand what he's talking about, my first, my first step, my first line of defense is to open up Bible Hub, look at that verse, and then click on Parallel. And that button opens up all these parallel uh, translations of the Bible. And that way I can read it not only in the King James Version, but in the New International Version, and the, the English Standard Version, and the Contemporary English Version, and the New American Standard Bible, and all these different translations. The modern translations really help me make sense, like, oh, that's what he said. Because he, it smooths out the syntax. It, it trades out the vocabulary for something that we would actually talk about in our day. But I don't stop there. Once it starts to make sense, then I'll go back to the King James Version so that it can re-infuse that passage with majesty and richness. Then modern translations help my head, and then the King James helps my heart. And between those two, I'm learning and feeling the power of Scripture. Okay? While you're there, by the way, you can look up Greek words and Hebrew words and, and all kinds of cross-references and maps and commentaries. They're really, really rich resources. So I, I highly commend them to you. So that's one challenge of Paul and a way to help us get through it. Okay? Difficulty in language, but other translations can be a, a godsend. The other challenge with the letters of Paul is that they're not, well, there's no storyline. In, in some ways, if the difficulty of the language ties Paul to Isaiah, the lack of storyline ties Paul to the Doctrine and Covenants. And I know many of you were concerned about the Doctrine and Covenants because it's like, ah, I don't get it. There's no story to keep me turning pages. It's just straight doctrine, hence the name. Well, welcome to the letters of Paul. Because these epistles, there's no story there. We already got the story in the book of Acts. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, but to get to these letters, it's straight doctrine, it's theology, it's Paul wrestling with principles of the gospel and trying to explain them in such a way that his audience will understand them and accept them and live them. And we're part of that audience. Okay? So if, you're, if you struggled in the Doctrine and Covenants, that's why we brought in stories from church history to contextualize things. 
This is what was going on at the time period, and this is where they are, and this is why this revelation mattered at the time. We'll do, we'll tr I'll do my best to present some of that historical context for you so that you can see, okay, this one was probably written during Paul's first mission, and he's there in Corinth, and he's thinking about the people in Rome, uh, and so he's writing a letter to them, that kind of thing. Uh, what we'll see is each letter that he writes, this is a really cool difference too. When Peter writes and when James write, for example, they're writing to everybody, the universal church. But when Paul is writing, he's pinpointing his target audience. I'm writing to the saints in Rome. I'm writing to the saints in Corinth or in Ephesus or Galatia. And when we have the eyes to see, we'll start recognizing, wow, there are things going on in Corinth that Paul is addressing that he doesn't address to the Thessalonians because the people in Thessalonica didn't have that problem. They had their own. And so he's going to say some things there that he didn't say in Corinth. Now, I wish that it were easier to follow that history and just put a, a star or a dot somewhere in the book of Acts and say, right here is when Paul wrote Philippians. We can do that generally with some of the epistles. Others, it's really hard to tell exactly where Paul was and when he wrote it. Today, for example, we'll start in the book of Romans, and the, the scholarly assumption is that it was written sometime between oh, 52 to 58 AD. He was likely in, in Corinth as he's writing it, uh, but he's, he's sending this message to the saints in Rome. And the, uh, the other challenge here is they're not organized in chronological order. So you can't really watch the, the narrative flow in the background as Paul writes these, these doctrinal discourses, these letters. Instead, the way they're organized, and I have no idea whoever put together the New Testament canon, I don't know why they chose it this way. Uh, there's a bit of a rhyme and a reason, but I don't care much for the reason. They organized it by length. And I'm like, seriously? Length? Who cares about length? Well, I guess they did. And they put Romans first because it was biggest. And they put Philemon last because it was shortest. And then they ranked them kind of down in, in descending size order. Uh, and put all the other epistles in between. Hebrews, by the way, is a long one, but they weren't totally sure if Paul wrote it. So it's like, well, let's put them next to the Pauline epistles, but after them, uh, it's kind of doing its own thing, okay? So the part of our challenge there is we're not seeing doctrinal development clearly because Romans wasn't written first. And I'll say this about that also. The fact that they are addressed geographically the saints in Ephesus, the saints in Corinth. There's going to be some uniqueness, like I said, specific situations in that, in that place. But there's also going to be a lot of repetition. Uh, when I go around and do firesides, I, there are certain things I want everyone to know. And so I'll do a lot of repetition. Unfortunately, now with, with internet, if it's filmed or posted, then it's like, wait, didn't you already teach this somewhere else? Paul doesn't have to worry about technology <laughs> stealing his own thunder. So there's going to be a lot of repetition of principles that he taught the Romans that he's going to repeat uh, to, the, to the Philippians because they need the same doctrine too. Actually, I'll say this, and then, I, then I'll try to introduce the, the book of Romans for us. Years ago, well, since I started teaching uh, 25 years ago, every time I've taught the second half of the New Testament, I've gone in order because that's how we study it, right? And so sequentially, I start with Romans and work my way through. But... Several years ago at the Institute, I thought, I, I want to try something different this time. I'm, I was hoping that my students had already read the epistles in order back in seminary or on their missions or just in life. And so I told them, I'm going to do a second semester New Testament class that only focuses on the letters of Paul. He deserves all this time. 
And instead of doing it sequentially, Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and so on, I'm going to do it topically. And we're going to tackle a topic, a doctrine that Paul hits repeatedly and bring together all his material on that particular doctrine. Uh, and what I loved about it, well, I mean, the students loved it. It was, a, it was rough for me because I, ba I basically had to reread all the letters of Paul every week to find everything he said on this subject. And then, okay, next week, everything he said on this subject. And then tie it all together and figure out how am I going to present this in a coherent, a coherent way. It was worth the effort, though, because what I loved about it was instead of tackling a doctrine piecemeal, and he gave us a, a puzzle piece there and then a puzzle piece there, that was really the idea. I knew there were puzzle pieces scattered through every letter. Within every envelope was a little piece to the doctrine of grace, for example. And what I wanted to do for my students' sake was present the full picture on the puzzle box. So let's gather out the pieces and start assembling. Paul's understanding of works, for example. And week after week, we did everything Paul could teach us about law. And then the next week about sin, since they broke the law. But then the next week, what about grace to overcome the breaking of the law through sin? Uh, but grace is going to involve faith as well as works. So we'll tackle those two uh, one week after the next. We'll do a week on justification and a week on sanctification. We'll do a week on the atonement, a week on the resurrection, a week on the organization of the church, prophets and apostles, spiritual gifts. There are so many profound doctrines that Paul, nobody does justice to them quite like him. He's absolutely incredible. In some ways, Jesus was so humble not to show off doctrinally, theologically in the Gospels. It's as if he was going to say, you know what? I'm just going to go around doing good. I'm going to tell stories and oh, paint pictures and parables. I'm going to heal and help and lift and love. And then I'll die for everyone's sins and conquer death and rise the third day. How's that for my mission? I'll leave the theologizing for someone else. And nobody better to leave it to than Paul. He's going to be the great theologian of the New Testament, the great doctrinal source to make sense of what Jesus did so we understand why we live the way we do and why it's so important to follow the Savior, Jesus Christ. It's one of the things I absolutely love about this second half of the New Testament. And so I hope that you're ready for it. I hope you're excited for it. I, again, I hope you're willing to pay a price and be patient. Uh, it's going to take a while. There is, in some ways, I'm, I'm, myself, I'm a little bit overwhelmed. Even just this week as I was studying Romans 1 through 6, and next week is the entire rest of the book, 7 through 16. I thought, you're kidding me. Can we not oh, stop and smell the roses? Uh, for your sake, by the way, at least today, because we have so much to talk about the epistles in general, and then to contextualize Romans, and then six power-packed, doctrinally dense chapters to discuss, my challenge to you is at least stick with me for the first three. Don't get me wrong, there's powerful things in four, five, and six as well, but the first three chapters of Romans are absolutely essential, not just to understand the rest of this letter, but to understand them all. I mean, honestly, the book of Romans... It's first because of length, but it could be first because of importance. If you can understand Romans, if you can make it in Rome, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> okay? uh, if you understand Romans, then you have laid the foundation to be able to understand basically everything else that Paul's going to teach. 
and especially the first three chapters. We are going to, I'm going to contextualize things historically to see why Paul's going to teach these particular things in Rome. I hope you'll see their relevance for the rest of the Roman Empire, but also their relevance for you and me in our current context. I absolutely love the book of Romans. It's one of my favorite books anywhere in the standard works. And in divinity schools, they will teach an entire semester course just on the book of Romans. Romans was one of the most pivotal books for St. Augustine to read. And that changed early Christian history. It was the key text for Martin Luther. And so the book of Romans spurred the Protestant Reformation. It was one of the key books for John Wesley. And so the Wesleyan movement, holiness, Methodism, that Joseph Smith was so drawn to to before the Restoration. There's power here. Karl Barth, one of the most famous 20th century theologians, and he grounds his understanding of the gospel in the book of Romans. Uh, Other churches sometimes talk about the canon within the canon. The canon is the entire Bible for them, but they kind of pick and choose favorites. And so they have a canon within the canon, and sometimes a canon within the canon of the canon. And especially among Protestants, it's the New Testament more than the Old, It's the letters of Paul, even more than the gospel of Jesus Christ, theologically. And within the letters of Paul, Romans stands as as the pinnacle. Each letter is beautiful in its own way and teaches powerful things. But again, if you can understand Romans, especially the first three chapters, you're going to be good to go for so much of what we're going to do from this moment on. Got it? You with me? You excited? Okay, then let's contextualize the book of Romans before we dive into chapter 1, verse 1. Writing to the church in Rome was in some ways a surprising choice for Paul because he'd never been there. His first mission, he covers all over the place in Asia Minor. Second mission, he starts heading over to Macedonia and down into Greece. And the third mission covers, goes back to a lot of those same places. But he's never been to Rome until that final voyage that we studied last week at the end of the book of Acts. So instead of writing to a branch of the church that he planted and converts that he taught, these, for the most part, are going to be some strangers. He doesn't know them. He's never been there. And he'll address that issue early on in chapter 1. But he dreams of going. He wants to be there. In some ways, I've taught in the capital of the Jewish faith. Now I need to teach in the capital of the Roman world. And we saw how intent he was on going to Rome. I will not be moved, even though bonds and afflictions abide me. I'm, I'm going there. And we also saw as he journeys closer and closer to Rome, all these disciples, all these saints, brethren and sisters, start coming out of the woodworks to meet him on the journey to the, to the city. We're going to see this excitement on his part to address the issues that are going, there, going on there. And again, part of it, it's the capital of the world. And there are issues about the wickedness of the world, because it's happening all right there in Rome. Think about the challenges of living the gospel in a place like New York City, or Tokyo, or Mexico City, or London. Uh, places where there is a lot of urbanization. You're surrounded by man-made things, and you start thinking that man is pretty impressive. You're a bit removed from nature, as well as nature's God. It's a place of a lot of education, and so the philosophies of men are, are mingling with Scripture or trying to cancel out Scripture. Industrialization, people are trying to get ahead. 
I mean, not industrialization like the Industrial Revolution, but you know what I mean? They're progressing and invention and progress and there's, but you can kind of leave spirituality in the dust. And so these are some of the issues that the Roman saints are wrestling with. Sound familiar? Modern Latter-day Saints? Uh, same kinds of things that we have to deal with ourselves. But then there's this other issue that is unique to Rome. Do you remember, well, a couple of weeks ago in the book of Acts, when we met Aquila and Priscilla, that amazing, that dynamic duo, husband and wife team of fellow tent makers, that Paul worked right alongside them, uh, lived with them, taught uh, alongside them there in Corinth. Well, it said that they had come to Corinth because they'd been driven out of Rome when Emperor Claudius began to persecute the Jews, and specifically the Jewish Christians. There's actually an ancient Roman historian, Suetonius is his name, who wrote a life of Claudius. And even in that ancient history, it described this persecution against these so-called followers of Crestus. And Crestus is Christos. It's Jesus Christ. And so there's this persecution against the, the ancient Christians because they're doing things that aren't very Roman and aren't very Jewish. And so let's get them out of the capital. We're going to clean house. And Aquila and Priscilla were among the Christian Jews or Jewish Christians who have been expelled from the capital. And now they're living in Corinth where Paul meets them. Now, by the time he writes the book of Romans, so it would have had to have been after that first mission at some point. Uh, at the end of the book, he addresses, it's like, hey, everybody, please say hi to, uh, to Aquila and Priscilla for me. I miss them. So tell them hello. Which means, okay, it's after he already met them, historically, but also they're back in Rome. Hmm. The, the reign of Claudius must have ended, and things have settled down a bit in the capital. They're not so worried about the followers of Crestus, and so they come back home. Good news for them, but they come home to a different kind of church. Imagine, in a, imagine you're in a ward in a lot of flux, and you leave to go serve a senior mission, for example. And when you come back, there's so many new members of your ward that you don't know. And in some ways, the center of gravity of your ward has shifted from the old timers that have been there forever, kind of pioneer stock, lifelong members, to this flood of new converts that's moved in. And it's even more than new converts. Imagine new converts from a different country, for example. Let's add a racial issue or an ethnic issue, maybe a linguistic issue or at least a cultural issue. And yes, we all believe in the doctrines of Christ, but ah, you're bringing in some, some different ideas. And how do I feel about that? Now, imagine if you're the Relief Society president or the Elders Quorum president in that ward and you're seeing this division. And how do I... How do I welcome the newcomers without alienating the old, the old stalwarts? And how do I express my appreciation for the depth that the old spiritual veterans are bringing without making the new converts feel like they're second-class citizens? You understand what I'm trying to get across here? This is a real issue we'd see in our day, especially in places where there's a lot of immigration, urban centers, capitals of countries, okay? It's Rome. And what I'm describing there are Jewish Christians coming back home and feeling that when did our church become a Gentile church? And they're not living the law of Moses. We talked about this at length when we covered the Jerusalem conference in chapter 15 of Acts. And you don't have to be circumcised, but here's some certain parts of the law of Moses that 
were not fulfilled in, in, with, with the atonement. Uh, they, were, they were, oh, re, reasserted, reaffirmed. And Christ still wants us to keep those particular portions of the law. Okay, the moral law continues. Maybe the ceremonial doesn't, but there, we're going to have to divide that all out. Those were compromises that they ironed out in, in Jerusalem. But it's, it's a big empire, and news travels fairly slow. And, and how are we going to cope with all of this? Now, with that in mind, I want us to understand two sets of contraries we're going to need to prove today. And with this in mind, I hope we've laid enough of a foundation that we're actually ready to dive into the book of Romans and make sense of it. Okay, So please pay attention to this next part. What's going on in Rome will require us to strike a balance. I just described the, the, the challenge of old timers, pioneer stock, and new converts, and how do I keep everybody feeling like they're fellow citizens with the saints and on equal footing. So part of this challenge is Jew and Gentile. How do I teach them both that God is no respecter of persons, and both are bringing something to the table that the other side needs? Now, the contrary I'm talking about here, you could put it as unity and diversity. That's something Paul's going to have to wrestle with. We want, we're all fellow citizens. We're all saints. But we all, we all do bring something different to the table. And both of those are good. Unity and diversity, great contrary to proof. The other one, along those same lines, is the concept or the contrary of exclusivity and inclusivity. And that's a hard one to, to handle. Exclusivity suggests that God has a chosen people and he's chosen the house of Israel and he's asking them to do certain things and be certain things. But as we've discussed already in our Old Testament year particularly, God chooses a chosen people to go choose everyone else to be chosen as well. That's part of our responsibility, our burden, to make sure the water gets to the end of the rope. Okay? Like we said with Abraham, and Abraham will factor into today's lesson when we get to chapter 4. Abraham is the ultimate poster boy of exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity. Do you remember the Abrahamic covenant where it all begins? In thee and in thy seed, that's very exclusive, you're my people, you're my go-to guy, but in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And that's radically inclusive. I want everyone in. Okay? God is no respecter of persons, inclusivity, even though he chooses a chosen people, exclusivity. That's, how, that's, that's a contrary we've got to prove. And for any of you newcomers that don't know what I'm talking about with proving contraries, this is my favorite quote from Joseph Smith, that by proving contraries, truth is made manifest. And by contraries, we mean paradoxes. We mean opposite attributes or principles, both of which are true, but they have a hard time getting along together. The one tends to drive out the other, and vice versa. But if you can force them to coexist, they each purify their opposite. My favorite go-to contrary is justice and mercy. Okay, And justice, mercy cannot rob justice, but justice will have to bow to mercy when an, intercessory, uh, when an interceder comes in, the Savior. Okay, So think about exclusivity and inclusivity in terms of the Jewish side of my ward, the, the Rome first ward, the, the Jewish side is going to be focused on exclusivity. We're the chosen ones. We've been circumcised. We've kept the law of Moses. And so should you. You should come in through Judaism if you expect to arrive at Christianity. The, the Judaizers we talked about in a previous lesson in Acts. That's kind of their philosophy. And it's the exclusivity side of the spectrum. 
Whereas the Gentiles are coming in with the inclusivity side of the spectrum. That Paul said that we're all welcome to come in, and James said back in Jerusalem that we don't have to be circumcised. We're just as good as you. And so, oh, how do I balance these two? How do I honor both sides without alienating the other one? Okay? Paul is going to walk that fine line oh, delicately and dexter dexterously. He's incredible. The other one is going to be even harder, but it grows out of this first one. And what he's going to try to figure out is how do I strike a balance between what the Jews are focused on, which is the law, and what the Gentiles are focused on, which is grace. And if it's law, then it's all about works of the law. And if it's grace, then it's faith in the grace of Jesus. So you're hearing these contraries start to line up. It's built on the Jew-Gentile contrary. Uh, it's manifest in the exclusivity-inclusivity contrary. It finds an additional layer of manifestation in the law-grace contrary, which then boils down to a faith-works, or I guess switch it, <laughs> works-faith contrary. And in every instance, Paul is going to try to find the celestial center of this straight and narrow path. Since he was shipwrecked last week, and so often we shipwreck because we've leaned too far to one side or the other, then let's use that as our, as our visual aid for a moment, okay? If you've proven contraries well, the ship stays level and it can move forward. It's not leaning too far to one side or the other. It's not listing to port or to starboard, okay? And that's what we're, we're hoping for as we navigate the stormy seas on the good ship Zion. But here's the challenge. The stormy seas affect the level of the ship. And sometimes the wind comes from one side and sometimes the waves come from the other. And so here we are teetering back and forth. And can you picture the, the shipmates running back and forth on either, to either side of the deck to try to keep things balanced? In fact, if you've ever seen a smaller sailing, uh, a sailboat that is really leaning to one side, what does the crew do? They'll grab some ropes and lean off the boat in the opposite direction to try to give it some kind of balance so it doesn't topple into the water on that other extreme. That's what proving contraries is meant to do. If your culture or your society or your, or your personal background and the way you were wired, most of us are wired more for one side of a contrary than the other, it's just how we came. Some of us are more justice and others are more mercy. Some are more law and others are more love. Some are more head and some are more heart. <laughs> Most of us are more male or more female. It's, it's just how it works. But God is trying to prove a contrary to manifest greater truth, okay? Trying to bring these together. So imagine if you're part of a culture or society that is leaning so far in the direction of mercy that it's become so access, uh, accepting there's nothing wrong. We're now in a world of moral relativism, and you can do whatever you want, and if it feels good to you, then it's totally fine. Sound like our, <laughs> our day? Well, then we're going to need people to lean as far as they can in the direction of obedience and justice and works to try to right the ship. If, however, cultural currents have gotten us to the point that we're leaning too far in that direction already, that we're focused on we're more strict, it's, we're obedient, this is how it's supposed to be done, and, it, and you stay to, stick to the line. 
when we start becoming Javert in Les Miserables, and it's all justice, then no wonder you're going to have people running to the other side of the ship and leaning overboard as far as they can to try to introduce mercy back into the conversation. Are, are you with me? This is the concept of what we're trying to do with proving contraries. And you will see Paul honor both sides. The idea is, here is that any virtue taken to the extreme tends to become a vice. And the only way to keep that virtue from becoming its vice is to introduce the opposite virtue. It will act as an anchor or a, a rope to pull you back a little closer to center. Whereas the, but not to overcorrect. Because the moment we overcorrect, then that second virtue has now become its vice. And you need the first virtue to start pulling back. Keep your eye out today as we begin the book of Romans for Paul running back and forth to opposite sides of the ship. Okay? Overall, he's going to be emphasizing the inclusivity part. We've got to let the Gentiles in. Why? Because things are leaning too far in the Jewish direction and you're not letting them in. You're judging them harshly. You're looking down upon them. You're holding them to your standard and you couldn't even keep that standard. So Paul's going to lean mostly on that side of the ship. But in the moment he starts to feel that it overcorrects, he runs back to the middle and says, no, 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 but, but you Jewish, the Jewish side is absolutely important. We've got to hold to the exclusivity even as we open ourselves to the inclusivity. You with me? Same with the other. Because he's teaching primarily the Jewish, a Jewish Christian audience, he wants to make sure that they understand the importance of grace. They have tended to overemphasize law. And so he's going to, in a way, if I can say it this way, overemphasize grace. Not an overemphasis. I mean, if it were in a vacuum, it would be an overemphasis. But it's not in a vacuum. It's a vacuum. It's with these Roman saints that are being too strict to the law. And so he's trying to lean off the, the starboard side of the ship to try to write, to, to level things. The moment he starts to feel it, overcorrect. And Jews are now coming over like, oh, I guess we can just pile it on Jesus then. Is that the case? He's like, no, 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 please don't. <sighs> no, there's a need for law and there's a need for obedience as well. In our current context, we need to lean more toward grace. But if we get it to a point where it's cheap grace and easy salvation, then we've overcorrected and I need to start pulling it back by reintroducing works. In fact, that's why Martin Luther loved this book so much. Because he was living in a time period that was a lot like the original context of Romans. Catholicism in the early 16th century had become imbalanced in the direction of works. And it's only the church that can save you. And you have to have these ordinances. And we'll, you can buy paid indulgences and that'll cover things, but it, sticklers for the law. And Martin Luther himself was a stickler for the law, far more than most people around him. Uh, scrupulosity is a word we use in our day. It's like religious OCD. And, and Martin Luther basically had it. He was a monk who could out-monk the rest of the monastery. And he would punish himself for the least amount of sin. Because I've got to beat this out of me. I've got to suffer my way out of my sinful, my sinful state. I have to become perfect. And he kept failing. Until one day, he's a monk, he's, and he's a professor of theology, so he knows his scriptures, or at least he studies them more, more than most people do. 
It's not just go and repeat the Mass. It's stay in your study and ponder Scripture. And as he's pouring over the book of Romans, all of a sudden it dawns on him, there's grace here. Grace to balance law. Faith to balance works. And what Luther corrects, his followers overcorrect. And now we're living in an age where so much of Protestantism, unfortunately, has not proven the contrary. They've just pushed back against Catholicism's overemphasis on works and countered it with an overemphasis on faith. And they've countered this legalism with a, a focus on grace that becomes an overemphasis. And we'll see Paul wrestle with that concept in the first few chapters of Romans as well. You understand what I'm trying to explain here? Can you picture the good ship Zion? And it's leaning in one side in the days of, in Rome, in the days of Paul. And so he pulls it to the other and says, no, we've got to focus on grace. But then by the 15th, or by the 16th century, Catholicism is leaning back towards works. And so Protestantism comes in to lean back towards grace. Actually, for us Latter-day Saints, it's fascinating because we didn't, the church wasn't restored in a Catholic environment. It was restored in a Protestant environment. The United States was intensely Protestant in the 1800s, and they were leaning in the direction of grace. And so the Book of Mormon does an incredible job of striking a balance, of proving the contraries. The teachings of Joseph Smith do an incredible job of proving the contraries and striking a balance. But just like Luther tried to fix things and then his followers took it too far, the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith tried to fix things and Latter-day Saint culture tended to take things too far. To the point that many of us grew up in a church that focused so much on works and obedience and strictness to law and we're active in the church and these are the rules that we follow. There's an incredible benefit with that. Again, we're talking about two virtues that are on opposite sides. But to try to see that if we've gotten imbalanced towards one, then we're at a place where we're back in the time of Romans and we need a, a re-emphasis on grace. I've got a really good friend that's an evangelical pastor, and we do a lot of interfaith work together. And a few years ago, when Elder Uchtdorf gave an entire conference talk on grace, my friend, who again does a ton of stuff with us Latter-day Saints, so he was watching conference, and he texted me before Elder Uchtdorf was even done with the talk. It's like, hallelujah, you guys are finally preaching grace, the good news. And I laughed. I'm like, you read the Book of Mormon. It's everywhere in the Book of Mormon. Okay, we're getting back to our roots. <laughs> in some ways, we're realizing has church culture gotten imbalanced towards justice and we need to reinfuse mercy into the conversation? Are we too far towards law and need more grace? Too far toward works, need more faith. Not to overcorrect, but to correct. Okay, That's the power of proving contraries. And with that in mind, I can't think of a better book for we Latter-day Saints to study right here, right now, in our current cultural context than the book of Romans. Excited? Does that make sense? I, I hope that we're pretty clear on, on what we're dealing with and why Paul is about to teach us some soul-stretching, mind-blowing doctrine. Okay? Well, let's go. Romans chapter 1 begins, as almost all of his letters do, with some form of salutation. Okay? 
That's how we would start a letter. We kind of introduce ourselves, and especially it's going to be important for him to do that here since he doesn't know these people directly. He was not their missionary. So, how's this for an introduction? Romans 1 verse 1, Paul. <laughs> That's who's writing it. That's my name. So good to meet you. And who am I? A servant of Jesus Christ. I love that he puts himself in servant position first and foremost. I'm not here to use my position to lord over you. No, I have been called by Jesus Christ to serve him and therefore to serve his saints. The first thing you need to know beyond my name is that I'm a servant of Jesus Christ and called to be an apostle. It's amazing that he, would, he uses his title here. He's establishing his own authority. But remember, he does it after the fact, after he establishes his servitude. Okay, Let him that is chief among you be servant of all. He's doing that in the proper order. He says next, separated unto the gospel of God. And for separated, we would say set apart. I'm going to be different. I'm, I'm not just your average, ordinary, everyday tent maker. I'm here to extend the tent of Zion. And so I've been separated for that purpose and separated unto the gospel of God. Now, have we ever heard that phrase? We always hear gospel of Christ, but gospel of God? Hmm. In some ways, it's, that's more accurate. Jesus always gave the Father the credit. He kept saying, I'm only doing the things my Father did. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Philip. And so, like Father, like Son. Even in premortality, it's not that Jesus presented one plan and, and Lucifer presented the other. No, the Father presented his plan. This is the gospel of God. And my question is not, what shall I do? It's merely, whom shall I send? Lucifer had to come up with an entirely different plan to try to get all of us to do things his way. But no, this was God's way from the very start. It was because of God's kindness, the good news that God promised us all that we can exercise faith in the Savior that the Father sent. It's because of God's goodness that in the gospel of God, we can repent of our sins through Christ to become more like the Father and return to Him. It's because of the gospel of God that He offers baptism as a covenant to enter into an eternal relationship with Him. And it's because of the goodness of God that He sends the Spirit to be our comforter and to be our guide back home. This, all of this, is the gospel of God. And Paul has been called to preach it. Now, this isn't new what he's doing. He goes on and says of this gospel, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. So, especially you Jewish converts who have seen the fulfillment of your messianic prophecies in Jesus Christ himself, then yes, this godly gospel is God's way of keeping his word well, his word, yes, Jesus was that word made flesh. And so we can trust in that. Every promise from every prophet throughout our holy scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, finds its fulfillment in him. That's what he says next. These promises concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's Christ, the fulfillment of every messianic prophecy. The word of God made flesh dwelling among us which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. There's the condescension. There's the incarnation. He became merely mortal. He became human and became the seed of David. And, the other side, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. 
So there we see the other side. If seed of David describes the mortal side of Jesus, the human side, then son of God describes the divine side of Jesus. He is his own proving of contraries. The, the human and the divine, the, the intimate and the infinite, and he encompasses the whole spectrum. Now, I love that we would recognize his humanity because of this birth in Bethlehem, seed of David right there in the manger. But if we're going to recognize his divine side, that he kind of kept under wraps by and large, oh, a miracle here, uh, a raising of the dead there. But if you really want the ultimate evidence that this is God's own son, then it's his own resurrection that is exhibit A. The prime example of the power of God. He was declared to be the son of God with power. And what was that power? Power over sin and death. The two great enemies that were keeping us from God. The two enemies that the gospel of God promised that he would conquer by sending his son. The res can you see why Peter and Paul teach resurrection every chance they can? That was the, the, the climax of the first discussion they always taught throughout the book of Acts. We are witnesses of the resurrection because that resurrection is the evidence that Jesus really is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And his crucifixion did not disqualify him. He's not cursed because he was hung on the cross. No, that, was, that crown of thorns was a crown of glory. And he ascended from the cross with healing in his wings. Okay? That is his power. But also notice, it's the power of holiness. Power according to the spirit of holiness. This is Rome. There's evidence of power everywhere you look. Caesar's palace is just up the hill. The, the, part, the pantheon uh, is, is there giving, paying homage to all the, the gods of Rome. There is wealth here. There is prestige there. There, here, there, is, there are Roman generals here vying for power. And so Paul says to these Romans, you want to see power, then see the power that comes through holiness. And there's no better place to see it than in Jesus Christ himself. With that in mind, verse 5, Paul, having introduced himself, starts to explain why he's writing. Verse 5, by whom, so it's through Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Now, there's a JST to that that speaks of through obedience and faith in his name to preach the gospel among all nations. And what we're getting at here is this is why I'm writing. This is who I am, but this is what I've been called to do. I'm, an, I'm a servant of Christ. I'm his apostle, which means someone who is sent by him. And I've been sent to you because of his grace and apostleship. I love the combination of that, by the way. Grace is the divine power. Apostleship is the divine authority. And he has both. He owes them both to Jesus. Do you remember this line at, in the, I think it's in Moroni, when Mormon writes the saints of his day and says, the only reason I'm permitted to write unto you is because of the gift of my calling from Christ. I love that. My calling is a gift. It gives me permission to do certain things. And the Lord is allowing me to speak to you, to write to you. That's what Paul is saying. I have grace and apostleship. Both of those are gifts from Christ. I meant to use them through obedience, 
so that I can preach faith in his name. I'm supposed to share the gospel to all nations, and that includes the Gentile ones, okay? So I'm writing to all of you here in Rome. He goes on, speaking of this audience, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. So I'm writing to all nations, but I'm especially writing to you, you chosen ones, the called of Christ, to all that be in Rome, and then this beautiful description of the people he hasn't even met yet. Beloved of God, called to be saints. And what does he extend to them? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's his opening salutation to the Christians gathered in Rome. You are beloved. In the Book of Mormon, nobody calls them my beloved brethren as much as Nephi and Jacob. And here's Paul describing this audience of strangers as my beloved. In fact, more than mine, God's beloved of God. But also, that's more on the mercy side, the grace side. But how about the work side, the obedience side, the justice side? You're called to be saints. He's expecting you to live up to divine expectations. He wants you to be holy because that's what a saint is, a holy one. So yes, he loves you. And yes, he expects great things of you. And so what am I offering you? The Lord's grace and the Lord's peace. You're going to need his grace <laughs> to become saints. And you're going to need his peace to know that he's patient through the process. Are, are you starting to sense him proving the contraries and striking the proper balance? You're loved and called to be better than you. You're loved as you are and called to be better than you are. He will give you grace to do this and peace throughout the whole process. With that, verse 8, For I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And what a glorious reputation for these Roman saints to have. The whole world knows about you guys. Now, is it because of your location? Well, that might be part of it. There, there was something that spread throughout the conference center when President uh, Monson said, we're going to build a temple in Rome. And ooh, there's something about that city. Uh, the capital of the Roman Empire. And as word spreads out from Rome, it's the epicenter of everything. And so, well, there's Christians there? There's a, a church there? Okay. Uh, what, what, what's the news from, from the capital city? So it might be location, location, location. Then again, it might simply be the depth of their faith. To live the gospel in a place like that, to be there, the, the epicenter of opposition as well, of anti-Christian persecution. Uh, we know the Colosseum stands in Rome to this day. And to think of it as a place of not just gladiators, but Christians as the victims being thrown to the lions. That's a tough place to be a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Ancient Day Saints. But the fact you're pulling it off there is sending ripples of reassurance throughout the rest of the church. Thank you, Paul is saying to them. Your faith is world-renowned. It honestly makes me wonder, what are we known for? as Latter-day Saints. I'm sure the world looks at us as, oh yeah, that's that church of family values. 
Oh, there's those arch-conservative family values. Some like them, some don't. Uh, some see the, uh, the Latter-day Saints as, oh, those are the ones that are like riding, pedaling around their bikes. they knocking on doors. They're always sharing their, their message. Okay, that's not a bad reputation. Sometimes we're known for being service-oriented. That's a great reputation, right? Mormons helping hands is the, the old uh, vests that people would wear when they're helping after a, a natural disaster somewhere. These are great parts of, of our reputation. But can you imagine if the world, first and foremost, the moment they thought of a Latter-day Saint, they thought about faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, those Latter-day Saints, they love Jesus. They try to pattern their lives after him. And not in some over-anxious, perfectionistic way, but just a steady deep, wholehearted faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Makes me want to have more Latter-day Saint neighbors and friends. The Roman saints were like that. The Latter-day Saints, I hope we can become that. In verse 9, Paul says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. And we've seen so much evidence of that throughout the book of Acts. Again, I'm glad we met the man before we started studying the message. And any time we get bogged down in the message, and it's like, ah, his syntax isn't smooth, and I don't understand what he's saying. Deal with it, my friends. This guy deserves our best effort. Think back to every way he has served God with the Spirit. Think about every person he healed and every devil he, he cast out. Think about the, the boy he raised from the dead and every divine jailbreak. Think about his power to face any opposition and to give God all his heart, might, mind, and strength. This is a man who serves with the Spirit. The least I can do is invite the Spirit to help me make sense of his sentences. He tells us, without ceasing, I make mention of you, always, in my prayers. Can you picture that? To have an apostle that is constantly praying for us, he gets more specific next, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. That's what I dream of more than anything. I want to come to Rome. I want to speak to the Caesars themselves. I want to preach there, the center of everything. Now there's a JST to this that makes this even more powerful, more personal. In the JST it says, making request of you. So he's not just praying to God, please let me go to Rome. No, he's making a request of the Roman saints. And here's what he's asking. To remember me in your prayers, I now write unto you that ye will ask him in faith that if by any means at length I may serve you with my labors and may have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. To me, that is an inspired alteration. From the King James, oh, I'm praying to God that he'll let me come. From the JST, I'm asking you to pray to God for him to let me come because I want to offer you my all. You see the first part of that verse? I am praying for you. Second part, will you please pray for me? This is leadership and laity becoming one Mutual support, mutual edification. I know the prophets and apostles pray for us. Do we pray for them? Then in verse 11, 
for I long to see you. This is deep feeling from a man who felt things deeply. Okay, I long for this. And why? Oh, so I can walk around the, the streets of Rome? No, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift. It's the whole reason God has given me any. For me to be able to unkink the hose, get the water to the end of the row, share my spiritual gifts. They're not meant to stay with me. They're gifts after all. And it's a gift that keeps on giving. To the end ye may be established. I love that. That's what spiritual gifts are for to ground people in the gospel, to be such a blessing that they can, they can sink roots deeper and deeper into gospel soil. So I want you to be established. So I want to come so I can share my spiritual gifts. That is, and now he clarifies it, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. It's not just me coming with my gifts to bless and establish you. I know you have spiritual gifts. And I want to come so that you can bless me with them. Paul's going to teach at length on spiritual gifts in his letter to the Corinthians. We see it taught clearly in the Doctrine and Covenants section 46. And in all of these places, we learn two major principles. Number one, everyone has spiritual gifts. And number two, we don't have them all individually. Put one and two together and what do we have? The realization that we need each other. Because you have gifts that I don't have, and I have gifts that you don't. So comfort together, mutual faith. Now we are all coming together as a family, and that's the important thing. In verse 13, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, in other words, if something held me back, that I might have some fruit among you also even as among other Gentiles. I mean, I've had missionary success everywhere I've gone. I've been to so many places, Ephesus and Thessalonica and Athens even, but never to Rome. And I've, I keep trying. Oftentimes I've purposed. I just can't get there. But once I do, man, I just want fruit to grow. I'll do anything I, that God asks me to, to weed the garden, <laughs> to help dig and dung and weed and water. I'm trying to bring forth fruit. And here's why. And the way he says this is so powerful. I am a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. And he's not saying something mean by the word barbarian. In the Greek, that just means a non-Greek speaker. Remember we met those wonderful barbarians last week that were there when he crash-landed on Malta? And they were shocked and awed when they, he saw, they saw him with a viper hanging from his hand, and yet he wasn't harmed. Oh, Greeks, barbarians, he could say Jew, Gentile. This is the whole world. In fact, not just different languages and different cultures. He goes on, both to the wise and to the unwise. So how much you know, how little you know, it doesn't matter. I owe everybody. I'm a debtor to them all. Now, this idea of debt, he explains in the final line. So as much as, in, as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. And it's that last line that helps us understand the debt that Paul feels obliged to pay. There's something about, you see, the idea of a debt is I owe you something. And so I have an obligation to repay you. That's what a debtor is. The debtor is, in some ways, captive to the creditor. And notice, obviously, there's, we often come away with a sense of debt toward God. 
all that he's done for me. But God isn't asking us to repay him. <laughs> I'm good. It's fine. He's asking us to pay it forward. And when you are in the service of your fellow beings, you are in the service of your God. When you've done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. I don't need you to do anything for me. I want you to do everything for others. It's what you owe them. You see, I have given you the gospel, Paul, and you owe it to the rest of the world. Jew, Gentile, Greek, barbarian, wise, lowly. You owe them a chance to accept it as well. This is the exclusivity in pursuit of inclusivity. I only chose you, Abraham, to make sure that every family on earth would be blessed with the blessings that I've granted to you. The only reason God has given us the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to have an organized way to spread it through the entire world. If we're not engaged fully, serving in spirit, to gather Israel on both sides of the veil, then, we're, then we ought to be in debtor's prison. Because it's a gift we owe the world. Because it's the only reason God gave it to us. To make sure it get out to everyone else. You understand that? This is, this is why Paul is such a zealous missionary from the moment he's converted on the road to Damascus. It's, now it's the road to Rome, and I'm going. He says this in verse 16, and I love, this is a verse that most of us love. If you know anything from Romans 1, this is probably the verse. And it's in this context of, I, I've got to teach all nations. I owe it to them. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. How could I be? It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Yes, to the Jew first, I'm honoring that, chosen, exclusivity, but also to the Greek, the inclusivity, the spreading it out to other people. Every member of this, <laughs> this Rome First Ward is an important child of God. And whether you're Jewish or Greek, please come in and feast at the table of the Lord with the gospel of Christ set before you because it's the power of God unto salvation. It's so much more than a set of doctrines that we're going to try to intellectually understand. Now, it's power. And we see that power manifest every time we fully live into the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of faith in him that gives us hope and perspective. It's the power of repentance to wash away our sins. It's the power of a covenant relationship. The gospel of Jesus Christ, how could I be ashamed of that? when it gives that much power to anyone who plugs into it. You understand? Now remember, this is Rome. And if it's one thing, it's funny to see newcomers in New York City. And you can always spot them, right? Because their head is up and their jaw is down. <laughs> and they're just so amazed by the sheer size and magnitude of it all. These skyscrapers that, that reach the heavens and people from all the world just bustling in all around you. A maze of subway tunnels beneath. Uh, New York City is a sight to behold. And imagine being in ancient Rome, overawed by everything around you. Palaces and pillars and temples and amphitheaters and hippodromes and coliseums and... 
it's still pretty breathtaking. And imagine it in the ancient world, in all of its glory. Have you ever been to a place where you feel like you don't really fit? And you're dealing with imposter syndrome, or everyone else here is so much smarter than I am, or more sure of themselves and confident and worldly wise. And do we start feeling less and less? And are we more and more ashamed of this, these beliefs that we hold? It seems that more people fall away from the faith in urban centers than rural ones. They're cut off from God's creation, and now I'm surrounded by a worldly, a man-made creation, and whoa, mankind's pretty incredible. No, I don't care. Right here in Rome, right here in the center of it all, I'm not ashamed. I'll preach to Felix and to Festus and to Agrippa and Caesar. Let me, let me at him. I'm not ashamed of any of this. And if there's a part of us that can lay hold of Paul's confidence, and it's more than confidence, it's downright faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's what makes him bold. It's what makes him immovable and unshaken and unapologetically grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've got to share it. Nothing can hold me back. That's the sense you get here. It's actually the sense that we saw last week at the very end. Do you remember in Acts 28, last chapter, as Paul is making his, his way to Rome? This is a dream come true for him. We just saw this in the letter. I've been asking for this. These prayers have finally been answered. They want me to come, and the Lord's going to let me. And he gets shipwrecked, and then he gets to the Italian mainland, but he's at Puteoli, and then he works his way to the three or to uh, API Forum, and then he gets to the three taverns. He's getting closer and closer, and saints are coming out, the, out of the woodworks. This is the guy that wrote that letter. The guy that blew our minds with his doctrinal discourse, and I just want to meet him. I want to refresh him with our mutual faith. I know he's going to refresh mine. Uh, they, he preaches everywhere that he can go, and, and he's bold every step of the way. That's what we saw at the end of last week. Two verses just to remind us. Acts 28, 22. As these Jews come to meet him in Rome, they say something interesting to him. I mean, we're curious to learn more about Christianity, this way that you talk about. For as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Ooh, can you see why certain Roman saints might feel ashamed of the gospel of Christ? Our faith is known throughout the empire among fellow saints. And they're amazed that we could actually have it. Why? Because of what we're up against. That our sect, and that's what, what they've labeled us, is spoken against everywhere. It's tough to be a, a, an ancient day saint there. But do not be ashamed, Paul says. And then he sets the example. The other verse was Acts 28, verse 31. Very last verse in the entire book of Acts. This is what Luke wants to be ringing in our ears as we continue to spread the gospel. Paul says he's there in Rome preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. That's the confidence he's trying to instill in his readers, both ancient and modern. It took some courage at first 
to stand up for the gospel of Jesus Christ when I was oh, a high school kid on the football team and saying no to the alcohol or the immorality or the parties or the other influences. And it was hard, but only at first. And once my friends knew that I was not ashamed of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ, they respected me for it. I got interesting backup when they're like, oh, Halverson, don't, don't even, can you not talk that way about around him? He doesn't like it. Or uh, Halverson, going to be a rager party this weekend. Don't come. Believe me, you, you shouldn't be there. I'm like, oh, thanks. You probably shouldn't either. Uh, they, they had my back. If we just stand up for what we know to be true. I was so grateful in divinity school to be known as a Latter-day Saint. And <laughs> bold, confident. I don't, it's the Bible Belt. I don't care what people say about me. I'd love to hear so I can try to counter that impression with something more Christ-like. My friends, we... <laughs> there was actually a recent study done of religious people around the country and trying to get perspectives on various faiths. And they asked, how do you feel about this faith? And how do you feel about that faith? And how do you feel about the other? Latter-day Saints were the group that loved everyone else more than any other religious group. We had positive views of pretty much every other faith group, including atheists. It's like, no, we're good. We, we want to be good neighbors. But we had the low, we came out last, or close to last, in how everybody felt about us. In other words, we're the one that loves everyone else, but is hated by everyone else. Well, that's an oversimplification, but that's what the data suggests. Paul's not worried about that. I cannot be moved. I cannot be shaken from my confidence in Christ, my faith in him, my boldness in the gospel, because I'm not ashamed. Now, what gave him that confidence? Well, he knew the truth of what he taught. And what's he teaching? Verse 17 ought to be just as famous in our minds as verse 16. This is what Paul was so confident in. Verse 17, for therein, and he had just referred to the gospel of Christ, the power of God unto salvation, and it's there, it's therein that we find the righteousness of God. Okay? That's, it's through the gospel. Remember, it was the gospel of God at the beginning of this chapter. So it's through the gospel of Christ that we see the righteousness of God. Let's read the whole verse. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Or as the JST says, through faith on his name. As it is written, and now Paul's going to quote Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Now that is a verse that demands our full attention. What Paul is describing here, this is the crux of the matter. This is the foundation stone of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is God's way of revealing his righteousness from faith to faith. Now, we're going to see several places in the book of Romans where God is trying to manifest himself. He's trying to let his children know what he's really like. And the best way to do it is to send his son as that word made flesh. So that if we see the son, we've seen the father and know what he's like. That's life eternal, to know them in that way. And so how does... God manifest his righteousness? Well, by revealing the gospel of Jesus Christ, which works from faith to faith. Since 
That's how we're supposed to live. The just shall live by faith. Now, I'll come right back to that quote from Habakkuk. But let's settle into a, for a moment about that concept of faith to faith. Now, Elder Bednar is amazing when it comes to Scripture. He felt some pressure to follow in Elder Maxwell's footsteps and was kind of a Maxwellian protege himself. And I love Elder Bednar's approach to Scripture. In a talk that he didn't give in conference, it was a talk he actually gave to religious educators. So I was there when he taught this, and I, it was riveting. I'd never seen it along these lines, but he explained faith as something cyclical, like an ascending staircase. And there's a past dimension and a present dimension and a future dimension within faith. And then he brought in scriptural backup for every, every uh, element. For example, he's talked about faith being evidence of things not seen. Now, somewhere in the past, there was something I didn't see, something I didn't understand, a situation I was in. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to get out of this. And yet God came through for me. And that left me with evidence of that thing I had not seen. That evidence is a past-facing faith, like God came through for me. We have proved him in days that are past, as we sing in the hymns. So that's the past. But now that I know that about God, with all that evidence, then it propels me into action in the present. For that, Elder Bednar quoted the lectures on faith that describes faith as the principle of action in every intelligent being. So if I've got evidence in the past that, wow, when I follow God, he always follows through with me. I have evidence of that. And so, of course, I'm going to follow God in the present. Of course, I'm going to act on his invitations. I'm going to try to honor his will. And in fact, if that's past and present, the next is another definition of faith, that it's the assurance of things hoped for. And that sounds like the future to me. It's something I hope for. It hasn't happened yet. It's off on the horizon, though. Well, just over the horizon. I can't see it. But I have this assurance that I'll get there that the Lord will come through for me. In fact, how do I have that assurance for the future? Because I have evidence of God's work in the past. It's what's propelling me to work toward that future in the present, knowing that that hope will eventually be fulfilled in my future. And with that new fulfillment, that assurance now becomes new evidence for another round of the spiral staircase. And I can continue to climb unto Christ. I can progress. Remember the phrase, from grace to grace, that we studied? Well, here it's from faith to faith. And I was, I was at this level of faith, but God rewarded it. And I had evidence which led to action, which propelled assurance. And when that was fulfilled, I was at a higher level of faith. But I, I had more evidence and more action and more assurance. And I just kept growing up in God. That's how you do it. That's how we progress line upon line and precept upon precept. It's how we progress from grace to grace until we receive a fullness. It's the goodness of God in sharing his gospel that makes that upward climb possible. That's how righteous God is. That he wants us, he provides a way whereby we can become as righteous as he it's the gift of his son. It's faith to faith. Because as it's written, 
The just shall live by faith. Now, if you want to name an, an obscure Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk is high on the list. But since Paul's a genius and was raised a Pharisee, he knows Habakkuk inside and out. Habakkuk is actually one of the few places in Scripture, in the Old Testament, I should say, where the word faith appears. Now, faith runs throughout the Old Testament, but it's hardly ever translated as faith in the King James Bible. But this is one of them. The just shall live by faith. Now, the fact that Paul quotes it instead of just saying it means he's grounding this concept in an, an Old Testament understanding of faith, which is closer to faithfulness. It's closer to a, an attitude of trust, a lifestyle of confidence in your covenant companion. You understand what I'm getting at? I, I, sadly, I think we have watered down, we have diluted the, the definition of faith until it's almost laughable. And sadly, our enemies laugh at us and call faith something like, oh, a belief in the impossible. Uh, faith is just uh, a, a kind way of saying gullible. And they'll believe anything, even the most random, impossible, irrational kinds of things. No, faith is not naivete. Faith is based in evidence, right? Past facing. It's, it progresses through assurance. Actually, one of my favorite phrases from the war chapters in the Book of Mormon is when Captain Moroni says that we were visited with assurances. It's all the evidence we need. Of course God is going to deliver us from our, our trials. He's proven himself. In fact, remember earlier when we talked about in the Greek... Because now Paul is taking a Hebrew concept and Christianizing it, taking an Old Testament verse and bringing it into our New Testament. And the root word for the Greek word for faith is the Greek word for persuasion. I am fully persuaded by what God has already done in my life. I'm not believing in something impossible with no basis in reality. No, it's based in personal experience. And because God has proven himself, because he has visited me with assurances, I'm persuaded that he's as good as his word. I'm persuaded to stay in my relationship with him, my covenant connection. In fact, that confidence in Christ that faith is what's driving me to repent. It's what makes me want to change my behavior, to be even more faithful, truer to Him. It's what makes me want to make a covenant with Him. Full immersion in the life of Christ. To live worthy of the constant companionship of His Spirit, which is yet more evidence and reassurance that I've, that I've connected myself to the right companion. Do you understand? I fear that in our day, we're so skeptical that faith has become such a wishy-washy word as if it was just believing in invisible things. And oh, you mean the fairy tale of faith? I've actually asked my students sometimes, what do I mean when I say I believe in myself? Am I doubting my own existence when I say that? I laugh. And the technical term is ontology. Ontology is the study of being, of existence. 
And so when I say, when I say I believe in myself, am I making an ontological statement? <laughs> or is it more, I have confidence that I can do this. I've had experience in the past and I've trained for this and I, I believe in myself. Or when I say I believe in you, is that an ontological statement? No, I really do think you exist. Come here so I can pinch you. No, I believe in you means I trust. I'm persuaded that you're going to be able to pull this off. Well, if I believe in myself and I believe in you are not ontological statements, then why have we reduced to ontology the statement, I believe in God or I believe in Christ? To say I believe in God, I, that's so far beyond, I, I hope he exists. He has made that abundantly clear to me experientially, relationally. And as a result, he has fully persuaded me to completely trust my life to him. That's my faith in him. And to live by that faith, climbing this, ascending the spiral staircase, progressing from faith to faith, and God coming through every time, proving himself, reassuring me, persuading me of his power and his holiness and his goodness and his grace. That's how I live my life. That's how we all must. It's trusting in God's righteousness as made manifest through his son. We're going to see Paul deal with this at length throughout Romans and many other letters as well. God makes his intentions clear by sending his son. For God so loved the world Jesus told Nicodemus that he gave his only begotten son not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Paul is expanding on that exact concept. God is good. He loves his children. He sent his son as proof of that to make manifest, to make obvious his own righteousness, to let you know, I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm not going to let you fail. Of course I'll honor your agency, but will you please honor mine? Because I am fully invested in your salvation. I am able to make you holy, Jesus says in the New Testament. Or excuse me, in the, in the Doctrine and Covenants. The Lord is able to do his own work, Nephi promises us in the Book of Mormon. This is the life of faith, and it changes everything. In some ways, it takes the pressure of our perfectionism off our backs. And that's a crushing burden. It was for Martin Luther. Like I said before, a man of such scrupulosity, religious OCD, it's, I have to be perfect and I'm not getting closer. I keep punishing myself for my sins, but I, I can't beat myself hard enough to beat the natural man out of me. And so one day when he was reading Romans chapter 1, and got to verse 17. It's as if the Spirit parted the veil for him. And I do give the Spirit credit for this moment in Luther's life. Our own prophets and apostles have credited the reformers with inspiration from heaven. And that the reformation laid the groundwork for the restoration. So this is a moment of divine illumination when Luther trapped in this works righteousness, toxic perfectionism, I'll never measure up. 
read that verse and then said this about his experience. When by the Spirit of God I understood those words, that's the words we just read, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Romans, with a little hint from Habakkuk, transported Martin Luther from hell to heaven, from a self-imposed hell, thinking he had to be perfect on his own, to a heaven of reassurance of the goodness and grace of God. All that in one, in one little verse, huh? It's actually interesting if you think of it this way. And this is often how I'll teach it to my students. I'll take that six-word phrase, the just shall live by faith, and break it up into two-word phrases. The just, there's our subject, shall live, there's our verb, by faith, there's our adverbial clause. Now, how are we supposed to live? Well, by faith. Well, the just do anyway. But then I think, okay, let's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Yoda... <laughs> to rephrase this. And that's why I put them, these three phrases into two, into three, these phrases into three different chunks. Okay? Kind of print them out and stick them on the board. Okay, now let's rearrange to what sounds like Yoda. How would Yoda say this? And he'd probably say, the just by faith shall live. And that's the same thing, right? Uh, it's still living by faith, and it's still the just who are doing it. We're just rearranging it, so it's now the just by faith, shall live. Now, am I just a Star Wars fan? Well, yes, but that's not why I'm putting it that way. By putting faith in the middle, I now have a chance to choose, am I leaning it more in the direction of the just, or leaning it more in the direction of just life and how we live? And that's important for this reason. I worry that as Latter-day Saints, we're like the Jewish Christians in Rome. We're like the Catholics of the early 16th century. And we are beating ourselves up with this scrupulosity and toxic perfectionism, and am I active enough? That's a very Latter-day Saint term, activity. And that's movement and motion and effort and engagement. It's one of our spiritual gifts and one of our spiritual curses. It's a virtue that we sometimes allow to go to an extreme which is a vice. I think we sometimes beat ourselves up with Nephi's famous phrase, after all we can do. I mean, hopefully we quote the whole thing. It is by grace that we are saved, but whoa, 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 but careful. Don't let it go to your head. Only after all we can do. And so we picture, our, picture ourselves oh, pedaling this bike up this mammoth hill until we collapse and there we are with our face in the gravel, chest heaving, I can't go another step. And when Jesus comes and makes sure that's the case, that we really are on death's doorstep, and you really have done all that you can do. Okay, I'll, I guess I'll step in now. And you were so close. I mean, you really couldn't do it on your own? Pathetic. Let me give you a little nudge. And that'll get you over the, over the, over the hump. Is, is that how we live the gospel? Because that doesn't sound like good news to me. And that's what gospel is supposed to mean. 
No, it is by grace that we are saved. Now, are there things that we must do? Yes, and Paul's going to clarify that. But even the way Nephi said it, it's a bummer he put all we can do at the very end, because that's the last phrase that we're left ringing in our ears. I haven't done all. There's more I can do. What more can I do with my vineyard? Dang it, always something. So we're running ourselves ragged. It's as if, and again, back to the Habakkuk phrase in Yoda's version. The just by faith shall live. Now, what if I were to grant you, you're my students now, I've got these phrases on the board. We've Yodaized them and I said, okay, I'm going to give you one comma or one pause. I want you to separate these three phrases into two different groups. One phrase on one side and two phrases on the other. That's why I needed to have faith in the middle. Which side are you going to put it on? How does this sound? How does this feel to you? What if I said, the just, comma, pause. Picture that person in your mind. Someone who is just. It's Javert. They're absolutely right square with the law. They've done all that they can do. The just, by faith shall live. In some ways, it's like, why do they even need faith? They pulled it off. They're like, perfect. Well, yeah, but they're still waiting for God to come and give them what he promised them. And so I guess we have to have faith for that. I mean, I guess it's going to be grace that we're saved. He finally deigns to lower himself and, and let us in. He's, somebody's got to unlock the door. Okay? I mean, I got here on my own. All I could do. But he's got to open it. So, yeah, that's a gracious act for him. Uh, so, so, yeah, I'm just... But I will live by that faith that he's going to come through as he promised. I mean, I, I deserve it, don't I? Mm, careful. What if, on the other hand, I... How does this sound? How does this feel to you? I only get one pause. <laughs> Let me postpone it. And say, the just by faith, comma, pause. Who are you picturing? Shall live. What does it mean to be the just by faith? Because if I'm just, do I even need faith? Well, you're not just. (laughs) None of us are. What's all we can do? Ask the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. They said all we could do was repent. All we could do was realize that there's not much we can do. And I wished I could do more, but I'm incapable and unworthy, and I just need help. I need divine grace. But I have faith in a gracious God who offers it to me. I have a faith in a Christ who isn't waiting for me to collapse on my bicycle. No, it's a bicycle built for two, and he's behind me, probably pedaling faster than I am. Sometimes it does feel like I'm coasting uphill, which is, I know, impossible. Wow, he really must be (laughs) pushing it. You understand what it is like to be the just by faith? Or, as he's describing, it's the righteousness of God that is being revealed? Wait a minute, I thought I was supposed to reveal my righteousness. Isn't that what God's demanding of me? Isn't that what the law requires? For me to be just, I have to prove my righteousness. No, no, no. It's the righteousness of God that he's revealing. And if you'll have faith, in that and faith to faith as you're progressing you're putting them in effort 
There's works to ascend the spiral. We'll talk about their place in just a moment. But this is how we live. We live by that faith. And it's, it's by that faith that we ever have the chance to even hope to become more just than we are. In fact, let me say this with the help of Lehi from the Book of Mormon. And I got to be careful with this because, again, if we're, all, if we're already leaning, if we're tipping towards easy grace, and I give you this verse, then it's over. We've collapsed. But if you're leaning towards works righteousness, then this verse might actually help right the ship. And it's what Lehi said to his son, Jacob. And Jacob reminds me a lot of Martin Luther. Jacob reminds me a lot of us if we struggle with scrupulosity and toxic perfectionism. Nobody uses the word anxiety in the scriptures more often than Jacob does. And it's anxiety over his own standing before God. It's his anxiety of, am I a good enough leader of the people? And it's anxiety over, am I going to be able to teach them well enough that it'll make a difference in their lives? He's super stressed about everything. And what does Lehi say to him? Now, he wouldn't dare say this to Laman or Lemuel. Okay, because Laman and Lemuel are off on the free ride. They put it on Jesus' tab. Hallelujah. So, no, I'm not going to tell them that. I'm going to tell them to arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. Okay, repent of your sins, punks. But to Jacob, my super sensitive son, this is what I'll say. 2 Nephi 2, verse 3, I know that thou art redeemed. Son, you're saved. You've made it. Even though you haven't, been, you haven't died and been judged yet, it's okay, son. You're redeemed. And here's why. Because you can picture Jacob going, but I haven't, and I'm not perfect, and it's not. <sighs> son, I know that thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. But, but that, that's not fair. How, how can he? I have to be righteous, don't I? I'm the one that's got to pull it off. I've got, he said it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Be therefore perfect. Oh, son, my sweet boy. Oh, wait a few centuries and Moroni will put it better. He will say that you must be perfected in Christ. It's the only way we'll get there. As I said at the end of Moroni a couple of years ago, that is the kindest past participle in all the grammar of God. To be perfected in him. He's the one that brings perfection to the companionship. That's his part of the covenant. What are we bringing? A humble faith in him. And a desire to stay within that relationship. Whatever he asks. Do you understand how that changes our attitude? Hopefully it doesn't weaken our actions or our activity. But it purifies the motives behind them. It takes away the anxiety and the pressure. And now I simply have confidence in Christ. Despite my weakness. Despite my imperfection. I'm married to perfection. As long as I stay in the marriage. Then I can be perfected in him. You understand this? I, again, I'm blown away by Lehi's wisdom in telling Jacob that, but not the other sons. Jacob needs to know that. So it's his righteousness. In some ways, and we'll see this a little bit later, 
what Jacob says about being saved is so similar to what Nephi says about it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. But in my opinion, Jacob says it better. Okay, hold out for that. I'll explain that later on. Okay, it's amazing to see Jacob's version of what Nephi says. And Jacob said it first. I really think Nephi was quoting Jacob, but didn't do as good a job. The problem is Nephi's phrasing is more memorable than Jacob's. Does that excite you to see them side by side? We'll get there, okay? But for here, how are we going to live? I'm not just yet, so I can't yet live by faith. Oh, you'll, you'll never get there then. You've got to be just by faith. And by having faith in the righteousness of God, and to be in that connection, that covenant relationship with Him, then now you can be just by faith. And you can live that way. It's the best way to live. Now, does that mean that I'm off the hook? That I can now coast? Remember, we're back on our ship. We were leaning too far in the direction of works. And so the Roman saints needed to be pulled away from law toward grace. But are we now all going to run to that opposite side of the ship and just overcorrect and then topple into that side instead of the first? I hope not. And Paul hopes not also. He's, he knows how, what a delicate balance it is. So in moving to, the, the, to this side, he's not saying overcorrect. This is what he says in verse 18 and 19. Okay? Faith is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. So listen up. For the wrath of God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. We, we were just talking about the righteousness of God. Can we go back to verse 17? I like that one better. Oh, <laughs> I knew you would. But uh, if you like it so much that you, that you throw justice overboard then we're just going to fall off the boat on, in the direction of mercy. So yes, righteousness of God, verse 17. Wrath of God, verse 18. Side by side, Paul is proving contraries. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Or as the JST says it, who love not the truth but remain in unrighteousness. So God does take righteousness seriously. Faith is not an excuse to be wicked. Because as Paul says, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. What he's saying there is, we need to know certain things about God. And those things he will make obvious. One of those things is his own justice. We better, we better see that crystal clear. He hath showed it unto us. It's been made manifest. And with that, Paul is going to shift gears, and for the rest of chapter 1, he's going to teach us oh, the, the negative side. If faith to faith is the ascending staircase, well, there's a descending one that he's going to teach from verse 20 all the way to verse 32. And it's fascinating. It's on that be careful side of things. Okay, Don't be over-anxious, Jacob. Don't be overzealous, you Jewish Christians or you Latter-day Saints, but don't be underzealous either. We're looking for the Goldilocks zone here, okay? Somewhere in between as we balance faith and works, justice and mercy, grace and law, we're going to find the Goldilocks zone where we're neither too hot nor too cold, okay? That's what we're aiming for. And so if I've given you hope that you can live by faith, it's going to be okay. Christ's righteousness will redeem you. Then be very careful about taking that for granted and instead of climbing from grace to grace, you are now sliding from one degree of wickedness to another. 
And he's going to do that step by step. These next 12 or 13 verses are amazing to me. I call, it, I call this the evolution of sin or the de-evolution of, of, of humanity, if you want to call it that. Verse 20, step number one. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. And again, in some ways, the way the syntax comes out in the King James, it's already been Yodaized. So let's modernize it and rearrange the phrases to make more sense. The invisible things of him are clearly seen from the creation of the world. In other words, you want to see the invisible things of God, namely his attributes? Then look at the visible things that come from God, namely his creation. You want to know what the Creator's like? He left evidence of his hand in every brush stroke. He says, being understood by the things that are made. Again, creation. And what is he manifesting? Even his eternal power and Godhead. Or we could say his Godhood, his divine attributes, as well as his divine power. So that they are without excuse. Now, this is a powerful starting point on this descent into sin. It's this idea that we all ought to know God. In fact, there's no excuse not to. We are left without excuse. Why? Because we live within the creation. You can't miss the thing. You're in the middle of it. So open your eyes and look around and don't just see the universe. See the creator behind his creation. Look at, look at the visible things he's placed all around us and then start pondering the invisible things that he's just made manifest. And what can I learn about God through the universe? Well, it's an, a universe of order. So God must have an incredible sense of order on how things work. God must have an incredible sense of beauty as I look around at his creation. He must have a certain sense of law, to be honest, because things just work a certain way. And if you don't do it the right way, then things don't turn out, right? It's kind of the law of the harvest. And you picture some ancient hunter-gatherer community and then an agrarian civilization, and it's like, wow, this is how things work. And if I do certain things, then other things result. And there's, so there must be some God of cause and effect. Huh. I mean, there's choice. I can do whatever I want. So it sure seems like that. So he must honor agency. But you do pay the piper. There, there is cause and effect and consequences to our choice. Am I starting to get a sense of what God is like based on the evidence of creation itself? Think about the psalm that says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. That's what Paul's getting at here. You might not have prophets yet. You might not yet have the apostolic advantage, but look around and everyone has access to the creation of God. And therefore, there's no excuse not to know a few things about him. The actual irony there is in some ways he's saying there's no excuse for being an atheist. It's okay to be an agnostic. It's okay not to know for sure and, and miss a few points here. But to be an atheist, you have no reason for that. That was actually Alma's argument against Korihor. What do you mean there's no God? What do you mean you need proof? You've got it. Open your eyes, my friend. All things are created and made to bear witness of Christ, or of God, I should say. The heavens and their regular order, the movement of the planets and the stars, all of those things witness that there's a creator. In philosophical circles, they call this the argument from design. 
How do I prove there's a God? Well, a, a universe that seems so well designed. The fact, speaking of Goldilocks zones, the fact the Earth is within the Sun's Goldilocks zone. Any closer we'd fry, any further we'd freeze. But we're right here. Oh, scientists that believe in a creator have described the, the razor-thin Goldilocks zones that exist with certain elements that have to be at this fine-tuned level for life to exist anywhere in the universe. really is amazing. It's actually interesting because Paul was writing long before Darwin and the theory of evolution, long before the theory of the Big Bang, and more scientific explanations for the creation all around. And don't get me wrong, I'm totally fine with creation. I'm totally fine with creation, obviously. But I'm totally fine with evolution and totally fine with the Big Bang. Nothing wrong with those theories as long as we understand that those might be ways that God created the universe. I'm fine with God instigating things through a Big Bang of sorts. Let there be light, and boom, there's the, there's the bang. I'm fine with evolution being able to account for some of the variety within species, though human beings are created in the image of God. It's actually interesting, and this is, this is a comment that, that creationists and theists will sometimes throw into the face of atheists and say, you really think this is all random? And it just, the, something exploded and life eventually emerged? The analogy I've often heard is them saying, that's like an explosion in a print shop, and somehow all the pieces of movable type converging in such a form that the King James Version of the Bible is produced. I mean, that's how impossible this would be. And yet, scientists sometimes and skeptics push back and say, well, there is a chance if you were to blow up the print shop an infinite number of times, an infinite, then if it includes every possible result, then a convergence of the type to form the King James Version would have to be one of those results because we have an infinite number of results. Therefore, yeah, we happen to live in the universe where the explosion led to the King James Version. Now, the irony there is they are therefore basing that on the existence of an infinite number of universes. And I know the Marvel Cinematic Universe loves the thought of the multiverse and what you can do with that. But that is a leap of faith on the part of scientists to require that condition for this to be the one where it got pulled off. Okay? So we're going to start here. This is, this is a good place to be. We're going to start with, there's no excuse not to believe in God. It doesn't mean you know everything about him. You certainly don't. For that, you're going to need self, divine self-disclosure. It's going to have to be prophets who explain things to you. But in the meantime, good enough. Look around at the world around you. Okay? That should be enough to give you evidence that there is a God who exists. It actually helps explain, by the way, that there has never been a human civilization since the dawn of time that did not believe in some kind of deity. A purely secular society from the beginning has never occurred in human history. We seem to be trying to push toward that in our day. But it's too late to start the experiment because <laughs> we were always grounded in God. 
humans as civilizations have always been. And verse 20 helps us understand some of the reasons why. So we're starting off fine. No reason for atheism here. <laughs> In fact, one last thing before we go on to verse 21. Flannery O'Connor, great Catholic writer, early 20th century, she once joked and said, you know what? To be a real atheist, you'd, you'd have to be omniscient because you'd have to know everything in order to make a complete inventory of everything that does exist. Now, if you can pull that off, if you're omniscient enough to know everything that does exist, and then you check the whole list, and if God isn't on there, ah, I couldn't see him anywhere, ooh, then now you know there's no God. So you can be a confirmed and convinced atheist. But then she'd laughed kind of tongue-in-cheek and said, but only God is omniscient. So I guess only God could be an atheist. But he isn't. <laughs> oh, it's so interesting to see. Oh, just look around and allow God to manifest himself to you. Even on that most basic level, it's a start. What's the next step, though? The step downhill. Verse 21 suggests that just because we know there's a God doesn't mean we're going to choose to follow him. And this is how Paul puts that. Because that when they knew God, and how could they not? There's some evidence for him. When they knew him, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination, and their foolish heart was darkened. That's the first big step downhill. It's almost like Amulek. I knew, but I would not know. Yes, I know. It seems pretty obvious there's a God there and a God that has consequences and establishes law and it's supposed to work a certain way. I don't want to do it that way, though. I know him, but I don't want to glorify him as God. Can I call him something else? In fact, even if I acknowledge him, do I have to be grateful? Because then it feels like I owe him something like, I don't know, allegiance or obedience or something. Worship. I don't want to go there. So let me avoid gratitude. Let me avoid glorification. Let me avoid worship like the plague. And instead, since I'm trying to ignore God here, I mean, I, I can't completely because I'm surrounded by the creation, but uh, let me plug my ears and close my eyes and then leave myself with my own vain imaginations and my own darkened foolish heart. Now, interesting combination. Imagination is the mind. The heart is also mentioned. And so you're now starting to invent things Sins of the mind, sins of the heart, and our thoughts and our feelings are pulling us away from this sense of transcendence or the divine that we see whenever we look up and see the starry skies above. That then leads to verse 22 and 23. Professing themselves to be wise, I mean, yeah, they think they know better than God. They became fools. Because there's nothing more foolish than someone who thinks they're smarter than God, right? Because what do they do? These so-called worldly wise that are pathetically foolish before God, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. That explains the emergence of idolatry and graven images and again, if you think about primitive cultures, and yes, they believe in some kind of God, but often they end up manifesting it in like nature deities. And you think of the Egyptian pantheon in the days of Moses, for example, and there's the, the frog god and the, and the alligator god and the cat goddess, and it's these animals, it's four-footed beasts and birds. 
or then let's grow up a bit and let's now move to Greece and Rome. And now you have a pantheon of gods, but they seem a lot like us. They got issues. And yeah, they can do a lot of things that we can't, but they end up doing a lot of things that we do. And there's in bickering and infighting and all kinds of problems and unchastity and lust. And, but, but hey, that, that the gods do it, hey, why can't we? You see the problem here? We're now creating God to make him look a lot more like us. An uncorruptible God, more like a corruptible man. I think it was Mark Twain who once joked and said, in the beginning, God created man and woman after his own image. But ever since, we've been trying to return the favor. We've been creating God after our own image. We want him to be a divine rubber stamp to say, oh, that's what you want? Sounds good to me. I mean, in our day, we don't do it theistically. We don't do it with God. We just deify ourselves. So I am my own God. I am my own truth. And as long as I'm living authentically, that's the watchword of the day, then I can't be doing anything wrong. I'm being true to my truth. And it can be whatever I choose. Oh, be careful. I'm not glorifying the real God. I'm not grateful to the real God. I still know him, darn it, but I want to kind of close that off so I can start doing my own thing. Now, next verse, 24. By now, we've changed God to fit our own flaws. Uh, we're going to take our sins of the mind, those vain imaginations, and the sins of the heart, that foolish heart that is darkened, and now let's actually turn them into real things. Let's make them sins of behavior. And we start seeing them in verse 24. Wherefore, God also gave them up. He didn't give up on them, but he had to give them up because they proved they wouldn't listen to him anyway. And honoring agency defines God to the core. So he gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. You see the immorality, the unchastity that grows as a result of this? Because here we are, creatures of the flesh, and so if I want to do whatever I want to do and let God honor it and say, you can do whatever you choose, you be you and be, live your truth, ah, then we do tend to gravitate toward immorality, dishonoring our own bodies between ourselves. The way Paul says it next, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We, if we've elevated the creature, ourselves, over the creator, then why not serve self? I mean, I'm the most important thing there is. And who are you to judge me or tell me otherwise? No, I can do my own thing. And yes, it tends to lead us toward immorality as the most natural manifestation. Verse 26 then, for this cause God gave them up. He's doing it again. He's, he's honoring their agency and they keep sliding further and further down this, down this drop. He gave them up unto vile affections. And then he describes them. This is an intensification of the immorality we saw in the previous verses. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men. Leaving the natural use of the woman, they burned in their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. 
Now, I think this is getting obvious what he's referring to here of men with men and women changing natural use to something against their nature, working things that are unseemly. And unseemly, the Greek word there simply means it's not the right form or the right fit. It's improper. And I want to be really sensitive here. I, when we, whenever I get a chance to talk about LGBT issues, and I did this at length in uh, Genesis 19, when we studied Sodom and Gomorrah. I did it at length earlier this year in Matthew 19, when we studied eunuchs and the difference between eunuchs made and eunuchs born, and how God feels about all of his children. Every time I talk about LGBT issues, I try to balance, prove the contraries, between the law of chastity and the law of charity. And the need to exercise our compassion and our charity to the same degree that God asks those that struggle with same-sex attraction to exercise the law of chastity. This is, a, this is a tough one. And this passage is one of a handful in Scripture that are sometimes turned into a club to, meet, to beat our LGBT brothers and sisters into submission. And that's... That's breaking the law of charity just as much as we're accusing others or assuming that they are breaking the law of chastity. Okay? We've all got some work to do here. But what amazes me about the way Paul sets this up, has he said anything about the church so far in this downward descent? Has he said anything about prophets and apostles and divine revelation and scripture and, and God is going to judge you against the law that he has established? Hasn't touched that with a 10-foot pole. Not yet, anyway. So far, it's all creation. And creation is based in natural law, not moral law. But, the, but that's the basis he passes judgment here on these behaviors. And notice it's behavior he's condemning. It's not their status. It's not their earthly condition. It's, it's leaving natural use. It's not just burning in lust, but it's working doing, engaging in behaviors that are unseemly. There is a huge difference between homosexuality as a part of the mortal condition for some of God's children. A huge difference between that and homosexual behavior, which is crossing a line and now acting, in, acting out something that is out of bounds. And just like heterosexuality is a condition that can sometimes be manifest in behaviors that are outside the bounds the Lord has set, Homosexuality is the same kind of thing. But notice here, Paul is not passing judgment on a divinely revealed moral law. No, instead he's basing his judgment on an empirically revealed natural law. And it's based in the possibility of procreation. The way he phrases it, the women change the natural use to something that's against nature. And what's the natural use of human sexuality? Creation. Remember this whole conversation started with creation. It's the creation of the universe that lets you know what kind of being God is. It reveals his true nature. And it's the act of procreation that allows us to reveal our true nature 
as children of a creator God that require the fusion of man and woman, opposites, prove those contraries, bring them together. That's what the creation was. We're going to separate light from darkness. We're going to separate sea from land. We're going to separate water from above and water from below. We're going to separate male and female. And then for creation to continue, male and female, with all of their glorious differences, must learn to come together and be one. Unless and until they learn to prove those contraries. And not only will truth not be made manifest, but new life will not be made manifest either. And so for a woman to go against that nature, or in the, ma in the male case, men leaving the natural use, are doing something unnatural. He doesn't even call it immoral. He calls it unnatural. Unseemly was another term he used. And what I'm trying to clarify here, and this should arrest the attention of, of those in the heterosexual community as much as those in the homosexual community. What's, what's the measure of my creation? What's the purpose behind my sexuality? What is the natural use? And again, I'm impressed that Paul is not passing judgment based on a standard that his audience here is not being held to. It's not moral law I'm judging you by. It's natural law. To realize that one of the arguments against homosexual behavior is not deity, it's Darwin. It's not theology, it's biology. And for life to continue, for creation to occur within the human species, the only way that is naturally possible is when opposites attract and when Contraries are proved, and when male and female become one flesh. I pray that I've been sufficiently sensitive there. Heterosexual couples, lust is not lost in marriage, and lust is condemned here too. And if we're burning in lust, even within a natural male-female relationship, lust needs to be overcome. That's... That, that is where the moral law comes in, and we're all held accountable to that as well. Now, keep going, though. Verse 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. And can you picture why that is so obvious a next step? No, at first all my sins were just mental or emotional, and, and the mind and the heart was pulling me in wrong ways. But then I gave in to them. And now that I've committed all of these things, of course I don't want to retain God in my knowledge. I, mean, I don't want to think about him. He's the standard I keep falling short of. He's a reminder of everything I'm not. And so, of course, I'm not going to retain him in my knowledge. And what is God forced to do then? Well, God gave them over to a reprobate, in other words, a depraved mind, to do those things which are not convenient, or another way to say it, not proper. Again, it's God honoring our agency, even though we're misusing it but I'm fascinated by that phrase. I don't want to retain him in my knowledge. I had no excuse not to believe in him. I know he's there, darn it. Then I got to the point where I didn't want to acknowledge that, and so I wouldn't worship him. I wouldn't thank him. 
It's like plug my ears and close my eyes and pretend he's not there. And then, okay, uh, there's something there. So, I'll, okay, I'll create something to put it in its place. I've got this God-shaped hole in my soul and I'll start cramming other things into it to try to fill it. Then I'll give in to whatever I want to do because there's nobody watching. But darn it, I know there is somebody watching. And I don't want to retain that. Quit, quit bringing it up. Quit reminding me. Remember when I've talked often about this guilt gap? And our beliefs are up here and our behaviors are down here. And the space between them is what fills with sin and therefore fills with guilt. You see throughout this process, people keep trying to push down the higher standard. This is like basketball with no hoops, no rims. It's like, hey, throw the ball up and count it if you want to. There's no standard to fall short of. Oh, great. Sounds like quite the sport. But that's the game everybody seems to be playing in our day. I'm going to bring down God's reality to meet mine. And I can introduce myself as the new God of my new virtual reality. Elder Hafen warned that the only problem with that is it doesn't work because it's a virtual reality, reality with no basis in real reality. It's not things as they really are. And life has its way of pushing reality back upon us. That's why I call this the jack-in-the-box. And people that don't want to keep God in their knowledge, don't like to retain him, try so hard to eliminate him, but unfortunately it can't be done. What they end up doing is shoving down that higher standard like a jack-in-the-box. They cram it into the box, they close the lid, they, attach, they cl close the latch, and then leave it and do not let it open. That's why often people who've left the church can't stand gospel conversations and refuse to engage in them. It's why they often mock and ridicule to try to get you to stop bringing up those kinds of things. It's why often they don't even want to associate with you anymore. Because you and your spirit <sighs> come waltzing back into my life. And in the, in the background, I can start to hear... Stop, stop. You know how hard it was for me to get rid of the thought of God? To overcome this guilt gap and no longer feel so bad about a standard I'm falling short of? So quit bringing up things like that. Stop, stop, stop. No, they do not like to retain God in their knowledge. Because as soon as reality sets in and the latch moves and the lid pops open and the jack-in-the-box springs back to full form, the top line has returned to its perennial position. And I'm falling short if I don't choose to repent. What's the next step? I'm, I've, I've crushed down that belief that the jack-in-the-box is closed. So verse 29, I can now give in even further to my wickedness. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whisperers, this is increasing wickedness. The further we fall down this slope, the steeper it becomes. We are, we are falling faster and faster. There's no anchor in God to hold us back. And so, verse 30 to 31, we become backbiters, haters of God. And that's a fascinating one. Again, I can't get rid of him. And so I just end up hating him. 
and as a result I become despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Ooh, that's an interesting one. Well, of course, they're another authority figure, another standard I'm falling short of, so I gotta get rid of them as well. They become the, the mortal stand-in for God, and I hate them both. And I become without understanding and covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. This is so tragic. But do you see where God appears in stage after stage of this downward descent? Darn it, I know he's there. I see him in every leaf and tree. But I don't want to see him. I don't want to know him. But the problem is, you can't eliminate God. There's no excuse. You can't ignore God. You can't replace God. You can't forget God. So you are left hating God. That's why real atheists tend to be so angry. And that's the irony. If you're a real atheist, what are you fighting? It's something that doesn't exist. I don't believe in Casper the Friendly Ghost, but I don't go on a crusade against him because there's nothing to fight. At least angry agnostics have the thought of a god to shake their fists at. But if you're a convinced atheist, what are you fighting? Well, good question. Technically, they're fighting people who believe in God. They're fighting religion. They're fighting churches. They're fighting believers. And okay, fine. I can see you, have, you probably have a reason for that. And anti-clericalism makes sense to me. Anti-religion makes sense to me. But anti-God doesn't make any sense to me. Until you realize it's that down deep they're left without excuse and they're haunted by something they can't eliminate. You understand why Alma the Younger didn't want to just be buried beneath a mountaintop? God can see through that. He said he wanted to cease to exist. Not just to die, but to be banished, both body and spirit. Because since I can't cause God to no longer exist, then the only other option is for me to never have existed either. That's a tragic place to be. And then it ends in verse 32, the final step. Who knowing the judgment of God. So again, despite having tried to eliminate and ignore and replace and forget and end up hating, they still know he's there. They still know he's going to judge them. Knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, spiritual death that is, they not only do the same, despite that knowledge, but have pleasure in them that do them. Which actually makes perfect sense because misery loves company. It's as if we want to turn the existence of God into some kind of democratic <laughs> endeavor. And if we can just win enough people on our side, then we can vote God out of existence. And if enough people don't believe in God, then God doesn't exist. And now I really can do everything I want. And I can slide down this, this hill and there's no sharp rocks at the bottom. There's no judgment. Do you understand? This is a complete victory over conscience. This is becoming past feeling until the spirit ceaseth to strive with man. And you really are left to live without God in the world. Which sounds pretty lonely to me. 
No wonder they are clamoring for companionship, trying to convince other people to join them in their wickedness. Otherwise, the great and spacious building ends up being a pretty lonely place. Do you see the power of what Paul is preaching in chapter 1? I'm not going to apologize for the length of, of this lesson so far. I think we've needed to rest and wrestle with every single verse. And have you seen him trying to run back and forth across the deck of the ship? The just shall live by faith. But careful, the wrath of God is manifest just like his righteousness is. And God does expect us to live his gospel and come to know him and live as he would have us live. Sin is real, even though grace is also. And so somehow we're going to have to strike this balance and find our Goldilocks zone so that the good ship Zion can move forward toward the millennial port. You with me? You ready to keep rowing? Ready to set sail? Well, let's do that in chapter 2. And chapter 2, in a way, we're going to go back to that underlying contrary of Jew and Gentile. Exclusivity and inclusivity. Okay, Because that's in the background of all of this, too. So, chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. And Paul isn't breaking up this letter by chapter, by the way. So, it's, it's flowing straight from this descent into sin. He then says, Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man. Now, at first we were inexcusable for not believing God and therefore inexcusable for not trying to follow God. But here we're inexcusable for judging other people that are somewhere in that process. Thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. It's ingenious of Paul to bring this up right at the tail end of this downward descent. Because I can picture people patting themselves on the back going, I would never do that. I mean, disobedience of parents occasionally, but that was, he probably didn't mean to include it so far down on the list. Oh, no, no, no. I look at creation and I honor God and I worship him and I thank him. I'm way back in verse 20, so I'm good. Well, you're still on the slide and you might be up at the top of it, but you're looking over the edge and it's a slippery slope. So be very careful how you judge other people, even though they might be somewhere else on that path. You, you're on, at a point on the path too. And if you judge others for their sins, then God has no choice but to judge you just as harshly. He said that in the Sermon on the Mount, right? With what judgment you judge, you shall be judged yourself. With what measure you meet, it shall be meted unto you again. That's part of that law of the harvest as well. So be very careful here. In a way, what Paul is saying is, well, I think Elder Uthdorf quoted a bumper sticker once in conference and said, don't judge me for sinning differently than you do. Hmm. Or, as we could also say with Paul here, we're all in the same boat, and it's sinking. <laughs> We're all on that path somewhere. So I might have slid down further, but oh, be careful. All it takes is stopping to acknowledge, not, no longer acknowledging God. All it takes is letting yourself slide into sensuality. We're all sinful to some degree. We've all been sinners to some degree. So be careful how you judge. 
Verse 3, he builds on that. Thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? You really think that God's going to overlook your hypocrisy? Because that's what he's describing here. You judge others harshly for doing the same things you do. Now, maybe not exactly the same things, but still sinful things. So, generally, we're still all sinners. And as long as that title applies to us, then we are no, in no position to pass harsh judgment on someone else, even though their sins might somehow be less than ours. But then he says something in verse 4 that ought to arrest our attention. Because not only is he speaking to Jews that are strict to the law and are probably judging the Gentiles harshly, like, oh, you sinners, you've never been circumcised. You aren't keeping the law of Moses. And Paul's like, whoa, 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 have you always kept the law of Moses? I mean, yes, you were circumcised, but that was your parents' choice, not yours. And how about your choices? Are you perfect on all, hundred, or all, all 613 commandments in the, in the law of Moses? How are we doing? Oh, okay, I probably shouldn't be so judgmental. True. But while I'm talking to the Jews, let me talk to the Gentiles too. Because does this mean, oh, okay, then I shouldn't judge anyone, right? That's, now we're back to the Sermon on the Mount's line about, oh, judge not, you be not judged. That's a you-do-you you kind of mentality. No worries, I'm not, don't look at me, I'm not going to tell you you're doing something wrong. No, that's a mistranslation. The JST says, judge not unrighteously, but judge righteous judgment. Because we just saw at the end of chapter 1, ooh, it's a slippery slope, and God's going to judge you when all is said and done. So don't judge each other harshly, but realize there is a judgment that will be passed by the righteous judge himself. So if you Jews need to calm down a bit and quite quit being so judgmental, perhaps some of you Gentiles need to be a little more careful not to assume that there's no judgment ever to be passed. And the way Paul says it in verse 4 is one of my favorite phrases, anywhere in his epistles. He asks the question, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Now, for that verse to mean something to us, we need to understand the meaning of the word despisest. The way we say it in English, to despise, is to, to hate something, to loathe it, to look down so much on it. It's like, ah, it's disgusting. And that's not quite what the Greek here means. The Greek here translated by the King James translator as despise actually means to disesteem, to think lightly of something. There's actually a great word in Spanish called menospreciar. And menos means less, and preciar means to appreciate. So to menospreciar is to under appreciate something, to treat it lightly, to take it for granted. And what Paul is worrying about here in verse 4, and it's a profound worry we all need to wrestle with, are you taking for granted the grace of God? Are you under-appreciating the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? Are you at a point where you think, well, if God is infinitely merciful, then, hey, he can afford it if I put a few extra things on his tab. Do you understand the danger of that? Of just assuming or presuming that God's just going to cover it? Because that's, ah, he's nice like that. He's good like that. My father-in-law is good like that. He is one of those notorious grand grandparents that 
spoils his grandkids to no end, but he even spoils his son-in-law more than I ever deserved. A few years ago, I, would teach, I was teaching an institute class, and it was one of those big ones where I just kind of blew out the, the back door and said, hey, if people want to come, then they can come. And, and even though my father-in-law is a bit beyond the 18 to 30-year-old range, he came like every week. And sure enough, like clockwork, every week at the end, he'd say, hey, that was a great lesson. Can we, let's go out to dinner. Can I take you out? My treat. And at first it was like, wow, that's really, that's really kind of you, Dad. But it got to the point where I'm like, Dad, you don't have to do this every week. It's not, you don't owe me anything. You can come to the lesson. I mean, nobody else takes me out to dinner <laughs> and they show up. Uh, you, you don't have to do this. And with a big smile, he would always say, I know. That's what makes this so wonderful. I don't have to. I just want to. So, my treat. Where are we going today? But my biggest concern in accepting this kind generosity week after week was not wanting my father-in-law to think that I was presuming upon it. That I was so used to it that I expected it and every week was like, okay, where am I going to go eat tonight? And I just wanted him to know every week I'm grateful. You remember, that's one of the things that's going to keep us from sliding into the first downward step in the downward spiral. They didn't want to acknowledge God. They didn't want to worship Him as God. They didn't want to glorify Him as God. They didn't want to be thankful to God. It's amazing what gratitude can do to keep us from falling. And so, not to despise or underappreciate the goodness of God. Not to presume upon His grace is how some other translations render it. That's such a profound thought. I don't ever want to presume upon the grace of God, even though He always offers it. No, it ought to be a surprise every time. Like, really? You're going to forgive me again? We have to approach Him with this attitude of, I don't know if He's going to. That's going to establish godly sorrow on our part. We can't just walk in and flaunt what, Mosiah chapter 26, and say, hey, you said here that as often as your people repent, you'll, you'll forgive us. So, hey, put another one on my tab, will you? Mm, no, that's presuming upon his grace. And what he says at the end there, don't you know that the goodness of God, knowing that about him, knowing his character, his attributes, that he is rich in goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. Don't you know that that realization ought to lead you to repentance, not to further sin? King Benjamin actually teaches that beautifully. That if we know the goodness of God, shouldn't that awaken us to our own nothingness, our own dependence, our reliance on Him, and wanting to do nothing to offend Him? Not because we fear Him, but because we love Him. Because of His goodness. And the fact, I don't want to take that goodness for granted. I don't want to do that. There's a line that Joseph Smith once said about God that is so profoundly moving to me. It describes his character in such a magnificent way. It's in the lectures on faith, as he's trying to teach us faith in the attributes of heaven. He says this, Those who know their weakness and liability to sin and if you've read the end of Romans chapter 1, you know that, ooh, I'm on that slippery slope somewhere. I am weak. I am liable to sin. Those who know that 
would be in constant doubt of salvation if it were not for the idea which they have of the excellency of the character of God. In other words, if I thought God was mean-spirited and, and always angry at us, then I'm a goner. No wonder I hate the thought of him. No wonder I don't want to keep him in my knowledge. But what are we supposed to know about the character of God? About that, the excellency of it? Here's what Joseph lists. That he is slow to anger. That means he's patient. He's going to take that guilt gap and not condemn us for the space. He's going to fill that gap with grace to give us time to change, to repent, to learn, to grow, to become like him, to grow up in God, faith to faith. Now, he's slow to anger and long-suffering. And just let patience have her perfect work. It's okay. We'll keep working on it. It's fine. And then my favorite description, and of a forgiving disposition that he does forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. An idea of these facts does away doubt and makes faith exceedingly strong. Faith in a God of goodness. A father with a forgiving disposition. There's a difference between decision and disposition. Decision is like, okay, I'm going to decide to do this, but it, no, it pains me to do it. Disposition is like, oh no, that's just how I'm wired. It's, it's my default position. I have a forgiving disposition. I love to forgive. Why do, you call, why do you think Paul refers to the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? It's like the king in that parable of the unmerciful servant. It's like, whoa, you blew 10,000 talents? Ooh, that's like the national debt, my friend. Well, I just, I can't help but forgive. I'm of a forgiving disposition. And I'm so rich in goodness and, and mercy and long-suffering and forbearance but yeah, I can, I can swallow that one. I can absorb the national debt into the treasury of the king. Wow. That's the father we worship. And knowing that our faith is exceedingly strong in him. But it keeps my works engaged because I don't want to presume upon his grace. You understand what, what we're dealing with here? In fact, Paul's going to make sure that we don't overswing the pendulum. Because in the very next verse, verse 5 and 6, he says, But, oh, careful, after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. So careful, my friends, God's goodness and forbearance and longsuffering do not negate his justice and his judgment. Repentance is always an option. But it's always a requirement as well. Yes, God is merciful. Far more than you could possibly imagine. That's how he's wired. But God is also just. And a judge. And he always stays within the Goldilocks zone. So make sure you are balancing justice and mercy here. Do not presume upon his grace. But do not preclude the possibility of grace, no matter what you've done. Are we, are we in proper balance here? Honestly, with contraries, you've got to be sufficiently self-aware to know which side of center you're on. And that shifts throughout time. If you're feeling over-anxious, then please let 
God's mercy seep into your soul. Be reassured by these words of grace. If you're on the more complacent, lackadaisical side and you're beginning to presume upon his grace, then be very aware of his perfect justice. Come into the celestial center. In verse 7, Paul says, To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, what will they receive? Eternal life. On the other hand, unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what do they get? Indignation and wrath. And then he says the same thing, repeats the same idea in reverse. It's almost a chiasmus here. Let's start with the bad news. Tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man that doeth evil, of the Jew first and of the Gentile. Ooh, so now we're bringing that contrary back into, the, into play. So bad choices will affect Jews as much as Gentiles. Okay? And on the other hand, good news, but glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good. And again to both sides, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For there is no respecter of persons with God. You see, it's not about lineage, it's about lifestyle. It's not about family tree, it's about faith and faithfulness. And so you Jews and Gentiles alike need to rest assured in the grace of God, but you also need to be fully aware that it's those with patient continuance in well-doing that he blesses. I sometimes, again, I do a lot of interfaith work with evangelical Christians primarily. And I love evangelical Christians. I was at my divinity school in Nashville, Tennessee, the Protestant Vatican, buckle of the Bible belt, uh, surrounded by wonderful born-again Christians that would ask me if I'd been saved yet. Oh, great conversations and wonderful experiences, and I've continued to have them every year here in Utah since I've been here. And one of the things that I hear often from evangelicals is, no, it's all great. I mean, this is like the Protestant mantra, sola fide, sola scriptura, sola gracia. It's only faith. It's only scripture. It's only grace. Okay. Usually Latter-day Saints will rush to the epistle of James and will say, whoa, 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 but faith without works is dead. And that's true. But Protestants don't tend to like the epistle of James very much. In fact, Martin Luther couldn't stand it. Again, he was so haunted, so scarred by works that he couldn't work to perfection that the thought, I mean, James just kind of whispers works in his ear and, and it's about to give Martin Luther PTSD. He didn't even want to translate the book of James into his German translation of the Bible. He called it an epistle of straw. I don't like that one. No, I like Paul and the just shall live by faith. But part of, my, part of me wants to say, ah, but Martin, or well, my, dear fellow, my dear friend and Protestant, we're not pitting Paul against James here. We're pitting Paul against Paul. And there's no pitting against. It's all Paul's thought. Paul is proving the contraries. If you're concerned that we're too far on the side of works, then great, keep preaching grace. But if you're already on the side of grace and all you ever preach is more grace, then you've overcorrected and your virtue is becoming a vice. And I fear, and they fear too. I've read evangelical scholars that have, have expressed their own concern about the cultural proclivity toward presuming upon God's grace and calling it 
easy salvation or cheap grace or my favorite one because it rhymes sloppy agape which is the greek term for god's love okay but that's sloppy love it, it's love with no demands and not in a in a <laughs> you got to be careful even the way you phrase that i'm staying the goldilocks zone but it's a love that can say no it's a love that loves us enough to invite us to improve to live in that love and remain in that love, to abide in that love by keeping commandments. And that's not Paul against James. That's Paul and Paul speaking to both sides of the equation. Paul was an amazing prover of contraries. We've got to be that too. You with me? So as you're studying Paul, I think the grace language will become obvious. Keep your eye out for the works language. That's why in that semester where we did it topically, we had a whole week just on grace, but also, or just on faith, but also had a whole week just on works. And it's just Paul that we're learning from, okay? He's giving them both their due. It's all situation specific. Which side of the boat are, is the majority leaning towards? I got to lean to the other. Then, verse 12, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Which again shows his emphasis on doing. I mean, honestly, that phrase, the, it's not the hearers, but the doers. I mean, that totally sounds like something grabbed from the epistle of James. But no, it's here in Romans. But notice the way he said it here. There's a certain parallelism that he's trying to convey. Those who sin without law versus those who sin in the law. And what's going to happen? Well, your judgment is going to be based on what you know or what you don't know. He's not going to condemn you for your ignorance. He's not going to hold you to a standard that you were not aware of. So, and in fact, we see this in the Doctrine and Covenants and elsewhere. Uh, Lehi teaches this in the Book of Mormon, that those that die without law will be judged without law. But what's, the way he says it here is fascinating. He doesn't say, as many as have sinned without law will be forgiven without law. No, he says they'll perish without law. And that's like, wait, wait, wait a minute. I, that's bad news. Are you going to punish people for sinning in ignorance? Well, no, it's not about punishment, but it is about perishing. Now, what's the difference? Here's what's fascinating to me. So often we look at the law as something negative. It's our enemy. But if you're living the law, isn't it your friend? Aren't you grateful that the plane stays afloat out of justice, not out of mercy? Aren't you grateful that your doctor knows the law of the human body, and as long as you work within it, it's got to work? That's Dr. Russell M. Nelson's breakthrough. Aren't you grateful when, you're, when you've been attacked by someone, or someone has robbed or stolen from you, and the law is on your side, and it's actually protecting you? Without that law, you would perish not at the law's hands, not at the judge's hands, at your enemy's hands. Because there's nothing there to save you from them. Okay? So think about the law not being your enemy. Think of it as your friend. And those that were, are without the law. Picture him speaking to Jews saying, you think you're better because you have the law? Well, careful, you're going to be judged by that law. And you think they got off easy because they didn't have the law? No, there's still the possibility of perishing without the law. Because the law is supposed to help perfect you. It's supposed to help you. It's supposed to help purify you. That's why I gave it to Moses to begin with. In fact, think of this phrase from Doctrine and Covenants 88, verse 34. 
that which is governed by law is also preserved by law and perfected and sanctified by the same. Law is our friend, not our enemy. I mean, yes, the law can condemn us, but if it's not around, it can't perfect us. Back to the basketball analogy. Yeah, if there's no hoops, then I've, I've never missed a shot yet. But then again, I've never had a chance to improve my shot because I can't tell that it's off. In a land of moral relativism, there's no standard to fall short of, so there's no reason to improve. Nothing that helps me. There's no coach saying to keep your elbow in and, and follow through with your wrist and use a little more leg there. It, we can get better, and it's the law that preserves and protects and sanctifies, exalts us. We're saved as much by God's justice as we are by his mercy. So we've got to hold on to both. But speaking of those outside the law, since I'm bringing up Gentiles, verse 14, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, it's not there to condemn them, but it's not there to bless and preserve and protect or perfect them either. But notice, those Gentiles which have not the law, when they do by nature the things contained in the law, well, then these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. So we end with that back to judgment day. He's going to judge us. But what's he going to judge us based on? The light that we have. You Jews have the light of the law. But even the Gentiles have the light of Christ within them. You have covenant, but they have conscience. You have commandments and prophets, but they have an internal compass that points them toward true north if they'll simply heed it. Oh, to where much is given, much is required. Those who sin against the greater light will receive the greater condemnation. But these Gentiles, you see, we talked about creation as one evidence for God, but conscience is another evidence for God. And creation is supposed to teach us what God is like, but conscience also teaches us what God is like. Sadly, we live in a world that doesn't believe in conscience. They only believe in the social construction of reality. And as a result, they feel like, oh, we only feel guilty because society is shaming us. I wouldn't think that's wrong if I was in a different culture. Well, in some instances, they're right, but not in all. And to think that, really, the only time I ever feel guilty is only because of societal shame? Do I not have some internal moral compass? In fact, the old philosophers used to describe them both, tie them together, and say, how do we know of God? One, because of the starry skies above, but two, because of the sensitive soul within. And there's something within us that tells us when we're amiss. There really is a light of Christ that shines toward the source of that light. So Jews, you've had it written down on the tablets of stone, but you Gentiles have had it written into the fleshy tables of your heart, and thereby... You become your own law and your own judge. And if you're falling short of conscience, then you're just as guilty as the person falling short of commandments. Okay? That's why you, you're, you two are more alike than you realize. Whether or not you have the written law, 
you've got it written within. That's why I love that phrase when it talks about the conscience bearing witness. The law is written in the heart. And then this great phrase, it's your thoughts, your own internal compass that will either accuse or excuse you. This is putting a lot of trust in us, by the way, that we'll be sensitive and self-aware. And not try to rationalize or justify. Not try to presume upon grace. Not try to just chalk it up to, it's just social construction. I'm not doing anything wrong. They're just trying to shame me. It's a shame culture. I'm just living my life and living my truth. I'm being authentic. Oh, careful. Down deep. When you are open to hear the voice of conscience. What does it say to you? Is it accusing or is it excusing? Now again, sometimes mental health can get in the way. And if scrupulosity is our problem, then maybe we do need an outside arbiter, a bishop, for example, to reassure us, no, he, I know your heart is accusing you, but if you've been honest and told me everything you've done, ignore that accusation. You're okay. But I do fear instead the world constantly saying, hey, the, your heart should never accuse you. It should only excuse you. And I'll, I'll do the excusing myself for you. There will be times you're doing something that you wish. It's interesting, this whole letter of the law, spirit of the law. And in some ways, the Lord is holding us to the standard of the spirit of the law. And what is your heart telling you? There have been times where Sabbath day is a good example in my, in my book. Because there's certain things I just don't want to do on the Sabbath. There's things, the Sabbath is a gift. And I just want to use it as much as I can to come into Christ. And... So I'm not concerned about all these don'ts, but sometimes th those things that other people want to do get in the way of all my do's. But there are times where ah, someone wants this to happen or that, and I, yeah, I've even said to my wife, I hate it when I can't be right and good at the same time. And I want to be right, but I honestly think to be good in this instance, we need to compromise on this. I'm not saying break a commandment, but to understand where someone's coming from and meet them halfway. And what's interesting, though the law would say, nope, you did something wrong, my heart excuses me. Because the Spirit basically says, I know where your heart is. I know what you'd prefer to be doing. You're not taking this as license. No, this is an act of love. And I honor that. Okay, pay close attention to the heart and its ability when, when it's on right, when it's tied in with the Spirit, when the compass it truly is pointing to true north, the heart will accuse or excuse, and you can hold to that. And as you do, notice the phrase, the work of the law will be written in your heart. It's like, what was the law supposed to be doing? What was the law working on? It was working on you. It wasn't working on itself. It wasn't trying to self-aggrandize or glorify itself. It was trying to perfect you. That's what law does, sanctifies, perfects, protects. And the law is supposed to be doing all that to you. It's your schoolmaster to bring you unto Christ. Paul will later teach. With these Gentiles, the conscience is doing the same work. It might not be as crystal clear as what you have written on the tablets of stone, but it, the work of the law is being manifest in them. Look at the fruits of these people. They're good. They're living according to the light that they have. No wonder they're prepared to receive more light once it begins to shine. You should do the same. Now, verse 17, let's make this even more personal. 
Behold, thou art called a Jew. Okay? That's what, that's what you call yourselves, what they call you. You're so proud of that personal identity. For us, we would say, Behold, thou art called a Latter-day Saint. Oh, and I'm proud of that. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Okay, fine. That's good. But mm, careful if it leads you to an extreme. Behold, thou art called a Jew and restest in the law. As if that's all you needed. With that, you make thy boast of God. Look at me. I'm a, a card-carrying member of the house of Israel. I'm a law-abiding citizen of the kingdom of God. Again, for us Latter-day Saints. Behold, thou art called a Latter-day Saint, and you rest in your church membership, or your temple recommend, or the prestige of your church calling, or the fact you're a returned missionary, or your good works that you're always accomplishing. And that's how we make our boast of God. Now, this is the opposite extreme, by the way. We already warned those who are presuming upon God's grace. But now we're warning those that are presuming upon the prestige of their position in God's kingdom. He goes on and explains this prestige at length. And knowest his will, and approvest the things that are more excellent, being instructed out of the law, Oh, yeah, you didn't have to rest on that little light. It wasn't conscience. It wasn't the compass within. You had the full law itself. You knew all 613 commandments. Well, good for you. Thou art confident that thou thyself art a guide of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, which hast the form of knowledge and of the truth in the law. Oh, you think you are so much better than others because you have greater light. You Jews, you Jewish Christians, are looking down your noses at the Gentile Christians going, oh, you're the blind, that's okay, I'll, I'll be your guide. You're in darkness, but I have light. You're a babe, but I'm your teacher. You're the foolish, but I'll be your instructor. Wow, that is so condescending. That is so prideful on your part to think you're better just because you're part of the house of Israel. Remember, greater light receives greater condemnation if you sin against that light. Be careful about judging others when you're still on the same slippery slope. Verse 21, Thou therefore which teachest another, teachest thou not thyself? Ooh, that, that verse haunts teachers like me. We spend our lives teaching others. Am I teaching myself? Am I living up to the principles I'm trying to persuade you to live? If not, I'm setting myself up for judgment. Am I in danger of being a, hip, a hypocrite rather than a, a light? He goes on and gives examples. Thou that preachest a man should not steal, dost thou steal? I hope not. Thou that sayest a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? I hope not. Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? You better not. Thou that makest thy boast of the law, through breaking the law, dishonorest thou God? You better believe it. Now, I'm not saying, oh, so what's the solution? Stop teaching? <laughs> oh, that way, again, I'm, I'm, I'm taking down the standards of the basketball court. I'm not going to tell anybody they're doing anything wrong because if I do something wrong, then now I'm going to be worse off than they. No, imperfection is not the same thing as hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is not 
falling short of your own standards. It's denying the fact that you do. It's setting yourself as up as if you made no mistakes. It's, or it's preaching a standard that down deep you really don't care about at all. No, falling short of perfection is not hypocrisy. It's humanity. It's, it's what happens to us all. In fact, having standards, that's the irony. The world would say the easiest way to avoid hypocrisy is to avoid standards in general. Hey, I'm not falling short of anything. Yeah, welcome to the jack-in-the-box. Careful when it pops. No. We realize our humanity, our fallenness, our dependence on God. Ooh, is that what he's suggesting for these Jews? The Gentiles don't feel like they measure up to you. So they certainly don't feel like they measure up to God. So they are begging for the grace of God. They are repenting of their sins and coming unto Christ. You ought to do the same. Instead of resting easy on the law of Moses, since you haven't kept it perfect, perfectly yourselves. With that in mind, notice verse 24. For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles through you, as it is written. And the as it is written is a reference to Isaiah 52.5, which does speak about God's name being blasphemed. But the way Paul is suggesting it here is fascinating. They're blaspheming God's name through you at least among the Gentiles. Now think about this. Why would the Gentiles have anything negative to say about the God of Israel? They don't believe in him. Well, that's the issue. They're starting to wonder if the Israelites believe in him. They're looking at the hypocrisy of the Jews. And it doesn't just give the Jews a, a bad name. It gives their God a bad name. Like, wait, you claim to be his earthly manifestation, and yet, oh, if your God is anything like you, I don't want to judgmental God, a holier-than-thou God, a hypocritical God. No thanks. An angry, vengeful, overly harsh, strict, authoritarian deity? Huh. No thank you. And I worry, honestly, in our day, are there those non-members that are blaspheming our God because of us? Alma warned Corianton about that. People have seen your bad example, and now they won't believe my good news. They won't take the gospel seriously because it looks like you aren't. Oh, your God must be a pushover, so I can do whatever I want. And so Jews, be very careful about the example that you're setting. And then back to the Jew-Gentile dichotomy, verse 25. For circumcision, and that's what defines Jews over against Gentiles, we would say ordinances the things that we do to enter the faith. For them, it was the token of circumcision. For circumcision verily profiteth. Oh, it's good. You should do it. I gave it as a commandment for a reason. But only if thou keep the law. Or we would say, if thou keep the gospel. Ordinances are great as long as you have the attributes to back them up. Circumcision is wonderful. It's profitable. But if, only if you keep the law, that circumcision is the sign of entering. He says, but if thou be a breaker of the law, well, thy circumcision is made uncircumcision. It's like, what was the point of it if you're not actually going to keep the law that you covenanted to enter? No, you might as well not have made the covenant to begin with. You might as well not have been circumcised. Therefore, if the uncircumcision, the Gentiles, keep the righteousness of the law, 
that law that's written in their heart, being true to conscience, then shall not his uncircumcision be counted for circumcision? Doesn't it count in their favor? Meanwhile, shall not uncircumcision, which is by nature, if it fulfill the law, won't it judge thee who by the letter and circumcision dost transgress the law? I mean, this is fascinating. You see, circumcision is only outward, and it's the circumcision of the heart that I've always been after. It's just harder surgery. But do you see the danger? In some ways, those Gentiles are more circumcised than you are because their heart's in the right place. They're living according to their light. You're falling short of the light and are ready to receive the greater condemnation. In fact, they are ready to pass judgment on you. They already have. They pass judgment on me. That's even worse. And so you've got to live up to things like they are. It really is amazing to put ordinances and attributes side by side and ask which is more important. Now, it's dangerous to make them mutually exclusive. And unfortunately, some people like to do that. Uh, that, oh, religious people are judgmental. They have the ordinances. They don't have the attributes. I've met so many people that <laughs> make that a cheap narrative that's easy to dismiss. No, people that have all the ordinances and all the attributes. It's their attributes that drove them toward the ordinances or the ordinances that motivated them to develop the attributes. It's amazing. They're both outward and inward, through and through. But I've met plenty of people that have one or the other in either direction. Have you ever met somebody that has all the ordinances and none of the attributes? And they're boasting that, hey, I'm the te teacher of babes and I, I rest in the law and I'm a card-carrying member. Yeah, but you're a jerk. And then others that are so good Somehow they got, they got good without the gospel. Somehow they've developed all these amazing Christ-like attributes, even though technically they never covenanted that they would do so. In fact, picture Judgment Day, both of those types of people coming in to be judged. The ones with both attributes and ordinances are easy to enter. The ones with neither are easy to dismiss. But these two in the middle, ooh, you got one out of two. Mm, what do we do? And a picture of them coming in simultaneously, side by side, and the Lord looks at them and says, okay, you have the attributes but not the ordinances? So that's so easy to fix. In fact, we already did. We've been doing baptisms for the dead down there for ages, and you, your name came up. It's been done. It's just a matter of do you want to accept that? It's been done by proxy. And they're like, really? That was so kind of them. I feel so grateful. Well, yeah, gratitude's a good attribute. Uh, what, do you accept it? Well, of course. Lovingly, humbly, good attributes too. Okay, you're good. Come on in. Now you... Uh, you have all the ordinances. Congratulations. None of the attributes, and I've seen baptisms for the dead. I don't know if I've ever seen benevolence for the dead. Uh, it's not a matter of, yeah, we can perform the ordinances by proxy. I don't know if we can pull off attributes by proxy. Like, that was a nice guy. Can I have some of that niceness? You've got to work on it yourself. That it's easy to solve the first problem, really hard to solve the second. And that's what Paul is hinting at to these Jews who are more like person number two, whereas the Gentile converts are more like person number one. Okay? He summarizes the whole thing, grand finale at the end of chapter two, verse 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. That's not what makes us Jewish. It's not that circumcision. That's what he says. Neither is that circumcision, which is outward in the flesh. 
But let me tell you what a real Jew is. He is a Jew which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Do you picture putting those side by side? And which of the two is more important? It's inward over outward. It's spirit over letter. It's God over man or woman. God is trying to change us all into people more like him. It's not about being a Jewish Christian or about being a Gentile Christian. It's about being a Christian Christian. And that's going to take some work on all of our part. It's going to take a lot of grace for all of us on God's part. With that, we turn to chapter 3. And once again, a heavy emphasis on our need for faith. If you need to take a quick break and pause things and get up and stretch your legs, be my guest. But you've got to stick with me at least through chapter 3. You're not off the hook until at least 4, 5, and 6. And there, I still highly recommend them. But chapter 3 is an absolute masterpiece of a chapter. Some of the most important doctrine comes together right here. So chapter 3... We've just learned that it's the inward that matters, that uncircumcision can be just as good as circumcision if your heart's in the right place. But careful about overswinging the pendulum. Because right now, how are Jews feeling? I mean, I, I love how Gentiles are feeling. Like, see? Okay, I've been living according to my light. I've, my, my heart has been circumcised. So glad that the operation can end there. And the Thank You Jerusalem Conference, I don't have to be circumcised in the flesh because my heart is right with God. Well, the, careful as we're swinging the pendulum, are, if the Gentiles are feeling good, does that mean the Jews are feeling bad? Are they starting to question, well, if it was only inward anyway, then why did I ever have to do any of the outward? If church is okay with two hours, why did I have to go for three? <laughs> right? Uh, any of these examples of change, and it's like, oh, back in my day, we did it, uh, did it the hard way. Did it count? Did it matter for anything? And Paul addresses that at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, What advantage then hath the Jew? And that's probably what's on the mind of every Jew in his audience. He repeats it. What profit is there of circumcision? You get it? That's us saying, well, what's the point of ordinances? If I could have just gotten baptized for the dead anyway, then what was the point of getting baptized when I was eight? In fact... I kind of would have preferred to be baptized for the dead, because then I could have lived however I wanted to in this life. Ooh, that's dangerous. That's admitting that you don't believe that wickedness never was happiness. That's admitting that ah, I'd rather do my own thing and not think about God and not keep him in my memory. Ooh, where are you in chapter 1 on that slippery slope? Now, is there no advantage in being part of the house of Israel? If he's going to gather us all in anyway, is there any advantage of being a gatherer? Of showing up early? And it's like the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. If we were all going to get the penny at the end of the day anyway, man, I wish I would have been hired at 5 p.m. No, I bore the burden and the heat of the day. To which I always say, yes. And as a result, you have the biggest muscles and the darkest tan. You ought to be grateful for that. You got to work alongside the Lord of the, of the vineyard. Does that not count for something? That's what he's getting at with his, his answer. Verse 1 is the question. Verse 2 is the answer. And you can sum it up in three words. Much every way. Why does it matter to be a Latter-day Saint? Oh, it matters much every way. 
Is it worth anything to have ordinances as well as the attributes? Oh yes, much every way. Is it profitable to have lived the gospel the whole life long and labored from sunup till sundown, even for just that penny appointed? Yes, much every way. In fact, I love the way the Joseph Smith translation answers this. It asks a similar question, but expands it. What advantage then hath the Jew over the Gentile? That's really what we're asking. Or what profit of circumcision who is not a Jew from the heart? Now, that's really what's the crux of the issue. It's, again, it's not the outward, it's the inward. So we're talking about Jews that aren't Jews from the heart. On the other hand, but he who is a Jew from the heart, that has both the outward and the inward, I say hath much every way. And now we're back to, to verse 2, the way it starts. Much every way, as long as it's on the inward. You're not better because you had the outward. But if you had the inward too, then it's such an advantage. And all that time with the outward motivating you to work on the inward, oh yes, that is infinitely advantageous. And then he gives his example of how. I love this. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And by oracles, we mean the word of God, as well as those who delivered that word to us. Both the message and the messengers are the oracles of God. It's priesthood and prophets and revelation and scripture. It's ordinances and power and authority from heaven. Is that not an advantage? We're back to the apostolic advantage we learned about in the book of Acts. You have the oracles of God. Do you not realize what a blessing it's been? Honestly, I hear sometimes of missionaries baptizing oh, octogenarians and being jealous. It's back to the idea of, man, I wish I could have been baptized for the dead. Or as this old timer, almost dead. All, I mean, 80 years worth of sin is washed, washed away. And I don't know how sinful you can get in your 90s. I wish I could have lived it up and done my own thing and then had it all washed away. Again, you're totally misunderstanding that the law is there to protect and sanctify, not to keep you from having fun. But the interesting there here is, picture the old-timer responding to that naive missionary saying, you have no idea how hard it is to live your life without the light of the Lord. And don't be jealous of me. I'm so jealous of you. I can't imagine how much easier my life would have been if I'd had the eternal perspective, I would have had purpose and meaning and a clear conscience. I would have had hope and faith and charity and I'm glad I got it for a little while. But the fact you got to have it your whole life long, what a blessing. Much every way. Paul says in verse 3, and this is a fascinating one too, for what if some did not believe? Those that came to the party late, those that wonder what you're doing, those that would oppose you from the beginning, somewhere along that path that we saw in chapter 1. Who cares? Okay, fine. Some don't believe. So be it. And then this beautiful rhetorical question. Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar 
as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Now what Paul just did is quote the 51st Psalm to suggest that when God is right, (laughs) he's right even when we're wrong. Don't turn him into the liar so that you can be true. No, no, no. Leave it the way it is. You're the liar. He's the one that's true. And that all comes down under that bigger umbrella of the first line. Who cares if they don't believe? Is that going to make the faith of God ineffective? Now, especially for us that are wrestling in a time of apostasy, of people falling away from faith, let that question shore up your own convictions. So people left the church. Does that prove the church false? Uh, the whole world can vote against gravity, but they're still, the, the hats they throw in the air are still going to fall back down upon them. God is not going to cease to exist if we choose to vote him out of existence. I recently met a sweet woman who was distraught because she's the only sibling left who hasn't left the church. If truth isn't established by popular opinion, stay strong. Or I heard of a sweet father who's who's all of his children have left the church, and he's actually contemplating, do I leave to join them? Oh, the the father of the prodigal son knew better than that. Somebody's got to stay at the tree of life so the rest of the family knows where to come back to once they come to themselves. Shall other people's unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Truth isn't grounded in popular opinion. So he says in verse 5, If our unrighteousness commend the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. And then he answers it, God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? Now this is a really tricky passage. There's going to be a JST I'll read in in a minute that makes it much more clear. But let's just wrestle with this for a moment. Our unrighteousness, is there any way that it might commend the righteousness of God? In other words, like ratify, verify, confirm that God really is righteous. And how can I show that? Well, look at my unrighteousness. It makes God look all the more righteous by comparison. Now, that's strange logic. Yeah, let me heap up some sin. Ooh, because that'll show just how gracious God is when he forgives it. Yeah, that's it. I can prove the riches of his goodness by ratcheting up the national debt, or in this case, the personal debt. I actually have joked with my wife and said to her, you know the only reason you let me stay in our wedding pictures was because my ugliness would make your beauty all the more apparent by comparison. And she always glares at me like, quit being so self-deprecating. And honestly, I would admit, she doesn't need my help to to be beautiful. (laughs) Yes, the comparison is stark, but she'd be fine even with pictures without me. Okay, And the same is God. The same is true of God. I don't have to look evil to make God look good. And I certainly don't have to sin to make God look gracious. I actually worry sometimes that people, especially good kids, sometimes feel like they're missing something. Like, I don't really appreciate God's goodness because he hasn't had to forgive me of much. Really? (laughs) He needs to forgive you of that. Uh, No, we're going to see by the end of this chapter, we're all in desperate need of his help. And so our unrighteousness 
shouldn't feel justifiable just because it commends God's righteousness. No, that's why he's saying, what are we going to say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? Like, how dare you punish me when I'm making you look so good? What? No, we just saw that people are blaspheming God because we're not good representatives of him. So, no, you're not making me look good. You're making me look bad. You're making yourself look even worse. So, do not accuse me. That's why he's saying, hey, I'm speaking as a man here. I mean, this is what somebody worldly might think. But that's not what I think. That's why I'm saying, God forbid. God is going to judge the whole world, including those people that are trying to justify themselves. And he's trying to speak to the justice side of the, of the ship on this one. Now, with all of that, let's read the JST, and it's going to be a little more clear. But if we remain in our unrighteousness and commend the righteousness of God. So now we're living like hell, but we're giving lip service to heaven. We're still commending the right. This is hypocrisy now. And in that case, how dare we say God is unrighteous who taketh vengeance? <laughs> I love that. How dare you? How dare you think God's okay with this? And then he says, I speak as a man who fears God. So I'm not playing devil's advocate. I, I fear God. I honor God. And I want you to as well. So I'm warning you against thinking that you're making God look good through your wickedness. You're not. God forbid, he says, for then how shall God judge the world? Same thing. Okay? Hypocritical to pay lip service to God's law. And then to complain that you're being punished for breaking it. No, we have a God of justice even though we know he's a God of mercy as well. Stay in the Goldilocks zone, my friends. Verse 7 and 8, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, uh, is that going back to this idea of making God look good by comparison? Hey, I lied, but it, it comes back and abounds to God's glory. Careful. Why yet am I also judged as a sinner? Why would you complain? Why would you condemn me if I'm making God look so good? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Now that's one of the most confusing verses we've read at all this week. Uh, and the JST is going to help us with this one. So let's unpack it with Joseph's inspired help. He says, For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie, as it is called of the Jews... So that parenthesis, that insertion, really clarifies it. It's not that Paul is lying. It's that the Jews are accusing him of lying. We'll figure out what that lie is in a second. But Paul's telling the truth. It's the Jews that say, nope, that's false. But if that somehow abounds unto the glory of God, then why yet am I also judged as a sinner and not received? And then I'll answer the question. Because we are slanderously reported. And some affirm that we say, and then here's another parenthesis to insert, whose damnation is just. So I'm going to condemn this statement from the very beginning. This is a lie. This is a slanderous report. And anyone who says it is deserving of damnation. And here's the, here's the lie. Here's the slander. Let us do evil that good may come. And then just in case you missed the condemnation, let me clarify it with another inspired insertion. But this is false. Now, this is Paul trying to pull us back away from the grace side of presuming upon it. Remember, he's trying to keep us all in the Goldilocks zone. And so he keeps swinging back and forth and honoring justice and honoring mercy and honoring law and honoring grace. But here it's this sense of, imagine what a Jew would say against a Gentile Christian, or against any kind of Christian. 
Imagine them saying, oh, you think that Jesus's death is a get out of jail free card. You think that grace gives you license to do evil. Oh, isn't that convenient? And all the bad you do, you can just chalk it up and say, but look how good God is for forgiving me. Paul is saying, that's not what I'm preaching. That is a straight up lie. You're accusing Christianity of being a lie. You're accusing me of lying and telling people that they can actually be forgiven. And that they can actually come into the kingdom of God absent the works of the law, like circumcision. And you're saying I'm lying about that. And lying to say, oh, but hey, it sure makes God look good. Because look what we can do with mere sin. He can save us in our sins. So heap it up, put it on his tab, and it'll show just how rich in goodness he he really is. That is a slanderous report. It is false. That is not what we're saying. That is cheap grace. That is sloppy agape. That is easy salvation. And it doesn't come easy like that. It certainly didn't come easy for Jesus. With the help of the JST, that verse becomes crystal clear in terms of warning us from against overcorrecting on the side of grace. We cannot afford to do that. In verse 9 then, what about the other side? What then? Are we better than they? If we Jews were given the oracles of God, does that mean we're better than the Gentiles? It's so hard to swing back and forth on this. Oh, no, the Gentiles aren't any better just because it's outward rather than, or inward rather than outward. You had the oracles of God. That was such a blessing to have those But does that make you better? Please, can we not find the celestial center? Are you better than others? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. (laughs) Now, what Paul just did is actually pretty amazing. He's trying to elevate the Gentiles but not doing it by lowering the Jews. He's trying to help the Jews see the Gentiles are just as good as you are. Oh, well then fine. Why was it, what was the point of having all these laws all the time? Whoa, whoa, whoa. You had the oracles. What a blessing. Oh, so yeah, we are better than they. Come on, quit swinging that wildly. No. You're not any worse than they are if you're both trying to live according to the light. You're not any better than they are just because you had more light. Because actually, everybody sins against light. So guess what? I guess we're all equally bad. (laughs) So it's almost funny. He's not saying, hey, we're all equally good. He's like, no, we're all in the same sinking ship. Because nobody's going to make it without the grace of God. Oracles or no oracles. Ordinances or no ordinances. Attributes or no attributes. Nobody has pulled off the attribute of perfection, which means we're all goners without the grace of God. In fact, when he starts quoting that, there is none righteous, no, not one, he started quoting the 14th Psalm, and he keeps quoting that one, but then he moves on to the 53rd Psalm to drive home his point. The fact that we're all under condemnation because we've all committed sin. That's where he goes for the next slew of verses. Starting in verse 11, there is none that understandeth. 
There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Does that sound pretty (laughs) all-inclusive? It's meant to. And then he begins to describe some of their sins, some of our sins, since we're all guilty of some of them. First, their throat is an open sepulcher. Whew, how's that for a whited sepulcher? This is your own throat. Yeah, you might have brushed your teeth, but man, looking in there... Down deep, there's nothing but dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Throat and open sepulcher. With their tongues, they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. All those are sins of words, but words beget deeds. And so the next list, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So sins of words becoming sins of deeds in both their dishonoring God, they're pretty far down the slippery slope we saw back in chapter 1. And that's cause for judgment and cause for condemnation. Think about what Paul's getting at. What's the moral of the story here? None of us are going to make it on our own. Your oracles are such a blessing. They can't save you without God's grace because you didn't follow them perfectly. The conscience in a Gentile heart is a beautiful thing. It can write the works of the law within them, but they didn't respond to their conscience perfectly either. So I guess we're all goners, huh? Yeah, every last one of us. Me too, without the grace of God. It's almost comical the way Paul puts us all in this ship and then lets us know that we're sinking. It actually reminds me of one of my favorite things Joseph Smith ever did, because to me it's hilarious. There was a time where Joseph Smith was entertaining a bunch of questions and providing a bunch of answers. In fact, it sounds like he wrote the questions himself, but he seems to be responding to what's out in in the air and in the water. People think the things that people are curious about. And in this one, this is question number three, and it's fascinating. He asks, on behalf of everyone, will everybody be damned but Mormons? Now, can you picture why some people would wonder that? Oh, you Latter-day Saints think you're better than anyone else. You think you're the only true church and the only one with true priesthood authority, and you have to be baptized in your church. In fact, you're going to baptize the dead just to cover the bases? That no one's going to come in without you? Wow. Does that mean every non-member is going to hell? Now, we would rush at that and say, no, 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 no. That's why we're doing baptism for the dead. And hey, God loves you just like he loves us, and it's exclusivity and pursuit of inclusivity and... It's okay, okay? We're trying to be good friends here. And I think Joseph would agree with all of that, but the way he answers the question, man, he throws a curveball, and it's hilarious. Because rather than reassure the non-members, he calls the members to repentance. It's hilarious. Question, will everybody be damned but Mormons? Answer, yes, and a great portion of them unless they repent and work righteousness. And then you picture him laughing as he dips the pen in the ink again. You would have expected him to say no and then soften things. Or, if you're overly harsh and judgmental and the sense of superiority, you'd say yes and then put a period. Yep, if you're not Latter-day Saint, you haven't had an authorized baptism, you don't have the ordinances, so you're out. And that's what the Jews were saying to the Gentiles. No circumcision for you, no entrance into the kingdom of God. Nope. We're better. And Paul, like Joseph Smith says, actually, yeah, all those Gentiles are going to hell, but you Jews are going with them. All those non-members will be damned, and so will all the members 
unless they shape up, <laughs> there's a lot of repenting and righteousness to work on within our own community. So we're only crying repentance to you after we've re cried repentance to ourselves. You see what Joseph is getting at? It's absolutely hilarious. It's actually the more comical version of a principle I find in James chapter 2. And we'll talk more about it when we get to James, but can I at least introduce the concept here? Because it really fits in this context. James 2 verse 10, it's hard, brace yourself. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, whoo, he is guilty of all. Whoa, wait, wait, did I misread that? Please tell me there's a JST that softens this. Nope, there it is. Even if you keep the whole law, or at least think you have, claim you do, I'm sure at some point you've offended in at least one little point. And if so, sorry, you're guilty of all. Now, I even had a, an institute student once, as we studied this verse, he pushed back and said, no way, that's totally unfair. So I said a little white lie and now I'm an adulterer or just as bad? And that sounds like what James is saying. I'm guilty of one thing, then I'm guilty of everything. And I said, okay, calm down. Let's use a different analogy. Picture us on one side of this abyss and God on the other. And because of the fall, that abyss opened up and I am cut off from God's presence. You with me? It's like, yeah. How are we going to get back? Somehow we're going to have to cross this abyss. And let's say there's a chain that's hanging from above somewhere. And if we can just hold on to that chain and swing across Tarzan style, we'll get back to God. You following the analogy? Sure. I said, now I picked a chain instead of a rope for this reason. A chain is obviously a lot of separate things that happen to be connected. It's link by link by link. What happens to the chain when I break a link? Well, the chain breaks. Did I have to break every link? No. One will do. If I've broken a single link, then the chain no longer holds. And I can't swing back to God on that one. That's why I like the chain rather than the rope. Even though the rope is a bunch of threads together, twisted together, it's more obviously that they're individual things in a chain. And that concept of if you're guilty of one, if you've offended in a single point, you're now guilty of all. No, you haven't broken every chain, but you've broken the chain. And the thought or the possibility of swinging back to God on your own righteousness, that ship has sailed. In fact, that ship has sunk. You can't get back that way. It's impossible. So what am I left with? Well, somebody else's chain, which actually holds. But there's only been one being in eternity that pulled that off, and that was Christ. What Paul is going to do here is move us in this direction of seeing our absolute dependence on the grace of God for salvation. That even if you've done all that you can do, when all is said and done, it is by grace and grace alone that we are saved. Okay? So notice how he does this. Verse 19, one of my favorite verses anywhere in the Pauline epistles. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law. So you Jews who got the law, well, I guess it's addressed to you. It's now speaking to you. But guess what it says? <laughs> that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. That's what it says to the people it's addressed to. 
the law, <laughs> ooh, as soon as it opens its mouth, as soon as, it, as soon as it opens its mouth, it tells you to shut yours. It stops every mouth. Why? By letting them know that the whole world is guilty before God. At least based on this perfect standard. Now, what I love about this verse is, to me, I'll put it bluntly if you'll allow me to. Anytime we open our mouths and say, oh, but look what all I've done. I just need a little grace to get me over the hump. Or I'm not that bad. I'm not, I haven't sinned as bad as everybody else. I'm only guilty of a minor offense. And I'm, not, and I'm not guilty of all. Every time I think I'm better than someone else, because I've got ordinances or I've got ad additional attributes, every time I rationalize, justify, try to explain myself, the law steps in and says, shut up. Just shut, seriously, shut your mouth. Cl zip it. Oh, but what about, no, no. but I'm better than, no, no, you're not. But I've tried hard. Mm -mm. Can you please, for an instant, sit in silence and humbly realize that you're not good enough to be pronounced perfect by the perfect judge himself? In fact, you're not even good enough to be pronounced perfect by the perfect law, let alone the perfect lawgiver. In fact, the perfect lawgiver gave you a perfect law to prove that point to shut you up, to convince you and convict you of your guilt. That all the world may become guilty before God? Wait a minute, that's what he wants? He wants us all to be guilty before God? No, not ultimately. Ultimately, he wants us all to be holy with God. But holiness is not the same thing as innocence. Innocence is unproven, it's untried. You're back to the Garden of Eden. And you know how I always talk about creation, fall, atonement as the story arc of life and the stages of faith and growing up in God? The elevation of the atonement far surpasses the elevation of Eden. Eden was only innocent. Atonement is holy. But the only way to go from innocence to Holiness is to pass through guilt and fallenness on the way. How does that work? This is what Paul is getting at, and it's mind-blowing. I love this verse. It's as if God gave us the law to set us up for failure. Now, I know that sounds harsh, but he did that to ultimately set us up for the ultimate success. In the garden, absolute obedience was required. And they were innocent and had done nothing wrong. And as long as they stay that way, they can stay there forever. But that's not where God intended them to remain. He wanted them to come to his level. But the only way to move forward was to move downward first. And so there was a fall from grace. Actually, there was a fall into grace, if they would accept it. Because they didn't really need grace in the garden. They were innocent. And it was only guilt that came to introduce them to a need, to their need for a savior. That's the beauty of the law. As it comes and measures you, and you realize that you don't measure up. I thought I was so good. It's always, it's by comparison. Am I tall? Am I short? I don't know until somebody stands next to me. 
Am I good? Am I bad? I don't know until a perfect standard comes. I keep throwing the ball in the air. Did I make any? I don't know. Let's bring in the, the hoop, shall we? Ooh, my shot's way off. Yeah, you think? <laughs> but now that you know, and you're no longer proclaiming yourself as the world's greatest basketball player, you're no longer <laughs> proclaiming your innocence as some kind of self-superiority. No, your mouth's been shut along those lines, and you now recognize you've become guilty before God, the perfect standard, his law, to which you always fall short. Then don't stop there. Don't stop in the fall. Just let the fall wake you up to your fallenness, your need for a savior, and then come unto Christ. Accept his grace. You finally know you need it. You understand what I mean by set you up for failure in order to set you up for success? You understand why the mouth needs to be shut so we can then open our ears instead and hear the law first condemn us so that Christ can then come and redeem us? Let's shift from chains to ropes again. Okay, let's go back to the rope analogy. And I've talked before about the ropes of the Redeemer. We don't even know we need them when we're on the valley floor. What do I need a rope for? That's innocence in Eden. But then we fall. We fall short. We fall down and we are in a pit of our own digging. And there's no way out. We cannot justify ourselves. We cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. No, we're stuck down here. Until a voice emerges from above and a rope descends and the Savior says, grab a hold. Or even better, the Savior descends on the rope and says, grab a hold of me. I'll, I'll hold on back. And then we can be lifted out by him. But now we're at the valley level again. I'm back to innocence. Thank you. I've reached justification. And we can thank the Lord and say, bless you for your ropes. They sure came in handy. And he said, you know, that's actually not what I have ropes for. You think the valley is good? You should see the view from the mountaintop. These ropes can be used for rescue, but really what they're intended for is for belaying on the upper ascent. It's for mountain. These are mountain climbing ropes. I guess they can be used for rescue, but that's their, they have a higher intent. And now that you know the strength of the rope, and now you know the strength of the hand on the other end of it, you want to climb with me? You'll be amazed at the view from the top. Holiness awaits you, not mere innocence. You've been justified through this rescue. You can be sanctified through the ascent. As we climb higher, faith to faith, progress, grow up in God. What do you say? I don't think we would even know that we needed Christ without the fall shutting us up and proving the point. I don't think we would have even recognized that there were mountains up there if, we'd fall, if we hadn't fallen in the pit far beneath the valley floor. I certainly don't think we would have come to trust the Redeemer if we hadn't gotten to know him when we came to know our need of redemption. I actually had a conversation with a loved one once and said, you know, I know you're struggling. When are you going to start loving Jesus? And this person was 
taken aback by how stark my statement was. And, and they were livid. They're like, how dare you say I don't love Jesus? I'm like, I, I, I know you love Jesus. I just want to be specific. You love Jesus as an example. You don't yet love Jesus as a Savior. And that's what's holding you back. Your whole life has been spent strictly keeping his commandments, following him every step of the way. You love him as your example and you follow it until you fell short. Happens to us all. But having fallen short, you think it's over. You don't know how to follow him because you, he didn't set an example for this. He never sinned. Oh, I know, but he condescended to sinners to lift us out of our own pit. But for that, you have to acknowledge him as a savior, a savior that you need for salvation. And when are you going to love him like that? I've even asked students, imagine you're on a car trip and you're caravanning, but you don't know how to get to the destination. So you're staying as close to the lead driver, the lead car as you possibly can. This happened to me once when I was a brand new driver and I was following my uncle and he knew the way and his car was faster than I was. And we're out in the middle of nowhere and every hill I'd just book it down as fast as I could to try to catch up with him. But then by the next uphill, I kept losing ground. And I'm like, I'm dead. This was the day before cell phones. If I can't keep up, it, I'm a goner. And so I've asked students, if you were in a caravan and could only memorize one number about the leader in the front car, would you prefer to know their license plate number or their cell phone number? You see, license plate number is perfect obedience. I will follow and never lose sight. Like, that's the car. I recognize the plate. But what happens when you get held up by a red light? Not of your choosing. Or what happens if you weren't paying attention and they turned and you didn't? What happens if somebody pulls in between you and you lose sight of your leader, your example, your guide? It's over for you and you're hopelessly lost. Whereas if you come to know him as a savior, if you get his cell phone number and have the humility to admit, I don't know where you are or where I am, he'll come back to find you and bring you home from there. To me, there's something so profound about this whole concept of needing to know how much we need the savior. And for people guilty of toxic perfectionism or scrupulosity or works righteousness, he's talking to us now. He's talking to the Jewish Christians. He's talking to the Latter-day Saints. Too much on our side. Not thinking we need grace. No, just give me more time. That's all I need. I just need time. And I'll get to the top of the hill. I'll get over without you. I have not yet done all that I can do. You never will. So what does Paul tell us? Verse 20 is crystal clear. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. You're not going to make it. If you've sinned in the least, you've sinned. You broke a link. The chain won't hold. He says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's why I needed to introduce you to it. <laughs> you don't know the law, then you don't know sin. And everybody's guilty of it. So let me introduce the law. So the law will shut you up. The law will introduce you to your sinfulness. You need to know the perfect standard so you can finally admit the fact that you've fallen short. Do you have the humility to do that? Will you acknowledge and admit it? 
Lehi taught the same thing, by the way. 2 Nephi 2, verse 5, By the law, no flesh is justified. By the law, men are cut off. Or if you want the musical version of that, go sing Rock of Ages. The second verse says, Not the labors of my hands can fill all thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. I don't care if you never take breaks. If your zeal is overzealous, you're still not going to keep up, still not going to make it. I don't care if your tears forever flow through godly sorrow. The fact that you have something to be sorrowful about, yeah, you've sinned. It's over. Your only hope. You see, here's the thing. Back to the chasm analogy and the chain from the top. I fear that lots of Latter-day Saints assume that repentance looks like this. I broke a link. Oh, the chain won't hold. Dang it. I'm going to do so much better next time. I've learned from my mistake, and I'm never going to sin again. I can, I can still live a perfect life if somebody will just wipe away this particular sin. If Jesus could just come, little help, little help. If you could come back over, oh, this is it. He's on the other side. His chain held. Great. Jesus, would you mind swinging back over? Oh, and don't forget the blowtorch. We turn Jesus into a welder instead of a savior. And we ask him to swing back over. And if you'll just, it was just this one link. Okay, maybe a few. But if you'll reforge them, then now my chain holds. And I'll swing back over on my own. Thank you very much. I only needed you for a moment. Now I can get back to all I can do. You know that Jesus doesn't believe in welding? Well, welding links, sealing power. But what he wants to weld you to is him. He will not reforge your chain. He wanted it to break. Because if it would have held for you, then you wouldn't have needed to hold on to him. So what does he do? He swings back over. And you're like, where's the, where's the, the blowtorch? He's like, ah, I, I don't have one. But you want to ride? You see... As far as the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are concerned, faith is realizing not that our chain holds, but that Christ's does. I have evidence of his perfection and his perfect love and mercy. So my faith is in Christ and Christ's chain. My repentance is realizing I've broken my own chain and there's no way for me to fix it. I'm in need of salvation. I need a savior. So my repentance is abandoning my chain. And then my baptism, my covenants, is holding on to Jesus instead. Just wrapping up around him and him wrapping his arms around us, the arms of safety. That's my covenant relationship. That's my baptism. And then the Holy Ghost comes along to keep whispering in our ear, don't look down, don't look down, don't look down. (laughs) He's got you. It's okay. Stay holding on tight. And with that, the Lord swings us back to salvation. Together we climb the mountain. That's what those ropes were for. You understand? What Paul is teaching here is absolutely essential for every Jewish Christian to know, for every Latter-day Saint Christian to know, for everyone that's beating themselves up over their imperfect obedience. Verse 21 then, he builds on it. But now the righteousness of God, without the law, so independent of that law, is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. 
Isn't that interesting? I thought you said it was outside the law. Then why do you talk about the law and the prophets? Oh, well, because the law pointed above and beyond itself. The prophets weren't trying to get people to come unto them. The prophets were trying to get people to come unto Christ. So the law and prophets pointed above and beyond themselves to something higher and holier, namely the righteousness of God. Which, and he is above the law. He wrote the law. He provided it as a way to prepare us to come unto him, but also to convince us we can't come unto him without him. So he says, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference. No difference between Jew and Gentile. We're all in the same sinking ship. We all need his help. In fact, what the law was trying to accomplish, those works of the law that end up getting written in our hearts, the law was just means. The end was to come unto Christ. That's why we failed in the law. And the law was a perfect standard meant to introduce us to our imperfections. So if the law is the means to introduce us to a greater ends, and that ends is the salvation that only comes through the grace of Christ, no wonder Christ came to answer the ends of the law. The law was means. Christ is ends. You get it? Then a, a series of verses that are as good as gold. Verse 23, 24, 25. Romans 3, this passage, is another oh, thesis statement in the letters of Paul. We saw one back in chapter 1. The just shall live by faith. We see another one here in 23, 4, 5. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the verse that clarifies we're all in the same sinking ship. Both Jews and Gentiles and Greeks and barbarians and <laughs> insiders and outsiders and members and non-members. Everyone's a goner. The law came to shut us up by when we, whenever we said we're not. No, we've all fallen short. So what's the solution? If that's the problem, and it's a universal problem, then what's the solution? Next verse. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Wait a minute. Justified freely by his grace? It was free? We didn't have to do anything for it? No, no, no. It's after all we can do. Okay, careful. It's actually funny to me because, again, with all my evangelical interfaith work, sometimes they'll accuse us of, like, you guys don't believe in grace enough. You, that's why you work so hard and you think you're earning heaven and, and God doesn't owe you any grace because you didn't need any. You, you made it on your own. What's funny is if they point out verse 24, and it's a great one for them to point to a Latter-day Saint or point a Latter-day Saint to. No, we're justified freely by his grace. I would say, so true. Amen and amen. In fact, can I even make it stronger with the help of the Joseph Smith translation? Now, you're probably going to want to chuck the JST thing. Oh, no, he's probably going to reintroduce works. No, listen to the Joseph Smith translation of that phrase. Verse 24. Therefore, being justified only by his grace. I mean, that's hilarious. Freely by his grace in the King James, but only by his grace in the inspired version. It's even stronger the way Joseph Smith reworded it. It's... At the end of the day, the only thing that saves us is grace. That's it. In fact, let me, let me go ahead and do it. Let me give you a preview of that, uh, that combination of Nephi and Jacob. 
Like I said before, unfortunately, Nephi's language is more memorable. It rolls off the tongue. It is by grace we are saved after all we can do. But the after there makes it sound chronological. And because it ends the verse, that's what we're left with. Hanging over us, have you done all you can? Ooh, then grace cannot yet come to save you. Now, that verse, if you read the whole thing, 2 Nephi 25, 23, it talks about reconciliation, and it talks about grace, and it talks about all we can do, and puts it in some kind of order. But like I said, Jacob already taught that, and in my opinion, Jacob taught it better. Jacob's version appears in 2 Nephi 10, which precedes 2 Nephi 25. And Jacob also talks about reconciliation. He also talks about grace and an order of things. But the way Jacob phrases it, though it's less memorable than Nephi's, to me it's more clear and more compelling. And he leaves the right side of things hanging, echoing in the air. So listen to this. 2 Nephi 10 verse 24 from Jacob. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, reconcile yourselves to the will of God and not to the will of the devil and the flesh. And I would insert right there, that's what our works are for. Not to earn heaven, not to convince God that, we're, that we deserve it, not to reforge our links somehow. No, works are meant to retrain our will. They're meant to help us develop righteous reflexes. It's like Danyo-san in the Karate Kid, and I'm waxing on and I'm waxing off, but that's not to buy my karate lessons. No, it's to train my, to give myself some muscle memory. It's to reconcile my will, to wean me off myself, my lower self, and become more holy. But then he says this, now remember, after ye are reconciled unto God, so you've done all this, all the wax on, wax off. You've, you've served in your callings and you've participated in the ordinances and you've lived a life of discipleship. Well, great, that doesn't save you. <laughs> I know that's hard to, to, to swallow, but check it out. After ye are reconciled unto God, remember that it is only in and through the grace of God that ye are saved. It's not that he saves you after of, of everything you've done. It's even after everything you've done, remember that the only saving that occurs is because of what Jesus did, not because of what you did. You were just retraining yourself with these righteous reflexes so you'd stop stiff-arming God whenever he offered his grace. <laughs> Think about trying to feed a, a bird that's so skittish and fearful, and I'm just trying to help. And if I can retrain you to realize that I'm your friend and not your enemy, I'm your benefactor, I'm trying to provide for you, then maybe we'll have a reconciled will so we're actually open to the salvation that Christ is offering us all along. Make sense? With that in mind, you're ready for verse 25. Because if 23 tells us the problem, we're all in the same sinking ship. 24 tells us the solution. We're going to be justified freely only by God's grace. Then 25 tells us how it works, how God made it possible. Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness, not yours, his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. 
Now that verse is full of words we never use in casual conversation. Forbearance, let's start at the end and work our way back. Forbearance is this patient restraint. We rein ourselves in. Uh, another way to say this, forbearance, let's talk about another four word, like foreclosure. If I haven't paid my mortgage, then the bank is going to foreclose on me. It's what I deserve. I haven't kept my part of the contract. But if the bank decides out of its own mercy and the riches of its goodness, we're not going to foreclose. Instead, we're going to forbear. And we'll be patient and restrain ourselves from executing the penalty that you actually deserve. And you know it. You signed on the dotted line. Well, God is forbearing. Remember the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? Well, how does he prove that? He's trying to prove something. When it says he's there to declare his righteousness, declare means to prove, to give evidence. He's trying to reveal his righteousness. He's not there to demand our perfect righteousness. No, he's there to declare his own perfect righteousness. We saw that same idea back in chapter 1. But here, how does he declare his righteousness? Well, through the forbearance of God. But how on earth can the bank afford to forbear instead of foreclose? How did he, they gain so much riches of goodness and forbearance and long-suffering? Oh, well, let me tell you. Begin the verse. God set forth Jesus Christ, the author of grace. He's the one whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. As long as we have faith in his blood, in his life and death, in his atoning sacrifice, then that declares God's righteousness and God will be forbearing in our behalf. Now, the big word there is propitiation. We never use that one. Propitiation, to propitiate means to appease. It means to offer something in hopes that an offended party will be forbearing. And I've hurt the bank's feelings, or I've offended God, and, oh, please, I promise I will offer some kind of, oh, I don't know, a good faith. This is all the money I have, and I know it's not enough, but I am showing that I'm serious here. Will you please accept it? This is my propitiation. Propitiation is an atonement word. But here's the irony. It's not us propitiating. The way it's phrased there, whom, so it's talking about Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. It's not us appeasing God. It's God appeasing us? Wait, wait what? God is sending his son to be a propitiation? To reassure us? The bill's not coming due anytime soon. It's okay. You have time. I'm going to take that guilt gap and infuse it with grace. I'm not going to lower the standard, but I'm not going to judge you by it and snap you up to the top and realize, nope, you weren't ready. You, didn't, you weren't here. And so you're out, expelled from school, evicted from, the, from the, the, the apartment. No, I'm going to fill the guilt gap with grace so you have time. And I have time to work in you and with you and on you to help you change and grow up in God. That's the purpose of all of this. That's why the Father sent me as a propitiation. Now, technically, the word propitiate, the Greek word here only shows up twice in the New Testament. Here's the one instance, and the book of Hebrews is the other. But in the Hebrews, it's translated in a wild way. It's translated as the mercy seat. You see, propitiation is atonement language, but it's not just the object of 
atonement. It's also the location of atonement. And the mercy seat was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. It's there in the Holy of Holies, in the presence of God. Remember, the veil was torn apart when Christ was crucified so that we can now enter God's presence. Remember Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, hmm, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, the high priest can enter the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat, upon the altar of sacrifice in some ways. Not the altar out in front. No, this is, actually altar is not even a good word. Mercy seat's great. Throne of grace is great. Paul calls it that as well. Even in our hymn book, I stand all amazed. Will I ever forget what Jesus did for me? No, no. I will praise and adore at the mercy seat until at the glorified throne I kneel at his feet. That's actually redundancy and a preview of coming attractions. The mercy seat is the throne, the throne of grace. And I'm coming to it, coming boldly, as Paul will tell the Hebrews, to receive a remission of sins by him who sits upon that throne of grace. Here, when it says that God sets forth Jesus Christ as a propitiation, he sets him forth as a mercy seat, as a throne of grace, as a covering to the covenant. Remember in our Old Testament study, the Hebrew word for atone is to cover. And so a lid becomes the ultimate object lesson for the atonement of Christ. I cover it. And what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The tablets of law. So think about it, especially in this context of Jews and Gentiles and circumcision and uncircumcision and law versus grace. The law is in the box, but the mercy seat stands above it. That grace supersedes law because law always ends up getting broken. The law convinces you that you're broken, that we're broken, and that we need someone to come and heal us. And who's sitting above all that, looking down with mercy? He who sits on the mercy seat himself, a merciful Messiah. This passage is so profound that Jesus Christ himself the blood sprinkled on that seat belongs to him. And it's because of that blood that we can be covered for our, for our sins. That's how grace is provided. This is his plan. This was the Father's plan. It's how God proved his righteousness. God so loved the world that he set all this in motion. And we just have to step into that plan ourselves. It's absolutely beautiful. So verse 26 to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, not ours, that he might be just and not only be just himself, but next line, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. It's like Jesus being so just, he can't even contain all that justness. It just spills out over the top, overflowing in goodness and grace. That's why he's not only just, but he's justifier. I think of Oh, the leper, the untouchable who Jesus touched. Or the woman who dared, the woman with the, the issue of blood who dared to touch Jesus and felt virtue flow into her instead of uncleanness flow into him. This is Jesus saying, you're not the contagious one. I am. 
And my innocence, my holiness, in fact, can flow into you because I'm so just that I can justify. Get out of that pit. <laughs> I'm, I'm carrying you up with me. Now, all that being true, then notice what Paul says next. Since it's his righteousness, and he's the just one, and he's the justifier of all of us who believe, well, where is boasting then? And let me answer it. It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Oh no, nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without or outside the, the deeds of the law. Now, do you see what he's saying there? It's not the law that's going to save us. It's going to be grace that saves us. Otherwise, we end up boasting. We boast in the law. We boast of our mastery of the law. We boast that we're better than people that, that live outside the law. All those problems. So I'm trying to rein you in from that side by, re, by reminding you that there is no way home but by grace. His chain is the only one that holds. So trust in that. But again, I don't want you to... I want you to correct. I don't want you to overcorrect. So notice the way he phrased it. He's asking, by what law? Remember, law isn't just our enemy that condemns. It's also our friend that perfects and sanctifies. So what law are we working under now? He wonders, is it the law of works? And he says, no, that's not going to get there because you can't work that well. So what about what's the other option? What's the other law? Well, how about the law of faith? Wait, wait, wait. There's a law of faith? I thought law was on the work side. I've actually done this with my students as well. It's really helpful visually to put this up on the board. And I'll write words like law and grace and works and faith and say, organize them. And invariably, students will always say, okay, put law and grace on opposite sides and then put works under law and put grace or put faith under grace. Because that's how it works, right? If you believe in the law, then you better work perfectly within it. If you believe in grace, then you, it's faith in what Christ did that saves you. I'm like, okay, great. This sounds good. But here's the thing. Uh, does that mean there's no law and God doesn't want that because we're saved by grace? Or does that mean there's no need for works because, hey, I've got faith and that's all I need? I don't know. James is worried about that. In fact, Paul's worried about it too. So how do we prove the contraries? And usually what I'll do is I'll pull out another two slips of paper that again say faith and works. So now we've got two sets of faith and two sets of works. And then we still have this overarching law versus grace. And what I'm getting at here with this law of faith is the suggestion that faith has its own law too. A way it works of, of understanding the evidence and acting on it and then seeing the reassurance. And, and you understand what I'm saying here? So on the board, what I'll do is let's make sure we hold this all together. There's law on one side and there's grace on the other. And those Jews who thought they were going to be saved by perfect obedience to the law, well, that's putting a lot of faith in that law, isn't it? So let's put faith over here on the law side. I believe the law can save me. But what will the law require? Well, absolute obedience to it. Perfect works. Ooh, so let's put works over there. The idea here is faith and works will exist on both sides of the equation. It's just a matter of what are we placing our faith in and what are we working toward? If I believe that the law will save me, 
then I'm placing my faith there and I'm working accordingly. Meanwhile, if I've come to admit I can't, the law can't save me because I can't live it perfectly. In fact, the law came and shut me up and made me guilty before God. And now I realize I'm in the pit and the only way out is the, the ropes of the Redeemer. And yes, I want to mount and climb afterwards. So what do I now see on this side of the, of the board? It's now grace on the top. And it still has its own law of grace and a law of faith that requires works to come right alongside it. Not to earn my way to heaven. That's the law side. We've abandoned that. It doesn't work. But there's still a law of grace that requires that I exercise faith in that grace and then work accordingly. Not work to earn salvation, but work to retrain my will. Wax on, wax off. Again, I love the Karate Kid. That moment when he finally realizes why he's been doing all this yard work for Miyagi and paint the floor and, or paint the fence and sand the floor and paint the house and all these things, it's to, it's to train him. The, my favorite moment in the entire movie is when, it, when Miyagi starts throwing all these punches and Danya-san finds himself blocking everyone because he's got muscle memory. Because in that moment, it dawns on him I thought I was paying for my karate lessons. And I thought you were not going to give me those lessons until after all I had done. And I started getting angry and bitter and tired and wondering if you were ever going to do anything for me. And you've been doing something for me this whole time. All these works were just to reconcile my will. You've been training me this whole time to be a black belt just like you? Mind blown. My favorite moment. And I hope we someday have that moment ourselves. I haven't been serving out of debt. I haven't been serving out of punishment. I haven't been working to pay off something I owe God. He's been training me this whole time. It's all will reconciliation. It's putting me into a condition where I'm actually accepting of the grace of God. Whoa, do you have any more cars to wax? <laughs> or fences to paint, to paint? Any more I can do in order to become? You see, it doesn't make us any less active. It makes us less anxious. It doesn't make us any less committed. It makes us less concerned. You understand? It, it changes everything because I realize my faith is in grace and my, and my works will be the works of faith. That's the law of faith after all. That's the side of the board I will live on. It's the just by faith that we'll live that way. So how does this chapter end? It's the same path for everybody. And he clarifies it. He confirms it. Verse 29 through 31. Is he the God of the Jews only? Oh, you should know better by the, than that by now. Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes. In case you were wondering. Of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God. And so, of course, it's got to be the God of both. He's the only God that exists. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. It's faith either way. 
and then lest we run to that side of the ship and, and collapse into the ocean on that side, lest we overcorrect in our zeal to correct ourselves, he asks one last question. Do we then make void the law through faith? So we just chuck in it then, doesn't matter? Oh, you should know better than that by now as well. God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. This is just like what he said earlier about the oracles. They mean something. Just not what you think. Circumcision means something. Just not what you think. The law means something. But it means so much more than what you think. Grace is what gives us the time to become all that the law intended. That upper line holds. The, the grace gap allows it to stay there. It vindicates the law. It confirms that the law's ends were right. It just admits that the law's means were insufficient. Through the grace of Christ, I'll get there. But there's no other way. As we conclude chapter 3, and I told you these are the most important three chapters you'll get in the letters of Paul in many ways. And yes, take a good long break. This has been incredibly long. I'm still going to teach 4, 5, and 6. That'll be in our next part. Uh, and, and you can rest up and come back for, for more. Those are incredible chapters too. They'll go by much faster than these first three did. But can I sum up what we've been talking about to this point? Again, with this concept of proving contraries, finding the Goldilocks zone, and not, leading, not letting either virtue extremify itself to become a vice. Okay, that's what we're getting at here. That's, that's the concept. That's why Paul's trying to keep things together. And usually he does it with a question that he then responds with, God forbid. It's one of his favorite lines. He'll say this repeatedly through many of his letters. And almost every time he says, God forbid, it's a swinging of the pendulum back to the celestial center. You see, he knows he's teaching things that require better balance. And so he's pushing people away from where they've gotten comfortable and complacent. But fearing that oh, once we swing, it's going to swing all the way over. He says, he, then it's almost like he pushes the envelope and says, what, is this what I mean? Fine, let's take it to the extreme. By limiting the law, am I chucking the whole thing? Am I saying that there's no point to it? Yeah, let's push that. And then let me answer the question. God forbid, which is his way of pulling us back from going overboard on the other side. You got it? Pay attention to that every time you see him use the phrase. Uh, whenever I go bowling, and I'm a horrible bowler, it's those gutters on both sides that, I'm, that always haunt me. And that's the need for proving contraries. Like, oh, I can fall off on that extreme or on that extreme. Whoever came up with bumper bowling was thinking of a bowler like me. And, God, and Paul's God forbid statements are like the bumper bowling. And then let's put something here like, no, 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 no. You can't go down the gutter on this side. God forbid. Come back. Oh, so over there then? No, no, no. God forbid. And he's constantly trying to usher us into this center of the straight and narrow path. Okay? So keep that in mind. And then one last story to finish chapter 3. And this is an analogy I love to share with my evangelical Christian friends. It has to do with a straight and narrow path, too. I just call it a sidewalk. And on this sidewalk, I say, I've said this to my pastor friends. I've shared this with evangelical groups. Because I want to let them know that we're more alike than we are different. 
And we've got to get past this oppositionality where they keep accusing us of works righteousness and we keep accusing them of sloppy agape and cheap grace. Because good evangelicals are good people. And they serve and they lift and they love and they're active in their faith. So many works that they engage in. They just don't prioritize works. And they don't, they don't call them works. They don't call them ordinances. They don't, want, they don't want to touch that word with a 10-foot pole. I'm not earning salvation. That's what Mormons do. And yet, Latter-day Saints, no, it's not works righteousness. It's not what we believe. Go read the Book of Mormon. It's grace on practically every page. Go read what Lehi taught Jacob. You'll love it. I actually sat down with an evangelical pastor friend of mine, and we read... <laughs> we read King Benjamin's address together. And I said, I think you'll really like this because King Benjamin was an evangelical Nephite. Watch this. And he's like, whoa, that's amazing. I can sign off on everything he said. That was fun. But what I'll say here with this sidewalk analogy is Latter-day Saints and evangelicals really can walk hand in hand down this straight and narrow path. We're both really trying to balance justice and mercy and faith and works and law and grace. I think the difference is we pick different sides of the sidewalk to, to walk down. But we're on the same sidewalk, heading in the same direction. I think we really can get along if we'll just honor each other's efforts and honor the choices each community is making as to which side of the sidewalk they'll walk on. Now, here's the story to illustrate. I love going on walks with my wife. But I'm constantly switching sides of the sidewalk. And there's times I'm walking on her right and times I'm walking on her left. And people are like, why do you keep switching? I'm like, ah, because there are dual dangers ahead. One danger is oncoming traffic. That's on the street side. But the other danger is oncoming canines, dogs on the other side. And that's not on the street side. That's on the yard side. You see, I don't want my wife to be hit by traffic. And she's scared to death that a dog might run out and scare her. There's some hilarious stories of things she did when she thought was, she was being chased by a dog. I won't embarrass her with those, but they're hilarious stories. What ends up happening then is I'm typically on the street side. If a car hits me, eh, I'm more expendable. Just ask my kids. But when I see a dog in a yard on the other side, I'll always switch to the other side. That way it gets me before it can get her. My choice of which side of the sidewalk depends on which danger I'm more concerned about. Okay? Now hold to that thought. And which danger scares evangelicals to death? Pride. Boasting that we don't need the grace of God. They are so scared of that, they will shy away from works and emphasize grace and grace alone, and faith and faith alone. Even though they engage in a lot of righteous works themselves, and bless them for it. Meanwhile, Latter-day Saints, which side of the sidewalk do we choose? We want to shy away from an overemphasis on grace. We are scared to death of presuming upon His grace, and despising the riches of His goodness and, and forbearance and long-suffering. We're scared to death of complacency, of another round and put it on Jesus' tab because he's got it. We're scared to death of sloppy agape. And so we work 
and we strive and we try and we serve, but we also believe and love and exercise faith and rest assured in the goodness of God. Do you understand? One side is afraid to boast and the other side is afraid to coast. And those are both good fears to be aware of. We need to be equally afraid of both. And we need to be equally willing to embrace the positives of both sides. That faith without works is dead, as James said, but that works without faith is debtor, as President Oaks has said. That somewhere in between there is a celestial center and the best way to stay on it is to follow Jesus Christ. That path lies in a direct course before Him. And He is the keeper of the gate and He employs no servant there. If we will come unto Him, He will lift us to glory. He will make us into someone like Him. He will swing us across back to God and we will have come to know Him through the process. So close your mouth, open your ears, open your heart, and come unto Christ. Chapter 4 is what awaits us after we've emerged from this dense doctrinal discussion in chapter 1, 2, and 3. Did you take a break? Have you come up for air? Are you still holding on to the truths we discussed in the first three chapters? If so, you're now ready for 4, 5, and 6. And these, relatively speaking, will fly by. Okay, Let's start in verse 1. And we're going to see Abraham here. I mentioned Abraham earlier on, uh, where the posterity of Abraham and, the, and Jews and Gentiles are equally well, beholden to him for the blessings of God. The Abrahamic covenant was not only for Abraham's seed, but through their seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. This is exclusivity and pursuit of inclusivity. So let's get back to Abraham. Chapter 4, verse 1. What shall we say then that Abraham, our father... He must be addressing the Jewish side of things, but he's hinting to bring the Gentiles in. Abraham's our father, the father of us all. What will we say about him as pertaining to the flesh? What, what, is, what is that found? For if Abraham were justified by works, and the JST clarifies that, by the law of works, that's the works side of things, the law side of things. There's a law of faith and it requires works, but we're just talking about works alone. If Abraham were justified by that, then fine, he hath whereof to glory. And the JST adds, in himself. Oh yeah, he can boast, he can pat himself on the back. Look what I did. I never needed a welding torch. I pulled this off. But he wouldn't be able to glory before God. Because God had nothing to do with it. He was able to pull it off all independently. But that's not how it works. For what saith the scripture, Paul asks, and then he quotes it. Abraham believed God. There's faith for you. And it was counted unto him for righteousness. It counted for something even though he hadn't done it. Now the irony here, what's amazing to me, the law of works that we talked about at the end of chapter 3, the law of works precludes the need for faith. But the law of faith includes the need for works. You see the difference there? To preclude means I don't need it. Include means I want it as a part. And if I'm on the law of works side, the, law, the, the, the whole law side of the board, I don't need anything on the faith side. The grace side. Whereas if I'm on the grace side, then 
my faith includes the works that manifest that faith, the works that that faith motivates and inspires. And the way he puts it there, Abraham believed God, and yet God counted it for righteousness. And righteousness would be on, more on the works side of things. I did righteous things. Now, what's amazing about this is think about the, the, one of the most famous stories about Abraham, which is the sacrifice of Isaac. But was there a sacrifice of Isaac? I mean, I know he intended to, but did he, did he actually follow through? I mean, if we were to interrogate Abraham and say, did you sacrifice your son as God commanded? He'd have to say, well, no. Oh, so you didn't sacrifice. Well, I was willing to, I know, but I'm asking if you did it. Can we count it as a work of righteousness? Well, again, I guess technically no. And what's God going to say? Forget the technicalities. He was willing to do it. The only reason he didn't is because I sent the angel to stay the hand. He was ready to go. So I'm going to count it as if he did. This to me, I love juxtaposing Abraham and his sacrifice, where he didn't actually sacrifice, to Laman and Lemuel's sacrifice, where they did actually sacrifice, but it's as if they didn't. <laughs> We're comparing what people did or didn't do compared to what God counted as having been done or not done. And Abraham's the example of someone who didn't actually sacrifice, but it, God counted it as if he had. And then Laman and Lemuel, who did actually sacrifice, but God counted it as if he hadn't. Now we're going back to the inward versus the outward and the, the heart and where that is and what do I intend to do. And God will judge us based on the heart. And if Gentiles never had the chance to live the law, but would have if they'd been given the opportunity, count it. Count it every time. You see in verse 4, to him that worketh, is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, oh, his faith is counted for righteousness. And isn't that what we want? Now, you have to be really careful with those verses. Because it sounds like working is the problem. Oh, you, you see, if you work, then he owes you. But no, it's just the law of works. And if you pull it off perfectly, then he owes you. But you've, nobody's ever pulled that off. So let's calm ourselves down there and not rush to the side of, oh, stop working, stop working, because it's going to go to your head and you're going to end up boasting. No, just coast your way to, to the kingdom. And that's not what he's saying. And in fact, the JST clarifies this beautifully. Here's the inspired version. Now to him who is justified by the law of works. It's not just him that worketh. We are going to work in one way or another. But no, those who are justified by the law of works, it actually, they pulled it off. It's only in that case that the reward is reckoned not of grace, but of debt. That God really does owe anyone who's able to pull that off the salvation that they've earned. It's a debt, not a gift in that case. But, the other hand, to him that seeketh not to be justified by the law of works, notice it's not... I, I don't want to work, and I shouldn't work, and so I'm going to avoid it. It's like, no, I'm just avoiding thinking that that's going to justify me. I'm not on that side of the board. I'm on the grace side of the board. But I'm going to work into it, okay? The work in, within the law of faith. Him that seeketh not to be justified by the law of works. I'm not going that way. But believeth on him who justifieth not the ungodly, 
Oh, that's the case. His faith is counted for righteousness. Now, there's two parts of that I want to wrestle with. This first is about if you've been justified by the law of works, then it is a debt that God owes you. But like I said, nobody's pulled that off. Well, actually, one person did, but only Jesus. I've sometimes asked my students, how was Jesus saved? By grace or law? And it's an interesting thing to wrap our heads around, like, whoa, Jesus wasn't saved by grace. I mean, you think about it. What, did, did Christ's atonement cover his own mistakes? No, that's really pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. You can't do that. Now, if somebody's going to swing across the chasm, their chain has to hold every single link. It wasn't, Jesus wasn't saved out of mercy. He was saved out of justice. God owed him salvation. He totally earned it himself. But knowing that none of us can, that's why he swings back and picks us up every time and brings us over as long as we have faith in him. You got it? So that's an interesting realization first. There's a sense of debt, but only to Jesus. But then this other change. In the King James, it talked about, you better believe on him that justifieth the ungodly. I mean, that's real faith. It's like, this person doesn't deserve to be saved at all. Look at them. They're ungodly. And yet Jesus comes in and scoops them up and brings them home. Hallelujah. That's somebody to have faith in. But the JST introduces the word not. Oh, careful. We have to believe on him who justifieth not the ungodly. That's the kind of faith that counts for righteousness. Oh, he doesn't justify the ungodly? No, don't overcorrect on this. Don't overswing the pendulum. He's not going to go scoop in sinners that don't want to hold on to him. There's no covenant relationship. They're going to slip right through his grasp. He's not going to force them to heaven. He's not going to save them in their sins. And once we realize we're trying to avoid the extreme, the extreme of toxic perfectionism on one side, but we're trying to ex avoid the extreme of moral relativism on the other. And so toxic perfectionism, no, 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 no. You've, you're not going to make it. Only Jesus did. Okay, fine. Moral relativism? No, 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 no. He does not justify the ungodly. Repentance is required. You, that's the only hope you have. And then he quotes another psalm. Verse 6. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man, unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying... And then he quotes Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2. Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. See what David is saying there? This man really has committed sins. They're just covered. He really has committed iniquity. It's just they've been forgiven. He's guilty, but the Lord isn't counting it against him. He's not imputing sin to him. That's what David said. But what Paul is saying is slightly different. He takes that same idea from David, but then turns it around and describes a man who hasn't worked, at least not worked perfectly. And yet the Lord takes that effort, that intent, that faith, that hope, and imputes it to him for righteousness. In David's case, you're a sinner, but I'm not going to count you as a sinner. In Paul's case, you're not quite a saint, but I'm going to count you as a saint because you're a sinner who keeps on trying, okay? So there's this difference between 
what is being done or not done, and what God is choosing to count. Okay? What is counted for you or, or against you? And with that, let's get back to Jew and Gentile, which is what he's really talking about. Verse 9 and 10. Cometh this blessedness, because that was what David was talking about, blessed are those kinds of people. Cometh this blessedness then upon the circumcision only? Only the ones that did it and actually followed through and kept the law? Or could this blessedness come upon the uncircumcision also? Just for Jews or also for Gentiles? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness, but how was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? And then he answers his own question. Not in circumcision, but in uncircumcision. Now to make sense of what Paul just taught there, we've got to know our chronology of the life of Abraham. Because what he's getting at is, when did Abraham achieve this blessedness? Had he done something and was being rewarded? Did God owe him something? Was he paying him back because of debt? Or was it before he had done anything? And yet his heart was in the right place, and so God is then imputing righteousness to him. Kind of almost rewarding him in advance, because he, he knows what he would do, what he would want to do. Now, I've already mentioned the sacrifice of Isaac, which wasn't didn't end up being the sacrifice, okay? but it counted as such. That's in chapter 24, but that's not what Paul is getting at here. He's asking, when did the blessedness start? When did Abraham, when was he invited into the Abrahamic covenant? When did God say to him, oh, Abraham, I'm choosing you, and I'm going to bless you with posterity like the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven, with a promised land for you and your posterity forever, with the blessings of the priesthood, and everything that entails. All that happiness, peace, and rest that you were seeking. When did that happen? In the Genesis account, it happened in chapter 12. And here's the real point. When did God give Abraham circumcision as a commandment? That was Genesis chapter 17. The order here is absolutely essential. What Paul is making the point of is, God didn't command Abraham to be circumcised, and that's the test, and that's the, the, the payment I require, and the law you must fulfill, and so he did, and then God said, okay, good. Now I can finally bless you after all you have done. No. In some ways, Abraham hadn't done anything yet. Now, thanks to our understanding of the book of Abraham, chapter 1, Abraham had exercised an incredible amount of faith and stood up against the idolatry all around him and held to his faith in Jehovah. We can't call him the God of Israel yet because Israel hasn't come onto the scene yet. That's two generations away. But as far as Abraham is concerned, this is the true God and I will honor him instead of all these false gods around me. That's my faith. I don't know what he wants me to do. But I know he doesn't want me to <laughs> dilute my discipleship and honor all these false gods that don't even exist. So no, I honor God. And God honored him said, Abraham, I'm choosing you. And Abraham lived with that blessing in mind, even before he had any evidence that it would be fulfilled. But then by the time you get to chapter 17, he then gives him circumcision as a token of the covenant they've already entered into. So what Paul is trying to say to the Jews is like, go think back to your own ancestor. The father of the faithful, Mr. Exclusivity himself. Well, there's going to be inclusivity. We'll get to that. But also, 
he's an example of incredible faith. And he showed that faith and was blessed for that faith before he did the work of circumcision. It's almost like there was a, a Gentile stage of Abraham's life before there was a Jewish stage of his life. And God called him in during the Gentile stage. <laughs> during the outsider, he brought him in and then gave him circumcision as a token of the covenant. That's what he says in verse 11 and 12. He received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, yet being uncircumcised. He'd already had that faith. He hadn't done the work yet, but the heart was in the right place. So fine, let me give you something to show where your heart is, a sign, a seal, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised. There's Abraham as father of both the Jew and the Gentile alike. That righteousness might be imputed unto them also, just like it was imputed unto him. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham, which he had been yet uncircumcised. I know he's talking a lot about circumcision, uncircumcision, all that. It's just Jew Gentile every time, but... He walked in the steps, and that's a work, walking in the steps, of that faith. Oh, there's faith and works coming together hand in hand, walking down the sidewalk together. You see what he's describing here? Abraham had faith first, and God honored that faith and blessed him and called him for it, chose him. He gave him works, but it wasn't to earn his chosenness, he'd already received it. It wasn't to pay God back for his chosenness either. It was simply a sign and a seal. You know, when I, when I got married, I felt like I was marrying so far above me. Couldn't believe she said yes. I love my wife and I have tried to serve her Imperfectly, unfortunately, but I have tried to serve her ever since we've been married. And as I tell my students, I don't serve my wife to pay her back for marrying me. I don't serve my wife to keep her in the covenant relationship. No, we, we have a covenant relationship. But covenant relationships involve signs and seals I just want to show her how much I love her. I, I don't want, I hopefully haven't given her any cause to doubt, but I want to give her cause to believe. I want signs and seals. I want acts of service. And, and that's how I feel about serving the Lord. I'm not paying him back. I'm not serving out of debt because he owes me nothing. And I owe him everything, but he never considers it that way. No, it's just we're in a relationship. And yeah, you married infinitely above you. Uh, and, and I brought everything into the relationship and you brought a lot of baggage, but that's okay. I, I, love, I love you. Beloved of God and called to be saints, like he started this whole letter. You understand how the Lord feels about us when he marries us? He gives us signs of that love and then seals us to him in a covenant relationship? And so if we understand that, again, we're still just as active. We're just not any more anxious. And I serve, but not out of debt. I do it out of devotion. That describes a good marriage. It's not debt. It's 
devotion. And that's why I serve. In verse 13, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law. I mean, after all, he hadn't been given the law yet. He didn't know how God wanted him to live. That would come. How did it come then instead? At first, through the righteousness of faith. He believed in the Lord. He promised to be faithful to him. That's the righteousness of faith. For if they which are of the law be heirs, then faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. I mean, we've got perfect obedience to the law. That's all we need, right? And so as long as we do that, then, yeah, I guess I don't need faith. I don't need a promise because it's, <laughs> it's a guarantee. I don't have to trust God's character on that. I don't, at least I don't have to trust his mercy. I know he owes me, and he better pay up. Careful with that. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. Now we're back to what he'd said earlier. The law is what wakes us up to our transgressions. It what, it's what pinpoints our need for the Savior's grace. So verse 16, Therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace, rather than the opposite, of works that it might be by debt. It's like, which one, which one do you want? Do you want to work by faith so that God's grace can be sufficient? Or do you want to work by works so that God owes you something? Now, again, you're going to have to live it perfectly. Think you can do that? Actually, the JST clarifies it in a beautiful way. Instead of saying it's a faith that it might be by grace, it says ye are justified of faith and works through grace. That's what I was describing before about both faith and work being required on both sides of this issue. It's either faith in the law and then working accordingly, perfect obedience, or it's faith in grace and working accordingly showing our devotion to the covenant. You got it? So he goes on. This is to the end that the promise might be sure to all the seed, both Jew and Gentile. Not to that only which is of the law, those are the Jews, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham. And that's kind of the Gentile side of his story. Who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Now that's a, an odd ending there. He's been talking about Abraham, trying to help us understand. Abraham, father of both <laughs> insiders and outsiders. He's choosing you to go choose everyone else. And so we all can look back to Abraham as an incredible example. And an example of what? Of faith. Independent or preceding any works of the law. By the way, this is actually ironic, because when people try to pit Paul and James against each other and say, oh no, Paul was all grace and James was all works, and that's not fair to either apostle, uh, either person. But what's interesting to me is Paul uses Abraham as his poster boy for faith. And guess who James uses as who his poster boy, boy for works? You guessed it, Abraham also. Which lets you know that Abraham's a great prover of contraries himself. That he exercises faith first, but then he manifests that faith through his works as signs and seals of the relationship he has with God. And having done both, Paul is going to emphasize the grace side, the faith side of Abraham, and James is going to emphasize the works side of Abraham. 
It's really cool that he's a, a perfect example of both. But here, why is he doing it? Because he has faith in God. And how is God introduced at the end of that verse? This is a God who quickens the dead. This is a God who can take things which be not, <laughs> that aren't there, and call them into existence as though they were there. Now, why that way of introducing him? Because it describes, it describes what he did with Abraham and Sarah beautifully. And, to Paul's point, it describes what he's trying to do with Gentiles beautifully too. As far as the covenant is concerned, Jews look down at Gentiles and consider them dead. Well, careful. We believe in a God who quickeneth the dead, who raises the dead, who will raise a Gentile. If he, can re if he can raise a dead Jew, then of course he can raise a dead Gentile, spiritually speaking. Watch him do it. And in fact, he, sees, he looks at things that aren't even there and he sees them. This is a spiritual creation that precedes the physical one. And then he brings them into being. And he can do the same thing with Gentiles as well. He sees their heart and pictures their, their deeds. He sees their faith and pictures their works and allots them unto them for, or accounts it unto them for righteousness. You get it? Now, while he's on this subject of bringing forth something from nothing or quickening the dead, he then pulls it back into the example of Abraham and Sarah in a really profound way. Verse 18 and 19. Who against hope believed in hope. And that to me is one of the most beautiful descriptions of faith you'll ever see. This is radical trust in a person who has persuaded you of their trustworthiness. I mean, they had no hope to have a child, but God had promised they would. Somehow I'm going to have seed like the sands of the sea and the stars of heaven. Well, that's got to start with at least one child and I haven't had any. I'm losing hope. But then again, I'm not because I'm persuaded of the power of God. So against hope, I'm going to believe in hope. That's my faith. That he might become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken. So shall thy seed be. God said it and I, I trust him. I believe in him. I have hope in him. And he said there'd be seed, so there will be. I don't care if I, if I look dead to you as a hundred year old man. Paul goes on, being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. I mean, talk about lack of life. No life forthcoming from Sarah's womb. No life in Abraham's loins. There's no way for them to have children at this stage of life, is there? Well, God promised they'd have them. So am I going to hope against hope? Believe against the evidence? Am I going to trust in a God who quickeneth the dead? Oh, even my wife's dead womb? Yeah. Am I going to believe in a God that seems to bring forth something out of nothing? Because I got nothing to offer here. And yet a son would come? What's amazing to me about all of this is Abraham and Sarah... They had evidence for both the possibility of posterity as well as the impossibility of it. I've often, when I work with people in faith crisis, I'm the first to tell them, your doubts have a leg to stand on. I'm not shy about admitting that. 
church history can be messy and there's times that it seems like God isn't answering our prayers and we get burned on occasion with things. Yeah, I get it. I can see why people would leave the life of faith. Now, I hope you understand I've paid you a compliment by honoring your position. Are you willing to do likewise and admit that faith has a leg to stand on too? We're in a court case here, and I'm lawyer for the, pro the, de for the defense, and you're lawyer for the prosecution, but are we willing to acknowledge that there is evidence on, on both sides of this court case? Otherwise, why would we be coming to court? So like I said, I, I'll honor that. I'll validate where you're coming from. Please pay me the same respect. What it's going to come down to is which side we have, we're more persuaded by. That's what the judge and jury are going to have to decide. Which case is presented more persuasively? Which evidence seems to hold more weight? As we're examining and cross-examining witnesses, who do, we, who do we trust? Who do we believe? And what's interesting here with Abraham and Sarah, did their faith have a leg to stand on? Yes, God had promised. But did their doubt have a leg to stand on? Yes, look in the mirror. I don't, there's no way we're going to have kids for, at this point. And that's why it's so amazing what they chose to do. They held to what they'd been told. I trust God and I have hope against hope. I'm persuaded by him. And when I look in the mirror, guess what? I'm not going to focus on that so much. When it says he considered not his own body now dead. I mean, I consider it, obviously, it's there, it's right in front of me, it's staring me in the face, but I'm not going to emphasize that at the exclusion of what God has said. Yes, I'm aware of both sides of this. I'm in the court case, I'm in the, on the courtroom too. I'm, on the, I'm the, on the jury or I'm the judge. But which evidence holds greater weight? I trust God. He's a God that can change death to life. They can perform miracles. There's a way to explain those doubts and dismiss them. And that's exactly what Abraham and Sarah did. And they were blessed according to their faith. That's what he says in verse 20 and 21. There are so many beautiful phrases here describing faith. We just saw one, against hope, believed in hope. Here's another. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. I love that. So often it's our own unbelief that makes us stagger when God makes us a promise that we don't think he can fulfill. It's like, nope, I, I, I'm, gonna, I'm falling back in fear. I'm overwhelmed by the impossibility of this. No, I staggered. Well, Abraham didn't stagger. Neither did Sarah. Instead, they were strong in faith, giving glory to God. Even before God had proved himself able to fulfill the promise he'd made. And here's why. Being fully persuaded. And remember, persuasion is the root word of the Greek word for faith. Being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. That's such a beautiful statement. God is as good as his word. That's why he sent his word and made it flesh and had him dwell among us. So we can see that God can be trusted. 
It's like Enos when his guilt was swept away. Why? Because I knew that God could not lie. And he said I was forgiven. So I, I took him at his word. Here's Abraham and Sarah. Their fear, their doubt swept away because I knew God is as good as his word. And what he promises, he is able to perform. When Jesus says, I am able to make you holy, trust him. When he says, I am able to do my own work, believe him. No matter how impossible it might seem, do not stagger. He can do this. So verse 22, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. He hadn't had any kids yet, but let's count it as if you do. You believe you will, so go get the, the crib assembled. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also. That's why we have this story. That's why Paul is retelling that story. For us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus Christ our Lord from the dead who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. I mean, that's the resurrection I really want to talk about. I hinted at him quickening the dead before. And then I got a little sidetrack. Well, it wasn't sidetrack. It was awesome. Uh, I talked about Abraham and the quickening of his body and Sarah's to bring forth life. But the real quickening was the quickening of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, of which I am a witness, an apostolic witness, that though he was de delivered for our offenses, we're raised with him for our justification. What's amazing about this is it's role reversal all over again. It's oh, imputing and counting. Our offenses were imputed to him even though he didn't commit them. And his righteousness is imputed to us even though we didn't perform it. That's why we can only be perfected in him. He condescends to come down to our level, but then promises us a con-ascension to be raised back to him. That's the role reversal. That's the substitutionary atonement. It's incredible. And with that in mind, chapter 5, let's expand this. We went back to Abraham. Can we go back even further? Because if it's hard for you to accept that both Jews and Gentiles come from Abraham... Well, can we agree they all come from Adam and Eve? Let's go there. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And isn't that the result of our faith? We're finally at peace. It's going to be okay. He's not going to give up on me. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see, faith is what grants us access to that grace. We believe in it. We believe we absolutely need it. So we come unto Christ. And there we stand with him. We stand in that grace. It's what keeps us on our feet. We rejoice in it. We know of the hope that is coming because of what God promised. Verse 3, not only so, but we glory in tribulations also. Hmm. This is the first time Paul's been talking about tribulation, suffering, opposition, persecution. And that's the story of his life. No, he's been talking about sin to this point. But what's interesting is what's true of sin, namely that it, there's nothing to fear. Christ has overcome it. We can learn from it. The same thing is true of tribulation. Again, nothing to fear. We can learn from it. Christ will get us through it. 
So whether it's our sins or our sufferings, both are meant to be learning opportunities. It's going to be okay. And here's the process when it comes to tribulation. I think the same could be said of sin. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience, experience, and experience, hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. No wonder Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because I have hope because of it. Hope to be, to be rescued, redeemed from my sins. Hope to be comforted through my tribulation. And he's had plenty of experience with that. I love the process he's describing. When we suffer, we learn patience one way or another. But if we learn it well and are willing to submit and let patience have its perfect work, then we gain experience. Experience, oh, there's a hefty tuition for that. It's like when people on job sites, when they're like, okay, experience must be required. And the frustration is, I have to have experience to get that job, but I need a job like that to gain experience. Well, tribulation is a great way to gain experience if you are patient through the process. And if you have experience, what do you end up with? Hope. I've had evidence from my past, which gives me assurance for my future. That's hope. Even if it's hope against hope. I believe in it. It was interesting because recently I was at a fireside and I was teaching about stages of faith and creation, fall, atonement, and the process of how we progress through it. And it hit me right then in the moment. As I was speaking, I thought to myself, wait a minute, I'm making this too intellectual. And I fear that my listeners are Wait, so do I have to get a PhD in anti-religious rhetoric like you do if I'm going to ho hope to make it to the atonement stage? I've, I've never struggled with faith on an intellectual level. I was in the creation stage and it made sense. And have I gone through the fall stage? I don't know. I've never like read anti-Mormonism or the stuff that people throw at me. I'm not interested in. It doesn't seem convincing or even palatable. I, I'm just not interested in that. So am I missing something? Am I supposed to go through an intellectual fall. And it hit me right there in the moment as I looked around the, uh, the congregation of this amazing collection of saints. And it hit me, the creation fall atonement paradigm is not just an intellectual thing, it's an experiential thing. Sometimes we're in the Garden of Eden based on experience because life is easy. It's good. And it's not some kind of cognitive dissonance that we fall into intellectually. No, it's this struggle of, God, where art thou? Because I'm suffering, and I thought you would always bless me if I obeyed. I thought life was supposed to be easy. That's what Job goes through. It's an experiential process for him. And for so many of us, it's tribulation that becomes our teacher. It's our trials that force us out of the innocence of Eden. And we start wrestling with this. We start shaking our fist heavenward. We wonder where God is, but if we're patient... And we see his comforting hand, even in the midst of our adversity, then as a result, we gain experience in the best imaginable way. And what's the result of experience? It's hope. It's going to be okay. I think of wise old timers, spiritual veterans, complete with many a scar, that just have a wisdom and a depth and a faith and a hope
that is so reassuring to me. Those are the people that have gone through creation fall atonement on the experiential track instead of the intellectual track. And it wasn't anti-Mormonism. It was just the trials of life. And it's not a, a mastery of church history that solves the issue. It's the wisdom of the ages and the experience and the hope that it brings. It's like grandparents saying to kids, it's all right. Your kids are going to turn out. I mean, you are. Well, I still have hope, right? It's, it's going to be okay. And they're unfazed by things that would phase the rest of us. I love the hope that he's describing here. It's absolutely beautiful. I see it in so many grizzled old saints. There's just a depth there, a wisdom. In verse 6, For when we were yet without strength, so still not able to perform every work or lift the heavy law, we weren't able to pull this off on our own, but even then, without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now that should shock us, and here's why. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. People usually don't put their lives on the line just because somebody's righteous or pure. Uh, beyond that, yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. Most people don't want to die for somebody righteous, but somebody might be willing to die for somebody that's good. But, here's what truly is shocking. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Do you see the evidence of God's love there? I mean, I guess, I mean, it'd be rare, almost unthinkable. Somebody dying for somebody righteous? Probably not. Somebody dying for somebody good? Eh, maybe. Somebody dying for somebody that's neither good or, or righteous? Somebody ungodly like me? No one would ever do that. And yet Jesus did. The Father sent the Son to do just that, to take Barabbas' place on the cross, to take Joseph of Arimathea's place in the tomb, to bear our scars so we could be resurrected to wholeness, to wipe our feet and wear the grime on his own garments. He did that for me. For God so loved the world. That's evidence. Verse 10, For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Oh, then much more. Being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now that's one of the few places in the New Testament where we see the word. The word atonement appears in Restoration Scripture frequently, but it's rare in the, in the New Testament, but there it is. A beautiful invention of William Tyndale to try to describe whatever it is Jesus did to get us back to God. I'll have to create a new word for that. How about at one meant? Yeah, that's it. Atonement. And to think that Jesus would be willing to do that. Remember what he said to his apostles right before Gethsemane? Greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Not just for a righteous person, not just for a good person, but for a friend. Yeah, I think they do that. But what does Paul say here in 10? We were enemies, and yet he laid down his life for us. As enemies, we were reconciled, re-counseled. 
brought back into the counsel of God. Return to the family. Prodigal son, welcome home. Let's go kill the fatted calf. We were reconciled to God by the death of Christ. And if that's the miracle of reconciliation, of justification, can you imagine what he's going to do with you through his own life? That's what he gets at. Much more, now that we've been reconciled, now that we're up out of the pit and we're on the valley floor and we trust the ropes and the, and the rope holder, can you imagine where we're going to go from here? Now that we have a covenant relationship, now that I've realized that I'm, I'm not all that good on my own, but I've connected to Christ and I just want to go wherever he'll take me, where are you going to take me? Oh, just wait. I hope you, you don't get altitude sickness because it's the heights that we're about to scale. We're going to be saved by his life. There's something profound about this passage of, it's almost like Christ's death justifies, but Christ's life sanctifies. I mean, there's, a, there's an overlap here. But it's like, if you thought I could do amazing things through my, through my death, pull you out of the pit, imagine what's going to happen when you start living alongside me and following my example so I can sanctify you. He died to save us from the wrong way, but he lived to show us the right way. Let's follow Christ then. In verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man, and that one man is Adam, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, that's the result, spiritual death, right? And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned, we're all going to be not just heirs. It's not original sin. It's not we're guilty because of Adam. It's no, we're guilty because of ourselves. But I, I do have myself to blame. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, as he said in chapter 3. But here he says, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. And that's a fascinating admission there, too. I thought you said earlier that the law is what introduces us to sin. The law is what tells us that, that we're sinning. Well, yeah, but without the law, you can still be sinning. I'm just not going to call it a sin because you didn't know any better. Uh, there doesn't have to be a rule against don't put your hand on the, on the oven or on the stove if it's on. You're going to get burned, rule or, or no rule. It can cause you damage. That's why I'm saying the law is meant to protect and preserve, okay, and not just condemn. So here, Adam and Eve brought sin and death into the world. And we inherited the proclivity towards sin. And then we acted on it and we committed sin ourselves. And now we're guilty whether or not the law... It goes against conscience, even if it doesn't go against commandment. Okay, So until the law was revealed to Moses, yes, sin was in the world. I'm just not going to impute it to you. I'm not going to count it against you in the same way. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. So throughout those dispensations, death was in charge because atonement had not yet come to take its place on the throne. But who did it rule over? Even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. So you may not have been guilty of the same sin as Adam, but you did still sin, so you, <laughs> you're part of the same sinking ship, same inheritance toward death. But, to, but speaking of Adam, who is the figure of him that was to come. So Adam is our preview of Jesus here. The JST, by the way, adds, For I say that through the offense, death reigned over all. So that's why we're all in the same sinking ship. 
But Adam came to introduce us to the fall. Jesus comes to introduce us to the atonement. And that's what he says from this point. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. So these are two different things. Adam's transgression was one thing. That's the bad news. Christ's gift is another thing. That's the good news. As the JST puts it, but the offense is not as the free gift, for the gift aboundeth. It goes so far above and beyond. The ropes are so long, it's not just to pull you out of the pit. It's to reach the top of the mountain. This gift abounds. As Paul says, for if through the offense of one many be dead, that's on Adam, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, and that's Jesus Christ. It's that gift that hath abounded unto many. And again, not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. There's Jesus as the second Adam, or Jesus as Adam in reverse. Everything the fall made wrong, the atonement of Christ will make right. Trust in that. Verse 17, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Let me say it again. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. In his letter to the Corinthians, he'll make this more succinct. He'll just say, as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. In that instance, he was specifically talking about the resurrection. But here he's speaking of that and everything else. There's a balancing of the scales. And Jesus came to overcome, to justify, and eventually to sanctify. Verse 20, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. That goes back to what he said in chapter 3 about the law shutting us up. Okay? The offense needed to abound. Not that we're piling it up and heaping it on. No, we didn't have to. It's already as big as it comes. But the law came to show us how bad things had gotten. But where sin abounded, oh, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus did so much more than the minimum to make up for our sins. The reign of grace does more than make up for the reign of law. No, it completely cancels out the reign of terror. <laughs> it, it abounds. I worry about good kids that think, oh, I, I think I'd love Jesus if there were more sin for him to forgive. I see other people that have done really bad things, and when they repent, man, they really appreciate Jesus. But since Jesus didn't do as much for me, I just don't know if I love him as much as others. He didn't do as much for you? No, to overcome sin and death, he still would have to suffer an infinite and eternal atonement. Infinite. There's no less or there's, and there's no more. His grace abounds. And you don't have to dig yourself deeper to appreciate him more. I've talked about the pit versus the pedestal before. You don't have to dig the pit deeper 
No, it's plenty deep already, deeper than you'll ever get out. But if you really want to come to appreciate Jesus, it's just a matter of distance and difference. And instead of deepening the pit, just raise the pedestal to its proper height, which is infinite and eternal. Jesus is at the top of it. And there's no way you're going to get there on your own. There should be infinite gratitude for his infinite atonement. But what happens if we take things too far? Am I starting to overswing the pendulum to think, oh, it's all the grace of God and, and he's, his grace is abundant, it abounds, it's more than enough to make up for what Adam did and all of his posterity as well. This is where chapter 6 begins, reining us in. He asks the question, verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, you probably know what he's about to tell us. God forbid. There's the bumper bowling again. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Do not overcorrect. Increased sin will not lead to increased grace because grace is already at a maximum. Grace is already infinite and eternal. The only thing that needs to increase is our appreciation for it, our faith in it. Uh, as we grow up in God and try to, try to ascend the pedestal along with him. That's why he gets to this beautiful discourse about baptism. Because it's this sense of, we all need it. But it's saying something when we do. If circumcision was the sign and seal, the, the old avenue of entrance into the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, then baptism is the new sign and seal that we are laying hold of the grace of Christ. We're grabbing hold of him with both hands so he can swing us across the chasm. That's what he says in verse 3 and 4. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ? And I love that. It's not just baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. No, it's baptized into him. He is the living water. There's nothing in the font that washes away our sins. Only Jesus does. So we are baptized into Christ. And don't you know that anyone who did that was baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, I love the symbolism of baptism. And the water does such a great job of depicting the washing away of sin. But like I said, Jesus is that water. He's the one that washes away our sins. So don't limit your understanding of baptism by thinking it's a washing. It's also a rebirth. And water is actually a great symbol for that, too. I've never heard anybody say my water broke at their baptism, but that is technically what's happening. I'm emerging from the watery womb. But it's not just a watery womb, it's a watery tomb. And that's the symbolism that Paul introduces to us here. That's why it's got to be by immersion. We are being buried with Jesus. We're being baptized into his death. You don't sprinkle dirt on a dead body. You bury it. You cover it. Because you know what's going to happen to that body? It's going to decompose. It's going to cease to exist in that form. Whereas the Spirit will go on in newness of life. And that's what we're enacting here. I want the old me to die. Leave him under the water. Good riddance. 
let him go down the drain once you unplug the baptismal font. And what is coming up instead? Someone new. It's newness of life. I'm not going to dig up old bones, whether mine or someone else's. I'm not going to push their past back upon them. No, I don't even know that person. They're gone. I went to the funeral. Never seen them again. Oh, but this new person. It's the butterfly emerging from the chrysalis. It's amazing to see what Jesus is asking us to do through our baptism, that sign and seal of the covenant. Verse 5 through 7, For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. So now we know how the person died, the person that's being buried in the waters of baptism. They were crucified right alongside Jesus, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Sin had been our taskmaster through all this, these years of sinful life. But now that I've died to them, then free at last, free at last. And the chains go down with the dead body. And I've been resurrected, not just raised, resurrected. You see, Jesus raised quite a few people in his ministry. And Peter did too, and Paul himself did as well. But those we could call resuscitations. The, widow, the son of the widow of Nain, and the daughter of Jairus, and Lazarus, and Tabitha, and Eutychus, they all died again eventually. That would be interesting. And that one was permanent, so to speak. The real permanent thing was the ultimate resurrection, never to die again. And that's what our baptism is supposed to be. I mean, if I've crucified the old man, no wonder Jesus kept, keeps telling me to take up my cross daily. I'm supposed to bring it to Calvary too. I guess I'm the thief on the cross. I hope I'm the one that asks him to remember me when he comes to his kingdom. But if I can be crucified right alongside him, is there room in Joseph of Arimathea's sepulcher for two? Can I come? Can I stay with you through everything? Live like you, die with you, crucified, buried, resurrected to a newness of life? In verse 8, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. He never has to go through that again. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Like I said, this is permanent transformation, not a temporary cleansing. My wife and son work in the addiction recovery world. And recovery is one thing. Relapse is another. And it haunts everyone. In some ways it should. It keeps us humble. It keeps us reliant upon grace. When I was younger, I, used to, I didn't understand why Alcoholics Anonymous, when you'd hear these stories of people going, and, oh, my name's so-and-so, and I'm an alcoholic. And then they'd say, oh, my last drink was 30 years ago. And I remember as a teenager even, I'm like, then you're not an alcoholic. <laughs> you're 30 years of sobriety? Let the past go. Bury the man and don't quit bringing him back up. But I see the wisdom now of them acknowledging, oh yeah, I'm sober, but I'm an alcoholic. And I've got to guard against that. 
It's why I love the, the way they describe their recovery. They don't say, I'm recovered, past tense, like it's, it's done. They say, I'm in recovery, which suggests this ongoing state and the ongoing actions that help them maintain their recovery. That's what the Lord is asking for us as well. It's this constant gratitude for His grace, but this constant vigilance to remember how desperately we need it. I love the phrase that Martin Luther coined. He called it simul justus et peccator, which in Latin means simultaneously just and sinful. That's me. I, not that I've been saved in my sins, but I'm saved from sins I need to stay away from. And I can trust in that. I can hope against hope. I, I believe the promise. I, I know what's been accounted unto me for righteousness. Okay? He then says in verse 11, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. I mean, if you do, you're back to chapter 1 and this slippery slope downhill. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Either way, we are yielding to one thing or the other. Please yield to God. Don't yield to the natural man. That's what these works of reconciliation have been trying to, to train us for. What he's describing there is grace is supposed to make us more careful, not more complacent. It's a chance to begin again better, not, to, not an excuse to go back and do it even worse. I've been freed from the bondage of sin. Don't go back to prison. So verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. You're freed from that. Chains have been broken. For ye are not under the law. I mean, the law is there to remind you of your captivity to it. You haven't lived it perfectly. You better try the other side. We're not under the law, but under grace. We moved over to that side of the board. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? So you know that answer. God forbid. Again, don't overswing the pendulum. Grace did not come to free us from the law's expectations. It simply came to free us from the law's approach. That changes everything. It answers the ends of the law by approaching those ends through a different means. Okay, we're free from that. We don't have to beat ourselves up over it. Verse 16, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey? That's why I was warning you, please yield to the right master. Either one, you're going to be serving someone. You're just picking your boss. Here's the options. Whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Take your pick. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Wait, wait, wait. I, I was freed and now I'm a servant again? I escaped one prison just to jump into a different kind of cell? Oh, don't consider it that way. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. This is Paul and Silas in the prison, but they were on the right side of the bars. 
Remember the Sermon on the Mount, no man can serve two masters? Well, the assumption is that you're going to be serving one of them. You are yielding yourself to one side or the other, and you do become the servant of him whom ye yield yourself to obey. In fact, whichever boss you choose is going to be paying your wages. So I guess you get to pick how you'll be rewarded for your deeds. In verse 19, he says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. In a way, he's saying, I'm trying to make this as logical and rational as I can. I'm trying to keep you from erring on one side or the other, since, well, weak-minded mortals are prone to err in, in one direction or the other. But I'm doing it this way after the, because of the infirmity of your flesh. In some ways, I'd rather just teach and testify of the resurrection, and then you follow the Spirit, and you overcome the natural man yourself. But no, I'm going to need to reason with you. I'm going to need to quote scripture and, and lay out some logic and, and paint some pictures here that hopefully will be persuasive to you. But that's all for the infirmity of your flesh. He goes on, For as ye have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, that's the opposite of faith to faith. This is the downward spiral. You've done that. You've descended along those lines. But stop. Even so now, yield your members, servants, to righteousness unto holiness. That's where the upward spiral ends, at a state of holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. That's the problem. What ye want is to be free from wickedness that makes you a servant of the Lord. That's what Paul said he was from the very beginning of this letter. I was freed from sin. And freed from the bondage of my legalism, I was freed from thinking that I had to live the law perfectly. Because as zealous as I was toward the law, and as strict as I was, the strictest sect of the Pharisees, I couldn't pull it off perfectly either. Remember Peter said that at the Jerusalem conference? Why would we stick the Gentiles with something we couldn't handle? And our, our forefathers couldn't either. <laughs> the... The law was not successful at perfecting us, but it sure was successful at <laughs> convincing us of our imperfections. Let's thank it for doing that because it introduced us to a need for grace on the other side. Well, let's live into that grace. Paul then ends this chapter, and we'll end our lesson with this. Verse 21 to 23, What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? Remember early on, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, but I am ashamed of the way I used to fight against it. I am ashamed of what I was not willing to acknowledge before God. But what fruit did that bring? Those old things, that old lifestyle, what, did it, what fruit did it bring? I'll tell you. The end of those things is death. That's the final verdict the law will pronounce upon us. Spiritual death. We fell short. So don't stay on that side of the ledger. Come over to the Lord. Embrace His grace. As Paul said, but now being made free from sin and become servants to God, we've switched our allegiance now, ye have your fruit, and it's a completely different variety. No longer the fruit of death that the law harvests, but instead the fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. And then let me sum up the whole concept. For the wages of sin is death, 
but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I do love the parallelism of the end there. On one side we have sin, on the other side we have God. The result of the first side is death, the result of the second side is eternal life. But did you catch the slight difference in the other parallel? On the first side it's wages, on the second side it's gift. On the, on the law side, you end up with death because you've earned it. You, you are owed death. Those are your wages. And Satan is pretty gleeful about passing that out on payday. Whereas on the Lord's side, I know you didn't earn eternal life. I know I don't owe it to you. It's not reckoned of debt. It's reckoned of grace. But as a gracious God, as a father who is rich in goodness and of a forgiving disposition, that's how I'm wired, it's a gift I want to give my children. Will you accept it? I hope that throughout our study this week, as long as it's been, we have come to more fully appreciate the grace of God and the goodness of God, the gift of His only begotten Son. This is the plan of salvation, and Paul is laying it out masterfully. He has taught us so much. What I want to do at the end of today's lesson, I hope to do at the end of each lesson through his letters. Paul was such a genius and had such a way with words that you could make a quote book just out of passages from his letters. He's like the ancient Neil A. Maxwell. And yes, there's a Neil A. Maxwell quote book full of magnificent one-liners that if you just pause and ponder them, if you can internalize them, most of them are short enough so they just float around in the mind. If you can do that with Paul, so many of the lessons that those phrases convey will come rushing back right along with them. So in our last minute or two, can I just repeat without any commentary, I'm not going to drag this on, but can I just repeat some of these golden one-liners that we've learned today? From chapter 1, verse 16, for example. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 17. The just shall live by faith. Chapter 2, verse 15. Their thoughts, the meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. Chapter 2, verse 28, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly. Chapter 3, verse 3, shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? Chapter 3, verse 19, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Chapter 3, verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? Oh, God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. Chapter 4, verse 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Chapter 4, verse 18. Who against hope believed in hope. Or chapter 4, verse 21. Being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform. Chapter 5, verse 3, 
knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Or 5 verse 10. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Chapter 6, verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Oh, God forbid. And finally, chapter 6, verse 4. Like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. My dear friends, I love the doctrine of Christ. I love the gospel of God. I love faith and repentance and baptism and the gift of the Holy Ghost. I love covenant and relationship and experience. I Praise God for the gift of grace. I pray I may never presume upon it. But instead, may I come with a shut mouth, but an open heart, ready to praise God for his goodness, for his merciful disposition. I testify of his love for each and every one of us. Jew, Gentile, Greek, Barbarian, male, female, rich, poor. God is good. And the greatest piece of evidence he's ever given us to prove it is the gift of his only begotten Son.